Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. This is being recorded live and broadcasted live on January 29th, 2022. The time right now, exactly 9.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That was the intro to It's a Living, which you may not remember. Kind of sounded like a Broadway number, didn't it? And that's actually because the theme song was written in that style. But what was unusual about this show is that it was a complete flop, and yet it went on for six seasons. It's the only show known to be like that, to completely flop in the first two seasons and last for six. There have been some shows which have struggled at the beginning and then done well afterwards and stayed on for a while. But this one completely flopped for two seasons, was canceled from network TV, and then three and a half years later appeared in first-run syndication for four more seasons, starting in 1985 for those syndicated seasons, even though the show began in 80 and was canceled by... 82. It starred a number of women. It actually took place in the restaurant on top of the Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles, though they never named the hotel, but they showed the exterior of it, which was the Bonaventure, and it does have that type of restaurant. This wasn't a faithful recreation of the restaurant, but it uh, was supposed to be the same thing. In fact, I've actually eaten in that restaurant before, which is currently called L.A. Prime, which I didn't think was that good, but... I see it has good reviews, so maybe it improved. I actually just looked at it recently. Anyway, I've watched a few of these episodes on YouTube. It actually aged pretty well. You know how some of these shows from the 70s and 80s, you watch them, they seem really antiquated. This one, aside from the payphone in the back room where the waitresses uh, take breaks, which obviously wouldn't exist anymore, it could easily be taking place today. So... When you can watch a show and it doesn't feel like you're watching something from decades ago, you know it aged pretty well. So anyway, just decided to play that to bring back some nostalgia for the few of you who might remember that show and its strange history. We have a free roll going. We have a free roll going right now. It started at 9.20. You have until 9.45 to get in, so there's still 13 more minutes on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It is a $55 free roll this week. We got $30 from Flipper Fair, $25 from Donkey Killa to make up our prize pool. So thank you to the two of you. And it is 28 for first, 17 for second, 10 for third. 28, 17, and 10 are the three prizes we are giving away this week. Go to pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, to understand the rules for qualifying for the free money. Pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll, exactly as it sounds. And it takes place in the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It's near the top of the screen on pokerfraudalert.com. You need a separate account on the Poker Room, different from your forum account. And provided you meet the requirements we have, then you can win free money if you finish in the top spots that we announce each week. And I can pay you in many ways. I can pay you by Cash App, by Zelle, by bank transfer, by various forms of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, of course, being one of them, but I have some others as well. And I can also pay you via other ways you could think of that people send money over the internet. So PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff, if you're a winner, Dan Space Druff, and claim your prize. If you don't claim your prize within six months, then I may roll it back into the pool at any time. It may not be on the dot of six months, but it could be eight months, nine months, seven months, a year, whatever. Just once six months passes, if you have not claimed your money at any time, I can yank it from you and drop it back in the prize pool. 
So make sure to claim your prizes within those six months. And not a very big pool of people playing typically, unless we have a very big free roll, because we're on pretty late. So most people cannot listen live. So it's a good opportunity to win free money. Let's see who we have here. Not sure if it's Calwatt or Trader Ruski. We're gonna try one. We're gonna try both. One of the two kind of just got active here. Trader Ruski, I think it's you. What's happening, Trev? I saw someone activated last week's call. Was that you? Yeah, that must have been my bad. No, no, it's um, good. It alerted me to the fact that you were around, so I'm glad you did it. Okay, nice. <laughs> I'll just listen to last week's episode after I fell asleep. That it sounds like you found the first Karen of all time, huh? started the whole movement way back then and then it turned into what we had last year but i'm not sure what you're talking about well i'm talking about the karen at american express the oh the first karen i didn't understand what you were saying yes yes i i did find probably the first karen you're correct at least the first known karen i I didn't think of course at the time of the significance but yes it was funny that her name was karen it was very appropriate like exactly what you would picture her to be is what she was i i cannot stress that enough (laughs) from those phone calls uh, by the way, someone brought up to me in text later that they felt I was in the wrong because they said, and they actually brought up a better point than Karen ever brought up. They said, wait a minute, you could roll American Express this way by putting a different card down, and then if something happens to the car, then quickly switch it to a card that has this coverage, like American Express. So this way you could only use the American Express when you want that coverage after something's happened. And uh, if nothing happens, then use a card that gets better rewards like points or airline miles. And that's actually a good point. But the problem was that I don't remember all the details because it's been so many years. But I told this guy that in some way I used the American Express beforehand. It was either to reserve it on the website or I gave it to them to pay for the car when I picked it up, something like that. It wasn't like the American Express wasn't in the whole equation until I returned it with damage and then I wanted to use it. Then the guy would have a point. And the reason I know that for sure is because had that been the case, then that would have been the first thing Karen would have said. But she never raised the point that I brought the American Express in too late after the fact, after the damage had already occurred. Even she acknowledged that the American Express was in the picture before the damage occurred. It was just the fact that this other card was there too, and that's why they were trying to deny it. So I wish I remembered the full details on that better, but it has been many years, and I didn't realize in 2004 that I would be talking about it on a internet radio show in 2022. But uh, the, the guy brought up a good point, though. I did have to think for a second, go, wait a minute. Could this guy be right? I go, oh, no, 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 I remember now. So I remember enough about it to where that wasn't the issue. But Good thinking on his part. And, like, I, I don't mind if people find holes in these stories and bring them up to me because uh, sometimes there's something I left out or didn't think of. And people are always welcome to bring constructive criticism or disagreement to me uh, via text. And if you want to text me, that phone number is 775 372 8355. 775 372 8355, which is also the main number to the show that you can call during the show. Now, please only call in between segments because otherwise I probably won't take your call. But that is our phone number into the live show. And it also spells 775-FRAUD55 if you want to remember it that way. But texting, of course, you have to enter the digits. 
We also have the Mount Charleston line, which is 702-430-1808, separate line into the show. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. Can't text that number, but you can call it. And then there's the call to listen line, which you cannot use to talk to me, but you can use to listen to me because it is a way to listen to the show. You just call up the number with any phone and listen. That phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, or the alternate call to listen line, 641-741-1095. As long as you can call the U.S. for free, then it's free. Unless you have T-Mobile, then it costs one cent a minute, which I don't get. And if you forget these numbers, just go to the radio tab on Poker Fraud Alert, and you'll see them all listed right there, every number I gave out here. And the call to listen line, it never freezes, it never buffers, it just works. It does not require a phone, or it requires a phone, sorry. It does not require a smartphone, does not require the internet, does not require a computer or even a data plan. Just any phone that was ever built that can dial can use the call to listen line. And the non-buffering thing, the non-freezing thing is huge. I cannot stress how nice that is compared to other streaming media. And it has been around now for over six years, and over a million minutes have been listened to on it. The chat room is something you can go into during the show, and I will uh, read it occasionally, and I will read anything out loud that is worth reading, but you can also use it to chat with other people during the live show. Don't bother going in during the archives, because... uh, People are only in the chat room when I'm broadcasting live. I know most of you don't listen live, but in case you are live, you can go in there. You just need a Poker Fraud Alert form account in good standing to get in. It works with any device, as does our radio player on the radio tab. If you want to listen in the archives, we have so many ways to do it. We have iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartMedia. We have the Bullhorn app, which has its own call to listen line. We have... Stitcher. We have TuneIn, which also has a way to listen to the live show. There's two entries for us there, as you'll see. It's another app, TuneIn. And then you can also download or play the MP3 file of the show. We make an MP3 of every show. You can find it under the Radio Archives Forum on PokerFraudAlert.com, or you can just click the MP3 button on the radio page. It'll take you right there. And uh, you can play the MP3 with any device. Just click on it, and it should work does not require any additional player and you can download it and save it and whatever we provide that for you every week also amazon alexa just say alexa play poker fraud alert radio podcast say it slowly make sure to say podcast at the end and it'll play the latest episode and you just have to say next and it'll go to the previous episode so a lot of ways we provide here to listen on poker fraud alert because i want it to be easy for you And I know when I have to go find other podcasts to listen to, it's sometimes hard. Sometimes I'm forced to use a method I don't want. And I don't want you to be in that situation. The only thing I'm not really providing right now that I've had requested is YouTube, because it's kind of a pain in the ass. I could upload it to YouTube every time. I could stream on YouTube. I I just kind of don't want to. It's kind of a pain in the butt. And I don't think we'll get enough people using it to be worth the trouble. These other methods are automated. I don't have to do anything. I have to set them up. But once they're set up, The system takes care of the rest. Once I post it in the archives, it shows up everywhere. By the way, if you're looking for the app that is fastest with picking up the archives once posted, Spotify is the fastest. Spotify is really fast. And also something cool about Spotify you may not know 
is you can actually click on the timestamp and it'll take you right there. So not only are there timestamps, but you click on them and it takes you right to that point in the show, which is very convenient. We do have timestamps in the archives so, because it's a very long show. And this way, if you don't have six, seven, eight hours to listen, you can jump to the parts that you find most interesting. I won't be insulted if you only listen to part of the show every week. I know not everybody has this amount of time to listen to shows, or if you do, maybe you don't want my show to be the only one. So totally fine if you just want to listen to portions of it. Okay, so let's see if we have anything else before the agenda. Uh, I guess not. I'm glad we have you, Trader Risky. How, how long do you think you'll be able to stay up? You know, I probably got about an hour in <laughs> Okay, you got a good hour in you. All right, that's that's good. That's I'll take the hour. So here is the agenda, and then we will get going. The lead story is about a renaming that's taking place. Actually, two renamings that are taking place. It's getting very confusing on the Las Vegas Strip because Bally's, which was originally the MGM Grand, but is different than the MGM Grand you know today, but it became the M- it became Bally's in 87, and then it's been Bally's since then. It's not going to be Bally's for much longer. It's going to become the Horseshoe, which was once downtown. And it's not downtown any longer. And Bally's is not leaving Las Vegas because it's just moving over to the Tropicana. The Tropicana is going to be Bally's. Are you confused yet? I bet you are. I will try to break it all down in our lead segment. Then we have a breaking story, one that makes me happy. We're doing the show on Saturday instead of Friday recently. Mike Matisau has purchased an interest in Poker House Dallas. And he has fearlessly done so, despite the legal actions we discussed last week against one of the major Dallas card rooms that may eventually be affecting all of them. So Mike Matisau, full speed ahead, purchasing an interest in Poker House Dallas. And in fact, he is moving to Dallas very shortly to help manage it. He talked about wanting to do this. He has done so. And I'm going to play you from his podcast today what he had to say about that. This was just... A few hours ago, we found this out. Remember I said I would update anything I learned about the Adele cancellation story? Well, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot since last week, so we're going to update you. not going to leave you hanging or guessing. I'm going to tell you all the new stuff I have learned about Adele, and suffice to say, looks like she was lying. Not very shocking, but you'll find some of these details to be pretty interesting. Here is a story that is not getting very much attention. In fact, even I didn't know about it until today when I was looking for things to talk about on radio. And I found this about two-week-old story, which is quite intriguing. Remember that story about that Sattler guy who was uh, trying to subpoena the CEO of Resorts World named Scott Sibella? And the Sattler guy was uh, a scammer, a guy who had founded a video installing company called uh, Satcom, but in reality he was just embezzling the money and there's a lawsuit about that and the whole uh, big thing involving this uh, Sattler guy. Well, as an extension of that story, there's a controversial Vegas figure who's on social media who calls himself Robin Hood 702. He's in a bizarre battle with Resorts World and with Super Vegas attorney David Chesnoff about somebody else who is accused of embezzling. And now he is accused of a crime himself. 
And to me, it looks like he is being victimized by the Las Vegas justice system. And I've always had a feeling, I've always had a strong feeling that there's still corruption in the Vegas justice system. I've seen, shall I say, circumstantial evidence of this in several cases I've examined, including, uh, to be honest, Ray Davis. Regardless of what you think of him and what he's accused of, I do think uh, he was uh, not treated completely fairly either by the justice system with the bail they set for him. We'll talk about that when we get to that segment. But anyway, very weird story I'm going to tell you about. And I have even dug up some old entries on Robin Hood's Twitter, which are now protected. But I was able to dig up some old entries, and I'll tell you about those. It's a really weird story. A U.K. gambler is looking to get his money back that he lost at a casino there. He lost about uh, like 3.9 million pounds, which is over $5 million. He's looking to get that back, claiming they took advantage of his compulsive gambling habit. This has shades of the old Terence Watanabe situation from 07. So we'll talk about that, and I'll remind you what happened with Watanabe back then. By request, we have another Druffy Time Theater. People seem to be enjoying Druffy Time Theater. So I am bringing it back once again this week. Eventually, I'll run out of these stories. I mean, I can't go on forever with this because this is all stuff that happened in the past. And soon enough, I'll have a lack of stuff to talk about. But I found in my memory banks a scam I was a victim of. A scam by a cruise line. It was actually during the infamous 2006 party poker cruise and i'll give you some highlights of that cruise again i know i've talked about that before but what i haven't talked about to my knowledge was the scam i was uh, a victim of by the cruise line actually while i was on the cruise line and what i did about it so i'll tell you about druff versus holland america in 2006 phil halamuth played tom dwan in a heads-up match i will tell you the results of that I have some PayPal news, both about Eric Benzamokin's led lawsuit over the money seizures and something also having to do with PayPal and gambling, but not really have to do with this uh, class action suit, but something which I don't think is good news for PayPal users. Finally, Las Vegas Raiders players are having more issues. There was a fear that if you bring pro athletes to Vegas... They won't handle it well, and a lot of them will get in trouble. With the Las Vegas hockey team, the Golden Knights, that hasn't really happened. They've been behaved pretty well for the years they've been in Vegas. But the Raiders, not so much. There's been a lot of problems with the Raiders there. A lot of irresponsible, dangerous, and sometimes criminal, sometimes serious criminal behavior. So I'll tell you about uh, the latest with the Las Vegas Raiders getting themselves into trouble. They got eliminated recently sometimes in the playoffs. Deadly, sometimes deadly. Yeah, sometimes deadly too, yes. <laughs> Bad news for a lot of the Raiders players there. We do have a little coronavirus news as well. The fourth Pfizer and Moderna shots exist in the U.S. now. In fact, immunocompromised people can get them. But should you get it when it comes to be your turn? It's a decision I'll have to make in not too long because it's been three and a half months since I got my booster. So it's probably starting to wear down very soon. I will tell you how I'm going to approach it, and then you can decide for yourself how you'd like to approach it. It's not that easy of a decision, to be honest. So that is our agenda for this evening. This is our fifth show in 2022. Can you believe it? 
Like, we were missing some shows during the last few months of 21. Where I kept missing the shows for different reasons. But we have been cranking them out in 22. The fifth show this month. And hopefully we will continue at this rate. I'm sure we'll be missing shows as the year wears on. But so far, even with COVID in my house, I have missed zero shows in January. In fact, this is the fifth one. So thank you guys for being here. And I hope you are enjoying the lengthy content I put out every every week. Because it's not easy. It takes a lot of time and effort, especially time. Okay, let's jump to our first topic here. The Caesars announcement about Bally's and the Horseshoe, and then the subsequent announcement about Tropicana and Bally's. So I'll give Vital Vegas credit here, because he was the first one to say something about this, and it turned out he was right. Vital Vegas takes a lot of heat from some people for various reasons. In fact, even I had an issue with a guy at one point, though I, I like him now. And I even appeared on his podcast a few months ago, as you guys probably remember. But uh, he takes some heat because he basically fires out rumors that people give to him. A lot of people bring him rumors, and some of them end up being true. A lot of times he's the first one to report things. And then sometimes he ends up being wrong. One time he even got sued over being wrong because uh, he was reporting the Sahara was going to close. And he wasn't backing down from it, and he got sued. He ended up winning the lawsuit, and I felt it was actually correct that he won the lawsuit. He should not have been sued there, especially because when he got the info, it was good info, just the Sahara ended up not closing. Anyway, this is about Bally's and the Horseshoe. This was from September 29th, 2021. Vital Vegas said, Latest word is Bally's becomes Horseshoe. Our dreams are crushed, but WSOP has a permanent home, so there's that. Okay, so... That turned out to be correct. Bally's is going to become the horseshoe. It is going to happen sometime this year. They are going to be doing a renovation. Presumably, it's going to officially be the horseshoe before the World Series of Poker, which begins in late May, as it usually does. And the horseshoe, of course, is a famed former hotel where the World Series of Poker took place downtown, which is now called Binion's. It was called Binion's Horseshoe at the time, but now there's just Binion's, which actually isn't owned by the Binion family. But there is a Binion still downtown in that same building. But of course, it has no association anymore with the World Series, which has been owned by Harrah's and now Caesar's since uh, 2004. So the history of this is that in 2004, Harris made a tremendous deal, which is really their best deal ever to date. Before or after 2004, they've never done better, better than this. I don't think you can do better than this. I mean, this was an excellent deal. So Binion's, which was owned by the Binion family and was being run into the ground by Becky Binion, was in financial trouble. It was even shut down at one point by gaming because they didn't have enough cash on hand to cover every chip that they had in the casino. And that is a gaming violation and they're not allowed to continue that way. You know, they can't pull a Johnny Chan. So in 04, they actually had that happen and Harris was smelling blood in the water. Now, Harris was very interested in the World Series and they knew that was the valuable asset, 
not the old rundown Binion's Hotel and Casino downtown. No, 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 no. What they wanted was the World Series. But they didn't want to let it be known that they wanted the World Series. They just wanted to make it look like they wanted a downtown casino. So they went to Becky Binion and said, hey, you're having a lot of financial trouble. You're having trouble keeping this thing afloat. How about you sell it to us? And they bought it for something like $50 million. And they were really just after the World Series because something they got as a result of buying Binion's Horseshoe was the World Series of Poker, which was owned by Binion's. And secondarily, they got the Horseshoe brand, which is not as valuable as the World Series, but it had some value as well. But Becky Binion didn't realize that. All she saw is she had a failing hotel casino that Harris was willing to pay her what looked like good money for. So, yeah, she unloaded it to them. Then Harris said, thank you very much. And this is right before Harris and Caesars merged. Caesars was known as Park Place Entertainment then, but they hadn't yet merged, but they were very close to doing so. But they said, thank you very much. They owned the World Series, which as you see, they've monetized and made huge money from every year. And they've done a much better job promoting it than Binion's ever did. I mean, you can say what you want about the way the World Series has been run by Caesars, but one thing you can't say is that their marketing is bad. Their marketing has been excellent, and they've grown the World Series tremendously, even while poker is contracting every year. So from that standpoint, they've done a very impressive job with the World Series, even though I have criticisms operationally every year. Those Some years are better than others, but you know, a lot of times I have criticism for needless fail they have. But marketing-wise, they've done a tremendous job. And getting it in the first place, they did a tremendous job. So what did they do with Binion's? How come Binion's is not a Caesars property? Well, they turned around and sold it right away for very close to the same price they paid, minus the World Series, minus the Horseshoe brand. So they extracted the two assets they wanted, kept it, and resold it for basically what they bought it for. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but when it was all said and done, they got the World Series of Poker and the Horseshoe brand for free. Isn't that amazing? And this isn't like 50 years ago. We're talking about in 04. This is modern Vegas history. They got the freaking World Series of Poker for free. They got the Horseshoe brand for free. That's crazy. <laughs> so that, whoever came but up with drop, it. Yeah. Drop all that. You think they really foresaw all the things that happened? I mean, it was certainly not the brand that it was. I mean, they they had to have a lot of things go right that would blow up to where it was. Well, yes, they they couldn't have been sure that the World Series was going to become what it did. But look, when I won my brace, it was just the following year in '05, and the World Series was already very big. They had already made it very big by the following year. And keep in mind, this was during the poker boom. 04 was after Moneymaker had won. Poker was rapidly growing in 04, and by 05, it was huge. And when I was at the World Series at the Rio, his first year at the Rio in 05, that was by no means a small event. In fact, the field I beat in the 3K Limit Hold'em was the biggest 3K Limit Hold'em field of all time, both then and now. There has never been that size of a field of the 3K Limit Hold'em before or since. So 05 was like very close to the peak of poker. And uh, so they saw poker was rapidly growing. And that's why the World Series was worth so much. So they really did a good job here. Now, 
sure, they couldn't have seen that the World Series would be as enduring as it has been and that it would grow even more even as poker was shrinking. There's no way they could have uh, known that for sure. But, they, I mean, that was a tremendous purchase. Even at the time when it happened, I was like, wow, that's that's pretty amazing. So that was how Caesar got a hold of the World Series in the first place. And the reason I'm going over this again is because of the horseshoe brand that Caesars has had all this time, and yet between 04 and in the present, there has been no horseshoe in Las Vegas, even though that's where it began, and even though there are horseshoes at other Caesars properties now throughout the country, and there have been for quite some time ever since they got the brand. So they've dropped the horseshoe brand on many other casinos they've owned, but they just didn't do it in Vegas. It was just sitting there not being used in Vegas when they had the rights to use it because they owned it. This was something that was eventually going to happen. I was wondering when a horseshoe would eventually show up in Vegas, but they just didn't have much to do with the name in Vegas because they weren't acquiring new properties. The only new property they've acquired uh, in recent time, I guess there's been two. There was... uh, the Barbary Coast, which eventually became the Cromwell, and then there was the Imperial Palace, which became the Link. But I guess they just didn't feel like the horseshoe really fit into either of those themes. I guess the Barbary Coast could have been, because it was kind of an old-school hotel, but they, they decided to go a different direction and eventually renovate it into a boutique hotel, which is the Cromwell today. So def- definitely the present Cromwell would not have fit as a horseshoe. But they have decided to finally make use of the Horseshoe brand, and they are doing it for partially of the reason that the World Series of Poker is going to be there. Because remember, the World Series of Poker is going to be at Bally's in Paris, which is now going to be the Horseshoe in Paris, in 2022 for the foreseeable future, though I guess it's possible they may eventually switch it to the convention center, that new convention center they built, but for now it is going to those two. So in 2022, the World Series of Poker will technically be back at the Horseshoe, just not at Binion's. But listen to this. This is so confusing because I'll talk about the second part of this shortly, but listen to what's happening here. The MGM Grand, which became Bally's, is becoming the Horseshoe. Tropicana is becoming Bally's in a whole separate matter. So Bally's is not disappearing from Vegas, it's just moving down the street. Then the Horseshoe, which is going to be the present name of what is Bally's right now, is something that was once downtown as Binion's Horseshoe, and Binion still exists, it's just not the Horseshoe anymore. And MGM Grand, which became Bally's, also still exists in Vegas, but that's a new hotel, well, new as of 93, that was built after MGM Grand became Bally's. So you have all these hotels in Vegas that have switched names around and aren't the hotels they once were. It's one thing for a hotel to change names or themes, but here you have hotels switching names. You have MGM Grand becoming Bally's, and then a new MGM Grand showing up down the street. You have the Horseshoe just having the Horseshoe dropped out of it and just becoming Binion's, and then... 18 years later, it's going to become Bally's, or it's going to, Bally's is going to become a horseshoe, and then Bally's is not disappearing. It's moving down the street to be the Tropicana. 
Like, imagine if you don't know this and you come to Vegas and someone says to meet you at Bally's and you go to where you think Bally's is and has been for 35 years and it's the horseshoe and you're like, what? And you go, I guess this is Bally's. I guess they don't really know what they're talking about. I guess it used to be Bally's. And, and so you're sitting there waiting for the person. They don't show up. They're down the street at the Tropicana, which is not Bally's. I mean, that's the most confusing part. If Bally's was just disappearing, this would be easy or somewhat easy. But the fact that Bally's is going to move down the street to another existing property, the Tropicana, that's really strange. So someone says, meet me at Bally's and you got to go to the Tropicana. Meet me at the Horseshoe. You're not going downtown. You're going to Bally's. And then, of all things, Bally's also was once the MGM, which is a totally different hotel, which was built from the ground up in 93. That's really odd. I don't know anywhere else that does this, where we have these names that are switching around from property to property, especially around the same time. Now, this isn't just happening randomly. There's always reasoning behind this. But... Before we get to the whole thing of why Bally's is going to endure and take over the Tropicana, I have to talk about first the whole thing with the horseshoe. Because if you're familiar with the horseshoe, the horseshoe always promoted itself as a gambler-friendly venue, which is one where they would give generous comps and where they would... uh, often give you games that had odds that didn't favor the house all that much and where they would have high limits, things which gamblers, or at least old school gamblers, liked, where they felt like, yeah, they they had a chance. It was something where the house still had an edge, but they had a chance and they were being treated like VIPs there, that everybody gets something there, everybody is treated well, there's generous comps. The food is extremely cheap. They had this incredible deal in the coffee shop for the longest time there that you could get this full meal for like $2. Ten say, times odds on craps. Yeah, yeah, right. the high odds on craps. And then the ham, steak, and eggs down at the, uh, at the uh, coffee shop you were just talking about. Yeah, yeah. So these were all things that attracted people to the horseshoe. And when Caesars took over the brand, they continued to claim that the horseshoe had these attributes. But in reality, it didn't. In reality, what they did is they just uh, were renaming properties Horseshoe, and they were claiming it has these attributes, but, but none of them really did. They'd, they'd have a very, very, very watered-down version of it. Like, I'm not all that familiar with these horseshoe properties because they're in other parts of the country that I never visit. But I can tell you that what was at Binion's when it was Binion's Horseshoe, that doesn't exist anymore at any Caesars property and it hasn't ever existed with the present configuration of Caesars. Present meaning since they had the Harris-Caesars merger and they have all these properties across the country. Uh, Nothing like that has existed. The horseshoe as we know it is dead and will always be dead. We're never going back to that. That was a different era. It's uh, something that is never going to happen again with the corporate ownership of Vegas, with the late-night bean counters that work there to maximize profits in all ways. They're, they're never going to do this again because they do not want anyone taking advantage of them. They're, they've become obsessed with not letting people get over on them. 
So they're not going to have these coffee shops with these incredible deals because then they're afraid that the word will get out and people will just go there to eat and leave or locals will come there every day to eat. So the, while Binion's was aware of this too, and they just dealt with it, as did many casinos in those days when things were cheap, and Binion's was one of the last ones that was uh, still doing this, but this was kind of dealt with in old and semi-old Vegas, but corporate Vegas doesn't tolerate this. Corporate Vegas will not do this. Corporate Vegas wants to make money from every customer. They realize it's not possible to make money from 100% of customers, but they do not want to present an easy opportunity for people to get over on them. They don't want to give super cheap meals where locals can come eat every day or where people who are just frugal can drive over there and eat every day and do nothing else. They don't want that. They want anything you're going to do there is going to be something that generates a profit. The only thing that's not going to generate a profit is if you just go there and kind of just walk around and, and sightsee within the property. But even there, they try to get you with the parking. So that is the new reality of Vegas, of corporate Vegas. And I'm not even one of these guys who wishes for the old days of Vegas back. There's a lot of nostalgia that people have for old Vegas, and they will sometimes gloss over the very serious downsides of old Vegas, such as if you piss off the wrong people, that you can be taken in the back and beaten up very badly, or in some extreme cases, taken to the desert, shot and buried. So uh, those days are gone, and it's good those days are gone. And for advantage players, while the opportunities to advantage play back then were more because uh, there was a lot the casinos hadn't caught on to yet, you didn't want to get caught in those days. It, it was pretty scary to get caught in those days. So there's a lot of things that have changed about Vegas. And even if you say, well, I'm not an advantage player, I, I wouldn't have to worry about that. Well, there was still stuff going on in Vegas that you may not have liked, such as if you bought a ticket to a show in Vegas— they would always put you in the back at some crappy seat unless you bribed the guy in front. So there was all that type of crap going on there that isn't here anymore. And that's actually good that some of that has changed. But the downside is that uh, with the bean counters taking over, with it becoming very corporate, then a lot of opportunities to get a good value Vegas vacation, which used to be something that Vegas was known for, that's gone. You can't do it anymore and you're never going to see it again. And also, the games are getting worse and worse and worse as they're starting to realize that uh, casual gamblers don't know the difference. Casual gamblers don't care. So they just have been killing the good odds games. They've been changing the rules, and they've been making it to where the games are more and more negative expectation. In some cases, ridiculously negative expectation, things like triple zero roulette. So that type of stuff would not have happened in old and semi-old Vegas. Semi-old meaning even like early 2000s. That was what the old horseshoe was, and we're never going to see that again. So it's so funny. Sometimes I'll be on hold with a Caesars property, and I'll hear their propaganda message, and it'll say, Horseshoe, we have high limits. No, the horseshoe is known for its high limits, high odds, and uh, generous comps, whatever they say. And they say, the horseshoe, our motto is to make it right for the gambler. I'm going, this is such bullshit. They, they don't, though. This is kind of similar to a Major League Baseball team announcing that they signed a big-name player to join the team, hoping that people don't realize that the player's 43 years old and at best can be a guy who comes off the bench and gets a single for you every once in a while. <laughs> uh, just because it's the same name doesn't mean it's the same thing. 
be kind of like if the Dodgers were promoting that Albert Pujols is part of the team in, in 2021, and that now they're going to really blow up. Though he wasn't bad actually last year when they got him, but but still, like when the Dodgers got 2021 Albert Pujols, he was nowhere near equivalent to the 2003 Albert Pujols, and not even close. He was decent off the bench, but he was just a role player. And if you hadn't paid attention to the fact that he was old, you might be really excited that he was coming to the team. But it's kind of like this. Just because they have the horseshoe doesn't mean that what the horseshoe is known for is going to get brought to what is now Bally's. But unfortunately, we have people on Twitter that are confused by this. So I've seen questions on Twitter, and I mean serious questions from people who are asking things like, oh, does that, that mean that 3-2 uh, to two Blackjack is coming back and the 6-5 to five games are going to be gone? No, that will not change. Does this mean that they're going to have a really cheap coffee shop? No, that's not going to happen either. So what is going to change? Well, maybe they'll give a high odds craps. Maybe they'll let you do a... 20 times odds craps or maybe 100 odds craps if they uh, really want to allow such a thing. But uh, it won't be at a very low limit table, though. Like they will. uh, The thing with 100 times odds craps is there's very high variance to it. For those of you that don't know what that is, uh, I should explain that an odds bet uh, in craps is something that's actually an even money bet an even odds bet, shall I say, where there's no house edge. And you may say, well, why would they offer that? Well, the odds bet is something you can place after the initial roll, which is negative expectation. And then the times odds is the amount you can multiply your bet that you can place at exact zero expectation with a casino, meaning that uh, you don't have an edge over them, they don't have an edge over you, it's actually a straight... uh, even shot that's dictated by luck. So 100 times odds means you can place 100 times your original bet as an odds bet at something that has zero house edge. So you may say, well, that's great. That almost zeroes the house edge, which it does. But remember, there's tremendous variance here because you're you're placing 100 times your original bet. And if the minimum isn't that low, let's say the minimum is five bucks. Well, now you're placing a $500 bet. So you can see the problem. Unless you have a very big bankroll, this can really, really be devastating if you run bad. Even though the odds will be very close to even, you can easily have bad luck and lose. So you got to have a deep bankroll to do it. So people do like having these high odds craps tables because it does allow them to do some higher stakes gambling. It's like this is perfect for someone who likes placing several hundred dollar crap bets at a time. And so they can bet the table minimum originally, $3, $5, whatever, and then we'll pay, place the 100 odds bet, and then they can bet what they're used to betting. So to them, it's not high variance. So for those people, it's great. But for everybody else who doesn't typically place bets of that size, it can really, really be devastating, especially because these odds bets uh, are not ones that are 50% to win. They're just paying out the odds they should for when they hit without any kind of uh, house edge built into it. So that may actually be something that they bring to maybe one or two tables at the new horseshoe. They had it at the Cromwell. They took it away from the Cromwell. And there's a belief that maybe they took it away from the Cromwell in preparation for moving it over to the new horseshoe. But that by itself is not that exciting. I I guess if you're a craps player, it's 
moderately exciting if you like betting on odds. But aside from that, it's not that exciting. So anything that you knew the previous horseshoe for back in 2004, you're not going to see again. So if you say, oh, cool, let's get the horseshoe. I mean, this is going to be awesome. It's going to be like the old days. No, it won't be like the old days. It won't be at all in any way. And any excitement you have for that needs to go away. Now, if you just like the fact that you'll be playing the World Series of Poker at the horseshoe again, technically, then great. Okay, I mean, that's happening. I mean, that's something, I guess, but it's really just something in name only. There, nothing really much is changing. Eric Seidel made this point on January 26th. He tweeted, Bally's to undergo renovations to become Horseshoe Las Vegas Casino. Does this mean no fees in the main event and the free shrimp and laughter buffets will be back? I mean, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> they actually had that. They actually had uh, a free shrimp and lobster buffet for people who played the main event. And for a long time, they weren't charging any house juice for the main event of the World Series. So Eric Seidel, who's a very smart guy, is very aware that the answer to that is no. He's saying that sarcastically. But he's raising a good point that really nothing's going to change. They are going to be doing a major renovation. It's not going to just be Bally's with a new name slapped on it. They are going to be doing a major renovation with uh, all the horseshoe imagery. So they are going to try to make the theme indoor and outdoor look like it's a horseshoe property. They're not just naming it the horseshoe. But again, that's all cosmetic. So yeah, they may be changing the inside to remind you of the original horseshoe and the outside's going to look different with the horseshoe branding. And maybe in some ways, if you squint hard enough, you can believe you're back at Binion's Horseshoe in the 2000s or the 90s or the 80s, but you're not. It's, it's all an illusion. It's all branding. That's all it is. And I can understand if you're happy with the name change. And I can understand if you're happy with the combination of not being in the Rio anymore and the name change to the horseshoe. And maybe you'll like being able to say that you're going to Vegas to play the World Series at the horseshoe, something you thought you could never say again. Okay. But just remember, it's just all branding. It's just all imagery. It's not going to mean anything tangible. And how do I know this? Do I have any inside track to Caesar's plans? Have I received any rumors the way Vital Vegas does? No, I've received nothing. Then how do I know? Well, I don't know for sure. I guess there's a very, very, very small chance that I'll be shocked and that the horseshoe will have a lot of the elements that the original did. And I'll say, wow, I can't believe Caesars did that. Right in center strip, too. But from everything I've seen with what they've done with their other horseshoe properties, which aren't even center strip Vegas, I have to say that's not going to happen. And all other industry observers who have experience with observing such things, such as John Mahaffey, have all essentially said the same thing. So... Don't expect much from this. But why are they doing it? You may wonder why. What's the point of this? Aside from shaking things up and doing things a bit different or maybe giving a a better name to the new home of the World Series. Why are they doing this? Well, that goes back to something we've talked about before. The Bally's name. 
And I've talked about in recent times how the Bally's name is kind of weird and is all over the place. And there is the Bally Corporation that owns it, but that a lot of things with the Bally's brand name don't even have to do with them. One of them was Bally's Las Vegas, which was really nothing to do with Bally's anymore. This was something that was, of course, a Caesars property where they had the rights to use the name, but nothing else because they had already sold the Bally's name uh, some time ago. And they just had a rights to call it Bally's, but other than that, it had nothing to do with Bally's. And this became confusing because there is the Bally Corporation, which does own casinos around the U.S., and they have been rapidly changing the names of a lot of these casinos across the U.S. to Bally's. So this got people really confused, thinking it's associated with the Bally's in Vegas, or even worse, making people think it's a Caesars property, and then they get there and it's not, and they're very disappointed and angry. So the Bally Corporation has been going full speed ahead with changing these casinos they've bought around the country to be called Bally's, but Caesars is like, you know what, we're kind of done with the Bally's brand because all we're doing is giving free advertising to these other casinos. We don't want people looking for Bally's across the country and going because that's not ours. So why are we doing them a favor and making their name synonymous with casinos? We should have people not think about Bally's because all they're doing is going elsewhere. So we need to change this name. Also, because the Bally's name isn't doing much for us. It doesn't mean much in Vegas. What What is Bally's known for, other than being the MGM Grand that had the fire in 1980 that changed its name seven years later? Other than that, what is Bally's known for? It really isn't. Like, you know what Bally's is. You know it's next to Paris. You know it's been there a long time. You know it's Center Strip. But what does Bally's mean? It It doesn't really have any meaning to you. So all the meaning has done is become confusing in recent years and been promoting the competition. And then there's also this weirdness with the Bally's brand where there's Bally sports channels where you can watch uh, regional baseball games and regional basketball games. And again, this has nothing to do with Caesars. In fact, it doesn't have much to do with Bally's. It's something where the name has been bought by these regional channels. So this brand is kind of everywhere now, and yet it doesn't mean all that much. But on the casino side, it is starting to mean a casino that is affiliated with the Bally Corporation. And Caesars didn't want that anymore. So even though they've had a right to use the name, they are deciding, you know what, we don't want this anymore. The Bally Corporation is renaming too many properties Bally's. We don't want to be Bally's anymore. So we've got to change it. So what do they change it to? Well, they have the World Series coming there in 2022, just a few months away. They have this horseshoe name that's been sitting around for 18 years unused. Okay. There you go. Matches perfectly. The World Series was at the Horseshoe, was once owned by the Horseshoe. It's going to be at the Horseshoe again. That's all. Partially because the World Series is there and partially because they've got to dump the Bally's name anyway. It's become time to do that. So here they have a name that's been available all this time that they own, they can use for free. So they're doing it. It all fits together. So I don't blame them for that. I think that's fine that they're changing it. I see why they don't want to be Bally's anymore. I'm surprised they've allowed it to remain as long as they have. They should have changed that name at least a few years ago. And changing it to the Horseshoe, yeah, it's fine. I mean, it's a known name, and they are associated with the World Series. 
this might cause some confusion to people who know the horseshoe as a downtown property. I have to imagine there will probably be some people who remember the horseshoe being downtown and will book the horseshoe not knowing that it's Bally's and will go downtown to Binion's and they'd be surprised that they don't have a reservation there. I guess eventually this will stop happening because think of the MGM Grand becoming Bally's. At some point, people stopped uh, going to the wrong MGM Grand. But that was separated by six years the new MGM Grand and the changing of the name to Bally's of the old MGM Grand. Here it's going to happen very quickly. Now, the horseshoe hasn't been there for 18 years, which is going to help. But I'll tell you what's not going to help. We're going to get to the second part of this year. What's not going to help is Bally's continuing to exist at the Tropicana. And this is completely separate from everything else that is happening with Bally's changing to the horseshoe, except that they wouldn't have been able to do it if Caesars hadn't changed the name of Bally's. So there wouldn't have been two Bally's. That there would not have been. So if Caesars had not made this decision, then the Tropicana would not be changing to Bally's. But once Bally's becomes available again, which it's about to, it's going to be grabbed. So there's some weird stuff going on at the Bally's Corporation. You may have heard about how the Bally Corporation has had its stock jump recently. Did you hear about the Trader Risky, about the Bally stock? I did not hear about the stock. It's imagine though, that all the signs are going to be very new and confusing at these new properties with all this. Yeah, it definitely will. So yeah, the stock went up immediately like 23% because of what was announced. And not, not about the name change, but here's what happened. Totally separate from everything going on with the Bally's turning to Horseshoe. So the chairman of Bally Corporation is named Soo-young Kim, and he's also the uh, managing partner of Standard General. We just lost Trader Ruski. Guess he didn't quite go an hour, but that's okay. Actually, close. Close to an hour. Okay. I guess I just talked too much and <laughs> didn't ask him for his opinion enough. Well, well, that's a go at it alone here unless uh, Calwatt wakes up at some point. So, Soo Young Kim wrote a letter to the board of directors offering to buy the shares that his investment group, Standard General, doesn't already own. So, he's basically buying out the remaining stock, and there's going to be kind of an ownership change there at the Bally Corporation. The letter he wrote offered to buy the shares that they don't already have for $38 each, which is a uh, 30% premium on top of the closing price of that day, which was uh, earlier this week. And this would let Bally shareholders immediately realize an attractive value in cash for their investment, was, which is written in that uh, letter. Standard General already owns more than 20% of the stock in the Bally Corporation and claims that he will easily be able to secure financing for the transaction. This deal would value the Bally Corporation at more than $2 billion. Now, why am I telling you about this whole thing? Well, the Tropicana is in the process of being bought by the Bally Corporation. Tropicana is on the Strip, of course, and it is on the corner of Tropicana Avenue 
and Las Vegas Boulevard. There have been rumblings about Tropicana that it may get wrecked soon. And there's even talk that the Oakland A's might buy the Tropicana and then destroy it and build a baseball field there and move from Oakland to Las Vegas, just like the Raiders did. But that was something they just threw around. I don't know if the Oakland A's are ever going to move to Vegas or if they're going to stay. But the Bally Corporation had already bought or have a deal to buy the Tropicana, which is expected to close sometime in 2022. And they say they're going to do something with that property. They're either going to do a major renovation or they're going to wreck it and build something new. There was even a possibility that, as I said, they'd sell it to the A's and wreck it. The stock ended up jumping to $36 from this news. It was up uh, $6.62 from slightly less than $30 to $35.85. Remember, he was saying that he was going to buy the remaining shares at $38 each. That's why the stock went up from near $30 to uh, almost 36 Bally's does not currently have any properties in Las Vegas. They have properties in Nevada, but that's in Lake Tahoe. That's where they have Bally's Lake Tahoe, which is the former Mount Blue, which is actually once the former Caesars, but it has nothing to do with Caesars. They also have properties in New Jersey, Mississippi, and Colorado. In April 2021 is when the deal was announced that they were going to buy the Tropicana for $308 million. And the non-land assets for the Tropicana, that is, uh, that everything that's there that isn't the land it sits on, that was $150 million. And then they were going to lease that land from a separate company called Gaming and Leisure Properties for 50 years at $10.5 million per year. And they claimed at that time, this was back in April of 2021, that sometime in early 2022, which we're in right now, that they're expecting the transaction to close. However, it's not known if that's really going to happen. Anyway, let's get back to the name change. Given that it looks like Bally's is going to be somewhat under new ownership. I'm talking about the Bally Corporation, not uh, Bally's that Caesars has. Sorry if I'm confusing you with all this. It, it sounds very confusing. The chairman of the Bally Corporation, who's going to be the head of the new ownership group, Su Young Kim, told the Las Vegas Review-Journal that they're going to toss around a few ideas of what to do with it as I said, they may knock it down and build something new. They may do a major renovation. He said, we're open to it all. Whatever it is, we're going to maximize value. However, the news that has to do with the naming is that he claims they are definitely going to rename it to Bally's. That whatever they decide to do, as long as there's a hotel casino name, a hotel casino over there, it's going to be Bally's. We absolutely intend to use that. That's what Soo Young Kim, the chairman of the Bally Corporation, said. And that's because the name just is going to get freed up. Now, this can't happen until it becomes Horseshoe Las Vegas, the former Bally's, of course, but 
once it's no longer called Bally's, then they can do what they want with the name. Then the Bally Corporation can rename the Tropicana Bally's and it's theirs and they don't have to pay anything to do it because it's their brand. The Tropicana is an old hotel. It was built in 1957. And while at the time it was called palatial and fantastically beautiful in reviews, it of course is now a has-been property and not known as one of the premier properties in Vegas by any stretch. It still has a pretty good location, but even that is not center strip anymore. That's kind of southern strip. And yeah, it's been renovated, but it's it's already looking old and run down. And that's not somewhere people typically want to stay unless it's cheap. It's not clear what they're going to do with it. It does have history, but so do a lot of properties in Vegas that have been wrecked. So that doesn't buy you a lot in Vegas. I just mentioned that recently when I did my segment on the Flamingo in last week's Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. The Tropicana was in the James Bond film Diamonds Are Forever back in 1971 with Sean Connery. It had some mob issues back in the 70s and 80s, as many of the uh, casinos did back then. Of course, it's all uh, very much in the past now. The uh, Tropicana posted a $19 million loss in 2014. They got beat pretty hard by the financial crash of 2008 that really affected Vegas badly. Just people weren't coming to Vegas to gamble anymore because nobody had money to gamble (laughs) after the financial and housing crash of 2008. So that really took a beating to the city of Las Vegas, and Tropicana was one of those that was beaten. So they lost $44 million in 2010. They still were losing uh, $19 million in 2014. A company called Penn National then took it over. They bought it in 2015 for $360 million. They uh, since have sold this to the Bally Corporation, but as I said, that has not officially closed yet. So Penn National is still the owner at the moment. Uh, Tropicana, of course, took a hit like the rest of the strip casinos during the 2020 pandemic where they were closed for a few months and people just didn't want to come after it reopened for a while. It's going to be called Bally's most likely. This isn't going to happen right away, but it could happen in the year 2022 because as soon as the name is relinquished, if that has happened and if the Bally Corporation's purchase of the Tropicana has happened, if both of these things have happened, then probably very soon after that, the Tropicana is going to be renamed to Bally's, even if they don't demolish it immediately. It may be renamed Bally's and then demolished and rebuilt. But I have to imagine, unless they're demolishing it right away, it's probably going to be renamed Bally's. And definitely, if they're not going to demolish it, it's going to be renamed Bally's very quickly, provided that name is available at that time. It's possible that the sale will close before the renaming of Bally's to the horseshoe takes place, in which case they will have to wait. There cannot be two Bally's in Vegas. So Young Kim said, it's hard to be a national gaming company, referring to Bally Corporation, without a presence in Las Vegas. I agree. (laughs) The reason that's true, you may say, well, why does it really matter if he's got successful corporation, uh, successful casinos elsewhere 
do they really need one in Vegas? I mean, it might be nice to have one in Vegas, but do they really need one in Vegas? Can't they be successful without a casino in Vegas? Why is he saying it's so important to have a casino in Vegas? Well, where do people like to go? Where do people always want to eventually go if they're gamblers, no matter where they live? So if you live on the East Coast, maybe you go to Atlantic City, or you go to Foxwoods, or you go to one of many other casinos in the East, and that's what you typically go to. But do you have no desire to go to Vegas? Probably not. Probably you do have a desire to go to Vegas. It may be a pain in the ass, taking a flight and all that, but you probably still like to go to Vegas every so often because that is really the mecca of gambling. That always has been the center of all gambling. So people like to go to Las Vegas, and when they're in Las Vegas, they want to stay at a property that is associated with the properties they go to most around them. So what the Bally Corporation wants is to have these smaller local casinos and then people from these areas that like these casinos, when they fly to Vegas to do their Vegas trips, they say, oh, well, I want to go to a Bally property in Vegas because I want the same status. I have a high card at the Bally's Corporation. All these Bally's casinos, that's where I have status. That's where I get my comps. That's where I get my cheap rooms, my free rooms. That's where I get the perks. So that's where I want to stay in Vegas. It's very natural. But right now, if they go to Vegas, there's nowhere to stay. They have to stay at a competitor's property because there simply is not a Bally property in Vegas. And the Bally's in Vegas is not a Bally's property. So that is why he needs to have a presence in Las Vegas. That is why they bought the Tropicana. And they didn't know, probably, that they'd be getting the Bally's name this soon, but they must have thought this is possible because they're not idiots. They've been renaming their casinos Bally's. So why would Bally's in Vegas want to keep that name for much longer? They had to know this. Because there's a lot of Bally's now. In fact, every property they have, aside from the Hard Rock in Biloxi, Mississippi, which they they kept that name because they like the Hard Rock name, and a lot of people know it. But aside from that, they have a bunch of Bally's around the country. Bally's Arbor Hope Park, Bally's Atlantic City, Bally's Blackhawk, Bally's Dover, Bally's Evansville, Bally's Kansas City, Bally's Lake Tahoe, Bally's Quad Cities, Bally's Shreveport, Bally's Tiverton, Bally's Twin, Twin River Lincoln, Bally's Vicksburg. So they have all these small market casinos called Bally's now. They've renamed them all except the one in Biloxi, which is called the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino Biloxi. That's the only one that is not called Bally's. So why would Caesars want to continue promoting the Bally's name. They don't. And the Bally Corporation knew that. But, of course, it was up to Caesars to give up the name because they had a right to use it for as long as they wanted. They're not being forced out of this name. They did not have a end time for this name. They had rights to it for as long as they wanted it. But they couldn't do anything else with it. There was only for that property. The Bally's name had to stay on Bally's Las Vegas in the existing property if they were going to continue using it. They couldn't just start naming other properties around the country Bally's or even other ones in Vegas. So it either had to stay on that property or they had to give it up. So they've decided to give it up. So expect some confusion once this occurs. I don't think I've ever seen this before where a casino changes names 
and the same year that name moves to another property. I don't believe I've ever seen that. Because if you remember when the horseshoe was bought and it just became Binion's, it's not like a horseshoe appeared anywhere. That's been 18 years and the horseshoe's just coming back now. So I've never seen a name move over the same year. The only thing we've seen like that is MGM Grand, but that was like six years later. And six years is a long time. People had six years to get used to no MGM Grand. Six years to get used to that MGM Grand is Bally's. Also, there were fewer hotels in Vegas at that time, so it was easier to keep track of. So by the time the MGM Grand opened, the one you know today, people were very familiar that MGM Grand was no longer on the corner of Flamingo and Las Vegas. Someone asked on Twitter, are they going to change the name of Tropicana Avenue? Is it going to be called Bally's Avenue or Bally's Boulevard? Answer, no. Why? Because the Bally Corporation does not have any control over the street name, nor is the city of Las Vegas likely to be willing to change it. Tropicana Avenue is a major street in Las Vegas, and this would disrupt a whole lot to change the street name. It's not trivial to change a street name. And I know this happens, especially when they want to change a street name to honor some historical figure, especially someone uh, from some sort of uh, civil rights movement. Like you've seen streets change to Martin Luther King Avenue in a number of cities and so they'll do that in some places to honor somebody. But something like this, just because a casino changes names, they're not going to rename the street. For example, there's still Desert Inn Road in Las Vegas. Where's the Desert Inn? Anyone know where the Desert Inn is? Well, that's, it's kind of in the wind, I guess. <laughs> uh, the wind is the former Desert Inn though they wrecked the Desert Inn, but it's the same location. But there's no more Desert Inn, but they didn't change the name of the street. What about Sands Avenue? Sands, Sands Avenue, which becomes Spring Mountain, but on the east side of the Strip is called Sands Avenue. There's no more Sands. The Sands is the Venetian. There's still a Sands Convention Center, but that's about it. But there's no more Sands Casino, but there's still a Sands Avenue. So they're just not changing the street names. The street names are the street names. If these were small streets, then yeah, they might change it because it doesn't make a major impact. But there's no way a major street like Tropicana Avenue is changing names. Similarly, even if the Flamingo were to cease to exist, remember I mentioned there was a possibility at some point that they're going to wreck that whole block and build a mega resort like they talked about in the late 2000s. They're not changing the name of Flamingo Road. So these are things that are going to be permanent there in Las Vegas. That is not going to change. There is one more thing you should keep in mind. If you're going to the World Series of Poker this year, you might run right into the construction because they're going to be making a lot of renovations to Bally's in the spring of 2022. That is the plan. The plan is to start right around late May, just like the World Series of Poker. So if you are going to book a room in the Bally slash Horseshoe because you're playing there, which is probably an attractive place to book a room because of the convenience, I would suggest that before you let them place you in a room that you ask, 
which room is going to have the construction noise. And if they say, well, yeah, you're going to be kind of close to it, then you say, nope, I will move. And this is especially important because construction takes place during the day. They're not going to do construction at 3 in the morning. They're going to do construction usually starting around 7, 7.30 a.m., maybe 8 a.m., and continue until about 7 p.m., and then they're going to stop. So if you are waking up early and leaving the hotel room, then it's not that bad. But if you're at the World Series of Poker, you're not waking up at 7 in the morning. In fact, in between days you play, like let's say you have an event where you you play it, you bust, and you, your next event is two days away. Uh, you might sleep a lot during the next day. So how would you like to try to catch some Z's during the day at Bally's to hear the sound of uh, hammering and jackhammers as they are renovating these rooms? Would you like that? Or sawing or drilling? Would you like to hear that when you're trying to get your sleep for the World Series of Poker? I don't think you would like that very much. So make sure to know before you stay there if you're going to be in a room near the construction and if there's going to be any noise. And if there is, I suggest you change rooms. Because what you don't want is a noisy room that's noisy during the daytime hours when you're there to play the World Series. Because the World Series of Poker goes late. Often day one will finish after 2 a.m. World Series of Poker players do a lot of sleeping during the day, myself included. So you don't want to be in a place where there's going to be a lot of noise during the day. Very important, if they're going to begin the construction around that time, which is what they claim, then do not stay in a room which is near the construction. In fact, you may want to stay in a different hotel entirely, depending upon the circumstance. It's something I'm going to check on for sure. I'm not sure if I'm staying there, but if I do, I'm definitely not going to stay in a construction room. So keep that in mind. They have announced they're going to do the construction right around the time the World Series is happening. 775-372-8355, which translates to 775-FRAUD55. You can text me. You can call me. For the 916, Trader Ruski nailed it on the 499 ham and steak. Let's take a call from this person who was texting me before. Caller, hey. hello. Hey, it's uh, Desert Runner. Yes, Desert Runner. So what would you like to say? Um, One story I was waiting for you to, I don't think it's on your agenda tonight, but it comes up every, what, two, three years? The speed bullet train from Victorville to Las Vegas is now back up again. And I don't know, I, like the guys in Vegas, they think it's like a good deal. The people in California don't like it. I don't know if you want to put a take on that or if it's ever going to happen or what's your spin on it or you don't like it or you do like it. I almost covered that again. I did see that. I considered it the last minute to throw it on the agenda and I decided not to, but I, I might do okay. it next week. I, w I was looking at it. But for those of you who are wondering what he's talking about, there is a planned train, a high-speed train from Victorville, which is uh, north of Los Angeles. It's uh, not really in the L.A. area, and that's one of the big criticisms, to Las Vegas. And the problem is Victorville is kind of right where the traffic finally lightens up. So on like a Friday, a lot of the drive is getting to Victorville, and a lot of the criticism has been who's going to go through all the traffic to get to Victorville just to park their car and then take a train the rest of the way. They're going to say, well, I've, I've driven this far. I've taken this long in the car. I'm going to finish it off for the final you know, two and a half hours of the drive. So that that was the criticism of this, that no one's going to want to take it unless you live in the Victorville area, which isn't a major metro area by any means. It's, it's kind of like a 
medium-sized town. There's one other. Uh, uh, there's one other factor. I think it's going to connect to Rancho Cucamonga as well. But I don't. But I don't know if it's going to be like Ontario Airport for the uh, you know airport to Vegas. I don't know about that. But uh, I've heard Rancho Cucamonga multiple times over the years. So I don't know if it's all interchange or they're just focusing on one end or not. I'm not sure. Yeah, I wasn't sure about this either when I read it. So for this to be anywhere near successful, it has to be easily accessible from most of the L.A. area. It can't be something even as far as Rancho Cucamonga. Yeah. It's just too far. It's just and, and once you have the point where people are driving a long way to get to the train, they're not going to want to take the train. You're only going to want to take the train if you don't have to drive very far to get to it, and then you can just sit in the train and relax. If you're going to drive something like 30%, 40%, 50% of the way, time-wise, I'm not talking about distance-wise, then you're just going to say, screw it. Why would I stop and take a train at this point? I'm just going to keep driving. And, and the guys in Vegas are arguing with me. Uh, they think what's an alternative. I said, you know what? Southwest Airlines, I mean, they're going to push back. They'll, they'll do flights for 25 bucks, 30 bucks. I always, uh, a side note, I always like flying to Vegas out of Ontario. And by the time you peak and you start to descend, they're bringing a drink to you. By the time your drink comes to you, you're always, just already descending. And I bet, I bet Southwest will just push, all the airlines will push back and they'll undercut this train, you know, because you still have to get a rental car or an Uber when you get there. Yeah, it's true. So it it's does like, have some similarities. The, tra- I, I, the train and the, and the flight do have some similarities in, in, in uh, who's going to be going there and yeah. using those methods. Either you're going to go there in your own car or you're not. And if you're not, then maybe you just want to take a flight. It's faster and uh as you said, it might be cheaper if the airlines feel threatened by this. Yeah, they might just dump it at a low price to kill the train. I could easily see that. And like I told you the past, for me, the drive there is half the, the adventure. I'll pull over and go down a uh, adventure road or something, and that's why you always have a gun and a good flashlight, man. You just out. I go out in nowhere in the desert and check stuff out. But uh, that's all I want to say. Thanks for taking my call. All right. Thanks, Desert Runner. Yeah, I mean, I agree with him there that I don't mind the drive to Vegas. You know, there's uh, a certain peacefulness to it, especially when you know it well. I don't mind it. There's some people who complain, oh, it's so long, oh, you're just going through the desert. But, you know, you get to know the area and you get to know where you like to stop. Or sometimes you don't want to stop, sometimes you drive all the way through. But it's something that's not a stressful drive. And... For that reason, I never have any desire to fly there. Okay, some other texts we got from the 505. I thought I was an hour late to the show, but caught the beginning of the first topic. Well done, Druff. Says somebody happy I was late. And the rest are uh, personal texts to me that I won't read. So that's all we got for now. But you can text me during the show, 775-372-8355. Or before or after the show. Whatever, you can text me anytime. But the ones during the show are the ones I will read on the air. Okay, so we're going to move on to our next topic, and that is some breaking news that just dropped today that Mike Matisau is going to be purchasing an interest in a Texas poker room. Yes, another Texas poker topic. We can't stop talking about it on this show. Every week, Texas. But yes, Mike Matisau is buying an interest in a Texas poker room, and he is leaving Las Vegas and moving to Texas. Mattis explained that he had the desire to do this 
about a month ago when, or I guess it's a month and a half ago now, when Johnny Chan's poker room collapsed in Houston and couldn't pay anybody. And they closed their doors and there were like a million bucks worth of unredeemed chips that people thought may not be able to be redeemed. And people were very upset at Johnny. Johnny even uh, talked to Mattisau, not on the show, but he talked to Mattisau off the show and Mattisau relayed what he said. But Mattisau said at the time that he was considering buying the poker room, presumably with investors backing him. I don't think he has a ton of cash, but that Mattisau really wanted to buy into that poker room that had collapsed under Johnny Chan and, in fact, run it himself. And people were kind of laughing at that, saying, hey, you know, Mike, we love you, but we don't know if you're really suited to run poker operations. Just because you're a good poker player and just because you're kind of an interesting guy, that doesn't mean that we really want you running poker operations. It's a totally different skill set. And I kind of agree as much as I like Mike Mattisell. And, and he and I get along very well and always have. But still, uh, I could understand people being concerned about him running a poker room. But anyway, that didn't happen. Someone else who was unknown to the poker world bought it. Unknown meaning we know who he is by name, but it's someone who's not a known figure in poker prior to buying Johnny Chan's 88 Social there in Houston after it failed. So that was the end of that possible purchase. So no one really was thinking about Mattisau buying a room at that point because the only one he talked about buying was bought by somebody else. But indeed, Mike Mattisau has bought an interest in a Dallas poker room, and he announced it on his podcast tonight. Now, you may say, hmm, that's kind of funny. So first you have Doug Polk buying an interest in that room in Austin, and that's the one called The Lodge that's in the greater Austin area. And he bought that uh, interest along with two vloggers, Brad Owen and Andrew Nimi. Now we have Mattisau doing something very similar. So you have these name poker pros who are buying interest in these Texas rooms. Now, when Doug did it, it was before the shit hit the fan in Dallas with Texas Cardhouse receiving this notice that their certificate of occupancy has been revoked and that they're not going to be able to stay in business. Now, they're planning to fight it and they claim they're going to keep operating and that they're going to have to be forced shut down and that this could take a very long time in court. And in the meantime, they can keep operating, they're claiming. But they've also conceded that there is a possibility that Texas Cardhouse in Dallas is going to cease to exist and they're assuring everybody they're going to pay out their chips if that happens. And I believe them because they have other locations and only the Dallas one is being threatened with this closure. But this has made all the rooms in Dallas concerned because not only did Texas Cardhouse get this notice, but so did Shuffle 214. Shuffle 214 is another card room in Dallas and they got the same notice. Now, if you remember, we made a phone call last week or shall I say uh Dwight Thornwood made a phone call to a Dallas poker room and asked if they had gotten the notice about the closure, and they did not. So we called, uh, if you remember, Poker House Dallas, and that's when Dwight Thornwood asked the guy who kind of sounded like he was the owner, the way he was talking. We didn't ask if he was the owner. It kind of sounded like he was, even though it was like one in the morning there. And he even said we could bring a greasy hamburger to the table and eat the whole thing, which surprised me. But anyway, we called Poker House Dallas and we talked to them last week 
And I had no idea that Poker House Dallas would become a story this week, aside from maybe they'd get a notice too. But the guy on the phone insisted that he did not get a notice, that they did not have their certificate of occupancy revoked, even though Texas Card House definitely got one of those revocations, and uh, later Shuffle 214 said that they did too. So what happened to Poker House Dallas? Why didn't they get one? I don't know, unless they're not telling the truth. But the guy really sounded... I don't know. He kind of sounded sincere to me. If I had to guess, I'd say he was telling the truth. Anyway, Poker House Dallas is not in the news because they got one of these notices. They're in the news because Mike Manisau is buying a piece of it. Now, he telegraphed this a little bit because he was all over his Twitter for the past week talking about how great the games were and how crazy the games were and how wild the games were and how there's these huge pots going on there and how Texas poker is so good, blah, 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 blah. But he went out there and was playing a lot at Poker House Dallas. And he kept just tweeting after tweeting after tweeting with the name Poker House Dallas. And in hindsight, we see why. Because he was trying to promote it because... He either had already agreed to buy it or was seriously considering doing so. So this was kind of a backdoor way of promoting it. Anyway, he only announced the whole thing tonight that he's going to be buying it. And this is on his podcast, The Mouthpiece. This is episode number 79. And I'm going to play you the portion, which is about nine minutes in, where Mattisau is talking about this purchase and how he ended up doing it, how he went from wanting to buy Johnny Chan's old room to buying an interest in this. And then we will talk about what really is going to be the situation there. Before I play it to you, Poker House Dallas is located very close to Dallas Love Field Airport, which is the secondary airport of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Of course, DFW, which is known as Dallas-Fort Worth, that is the big airport in the Dallas area. But Love Field is the secondary airport where you can fly into. In fact, I remember when I flew to Dallas, I had the choice. I could have flown into either, and I happened to choose DFW. But here is the mouthpiece recorded tonight, just a few hours ago. This is Mike Mattisau, and this is about the nine-minute mark. You can find episode 79 on his YouTube channel if you want to watch the full episode, which is about two hours. Oh, um... Speaking of Dallas, uh, for all of you that don't know that I was in Dallas all week, um, I uh, went down to Dallas to check out a card room called Dallas Poker House uh, with the intent of possibly buying it and um, taking it over and um even though uh, the uh, some other car room down there got their license pulled, uh, I did a lot of research, and, and this car room is a standalone car room in a different district with their own parking, and it doesn't look like this car room's gonna get its license pulled. So, um, yours truly uh, decided to uh, go all in on the Dallas Poker House and will be moving from Las Vegas to Dallas as soon as I get back from Super Bowl weekend. Okay, that's obviously very soon. 
And it's funny how he keeps calling it by the wrong name. It's actually called Poker House Dallas. It's funny he keeps calling it the Dallas Poker House when he's the one buying it. In fact, that even confused me. I'm like, wait a minute. Wasn't that Poker House Dallas? Like, I listened to this tonight, and I'm like, wait a minute. Did I get this wrong last week? And no, I Googled it. It's Poker House Dallas, not Dallas Poker House. But okay, whatever. He says that he doesn't think they're going to get this notice of the certificate of occupancy being revoked. And he wasn't totally clear about why. But I think I can deduce from what he's saying why he feels it's not going to happen there and why it hasn't happened there yet. And by the way, this makes me believe even more it hasn't happened yet because he would definitely know. It's one thing for Dwight Thornwood to make a prank call at one in the morning and try to get them to admit to it. But Dwight Thornwood, you know, who is he? Just some guy on the phone. But Mattisau buying the place, obviously this would be disclosed to him. So unless he is covering this up too, I believe they have not gotten such a notice. Now, he talked about how it's a standalone and they have their own parking. Now, what does that mean? He's trying to say this isn't in a strip mall. He's trying to say that it is not going to affect nearby businesses, whereas the others are part of strip malls and that there could be complaints from neighboring businesses that are in the same strip mall that share the same parking lot, that it's a nuisance, that they are experiencing problems. So it seems like Mattisau feels that this is less of an issue of the city of Dallas just hating poker and more of an issue that other businesses that are sharing the space are complaining that they hate it and it's causing them a lot of hassle and trouble. What kind of trouble could it be? Well, just could be undesirable characters milling around there 24 hours a day. Maybe some have uh, vandalized nearby businesses. Maybe some of them have vandalized cars parked at these businesses. Maybe people just feel uncomfortable walking around there with the element that frequents card rooms. So it's very possible that there have been complaints from the businesses sharing these strip malls that say, hey, we had no idea when we signed our leases that poker was going to be allowed here. We thought this is illegal. So what what the hell is this doing the strip mall with us? And the landlord is saying, F you, hey, can you guys do something about this and shut them down? This should be illegal gambling, right? And it's possible that finally they got the ear of someone in the Dallas city government that decided, yeah, let's do something about this and sent notices to Shuffle 214 and to Texas Cardhouse but not to Poker House Dallas. And I did wonder, why would they send notices to two of them, but not to Poker House Dallas? Because there's basically three card rooms in Dallas. There's Poker House Dallas, Texas Card House, and Shuffle 214. So how come two of the three got it? And if Poker House Dallas was the one who didn't, then that does start to look like that there is a specific reason why the other two did that it wasn't just a general assault on poker, which, by the way, would be good news for all the poker rooms in Texas because this would mean that the effort is to just make it to where the poker isn't disruptive, not just to do away with poker completely. The former is much better than the latter. So Mattisau feels from his research, and I don't know if he did this himself, I don't know if he's just told this by the existing owners, I don't know if the existing owners are just bullshitting him so he, he would buy it off them. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of ways this could have gone. But I can kind of understand the point and the fact that Poker House Dallas appears not to have gotten one of these revocations of their certificate of occupancy while the other two did does seem to speak to, hey, you know, maybe if you're a standalone club, 
that isn't affecting other businesses at the same address, then maybe Dallas is still cool with it. That's, I think, what he's saying. And I think when he's talking about it being like a different area, I think what he might be referring to is this isn't kind of a, a commercial industrial area. It's right by the airport. And, you know, there's always the jokes about strip clubs being right by the airport in a lot of cities. And part of the reason for that is that they some cities will only allow strip clubs in what is already seen as a kind of undesirable area of town. So places right by the airport tend not to be residential because of the noise. So they tend to be industrial, sometimes commercial too, but usually not residential. So you don't have the issue so much with strip clubs bringing in a bad element. And then for that reason, some cities will allow strip clubs, but only by the airport. So this may be the same case with poker, that they're allowing poker by the airport, but they don't want it just sitting in the middle of Dallas in a strip mall. So that may be what he's talking about, that this is something that's less likely to be screwed with by the city. And he might be right. Um, it's uh, me and uh, my friend Jason and my friend Todd are in a joint venture. Oh, uh, shit. I didn't know he'd say that. Well, I, I guess that uh, yeah, I guess that uh, gives it away. I didn't want you guys to know, but... Uh, yeah, I'm his partner in this, and uh, I'm moving to Texas also. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know which Todd it is. It is not me. I am not the Todd he's talking about. I'm not moving to Texas. I'm not going to own a card room. To turn the Dallas Poker House into the number one card room in all of Texas. Uh, I I believe what I bring to the table and my experience in poker uh, will be able to do this. We plan on having live stream three days a week. Um, I played in a bunch of private games when I was out there, met a lot of people, uh, played in some of the biggest games I've ever seen and um, uh, we're gonna. I talked to them, and they're, we're gonna be spreading a lot of the of the live streams onto Dallas um, Poker House Live. So uh, that's what's going on with them. I am uh, very, very, very excited to take. What does LeBron used to say? Take his talents to South Beach. I'm going to take my talents to Dallas, Texas. God, I can't believe I'm leaving Vegas. I've lived here since I was 10 years old. Um, but- yeah, that's something people don't realize about Mattisau, that he's a Las Vegas native. I mean, yeah, he wasn't born there, but this is a guy who didn't move there because he wanted to be a professional gambler. This is a guy who grew up in Las Vegas, as he said, since he was 10. And the truth is, most Vegas poker pros are not originally from Vegas. They moved to Vegas when they wanted to become a professional gambler. But Mattisau is one of the unusual ones who actually came from Vegas. And now he's leaving. But I really felt... I'll let you guys in on a little bit of info. I mean, I, I talked to you guys about two podcasts ago talking about 
looking into buying Johnny Chan's room. That ended up being a really bad situation in which I passed on it. I, um, I think that was about six weeks ago. I then went on a joint venture um, scouring through Texas of what was going to be best for me and for what I think would be best to make the most money long term. Okay, so let me stop right there. Interesting that he had discussions with Johnny Chan about buying that room prior to the owner that ended up actually buying it. I assume that Mattisau probably talked about it first and then backed away. And I think the bad situation he's talking about is the fact that there's probably like more than a million bucks worth of chips that were unredeemed and that players were going to expect to be able to redeem that. And then you have the worry that all that's going to happen is these players are going to come in, redeem the chips on your own dime because it's not your fault this happened. So you're going to be cleaning up the mess of Johnny Chan and Associates and then they'll never come back. They'll just be relieved to get their money out of this dump and then they will take their action over to Legends down the street. So I think that's exactly what he was worried about, that people are just going to cash out and leave. So he decided, you know what? I think I'd like to buy an interest in a room that does not have a reputation issue, that does not have outstanding chips needing to be cashed. I'd like to just kind of buy into one that's going okay. As I priced everything out, what it was going to cost to open a room, where, where we were looking to open a room, the best place to go, did I want to start from scratch? I I got a, a call from um, the Dallas Poker House. Or in fact, hold on, guys. Put a little. Uh, He's putting on a uh, Dallas Poker, Poker House. House. No, not uh, Dallas Poker House. Poker House Dallas, Dallas hat. And um, they were interested in uh, in doing something with me. Um, the fact that I uh, I have uh, you know. A lot of people with a lot of money looking to invest and then do something good. Uh, I kind of looked down at their offer. Now, I went down there really not having any idea what uh, we were looking for. So listen to that part. He said that he has people with a lot of money. So Mike Manisau in this situation, I have to imagine, is kind of the face of this purchase and that the money behind the purchase is mostly coming from these other guys, this Todd and whoever else he's bringing down there. I forgot the other person's name. But these guys are probably nobodies in poker. They may not even be into poker very much at all. They must be somewhat to, to know Mattisell, but these could be just rich guys or semi-rich guys who would be willing to buy into a room with Mattisell being the face of it and maybe even doing the work for it. And Mattisell is the known name and Mattisau will be the one they promote as being associated with it, much like Doug Polk is the face of the Lodge now that he bought into it. But it kind of sounds like this is going to be a full purchase where the Lodge, Doug bought in, and the other vloggers there, they bought in as well, but they didn't completely buy full ownership from everything I could understand there. This kind of sounds like that Mike's investors there, plus whatever money he's kicking in, are going to be buying the whole thing. And that he's talking about the price that was given to them, and we haven't gotten to the rest of the story. But that's what it sounds like to me, that they really are taking full ownership of it. 
even though the money is probably not mostly coming from Mike. You know what I mean? What, what I didn't know if this was a dump, if it needed a lot of work. I had no idea. And as it turns out, uh, the owners put cl- over $3 million into this uh, into this uh, card room. It's truly, and I'm not saying it because I now own a pretty big piece and that I'll be running it, but it, it's the nicest standalone card room I've, I've ever been to. And I've been all over the world. So um, that's a big statement. Uh, so... You know, I uh, I kind of fell for what I was seeing. I I saw the poten- saw the potential, and I I spent the week there doing some meetup games and uh, negotiating uh, what we can do as far as for myself. Um, okay, that's an interesting statement. I spent the week negotiating what we can do as far as for myself. Now, what does that mean? If he's one of the owners, why is he there negotiating with what's going to be the former owners what he can do? You could say maybe he was negotiating with the people putting up most of the money, but it kind of sounds like he was negotiating also with the existing owners. This is my guess from the whole thing. So he brings these two, maybe more than two guys, but I'm guessing these two guys, he brings them down there. And they've got a bunch of money that they're willing to spend on this Poker House Dallas, which he claims they just spent $3 million renovating. So it sounds like a good deal of money is going to be changing hands here. And that Mike Matisau, I can tell you, without even looking at his bank statements, which I haven't, but without needing to look at them, I can tell you he doesn't have a whole lot of cash at the moment. Because Mike Matisau is someone who has never been good with money. He has a very hard time holding on to a lot of money. He has bad bankroll management skills. And he's admitted this many times. I'm not talking trash here or giving away his secrets. I I think you probably are aware that Mike Matisau doesn't have the best bankroll management skills. And in fact, in some of these games he's been playing in recently, it's been uh, assumed that Phil Helmuth, who is a good friend of his, has been putting him in. In fact, I, I know that Phil has even admitted putting him into games. So Mike Matisau isn't showing up there with millions of dollars behind him. And you even heard him say in this that he's bringing guys in with a lot of money. That Not that he's coming with a lot of money, that he's bringing guys in with a lot. But when he's talking about what can be done for him, picture this. And again, this is just me speculating. Mike hasn't told me any of this. And if he did tell me things, unless he told me I can tell the public, then I, I wouldn't say it because... Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't show him disrespect like that. We've always had a good relationship. These are just my guesses. So I just want to let you know that Mike didn't tell me these things. I haven't even discussed any of this with him. Though maybe I can try. I, maybe I can uh, start a conversation and ask him what he'd like to reveal to the Poker Fraud Alert audience or maybe even come on this show. I actually talked to him not too long ago in uh, direct messages on Twitter. We had a long conversation. So this is my guess, is that Mike Matisau is bringing his name and notoriety to the table he also is going to be an active manager there now i just said mike mattisau may not be good at running a poker room because it's a different skill set than being a good poker player or being an interesting personality on twitter but i will say this mike mattisau is an accessible personality he doesn't walk around with his nose in the air he's not arrogant in the way that like 
he doesn't feel he's too good to talk to people or too good to hobnob with the average poker player. Where some poker pros, I won't say any names, but there are some poker pros out there who are very arrogant and see themselves as above the unwashed masses that play at the table with them and they try to have as little interaction with these people as possible and they they hang around with other fellow big name pros and basically uh want nothing to do with the average poker player that's not mike Mike mattisau so he would be good in the sense that i could totally see him relating well to the players there you can come down to a room where he's actively running and managing it and in it he'll talk to you he'll hang out with you he'll uh I don't know if he'll play in the games, but he, he's someone that you can feel like you can meet and get to know, whereas other pros, I would even say Doug Polk maybe, though I'm not sure. I know he's been going and playing a lot, but uh, it's kind of a different vibe, even with Doug Polk, who I know has been making himself accessible at the Lodge. With Mike, I kind of picture a different vibe where he's really just going to you know, blend in with the people there. And... I could see that being a selling point. I could see this being a plus. Now, I would hope that Mike has some people helping him who are used to running poker rooms and who are experienced in all of this because he doesn't have any experience from that side. And, you know, he might from a long, long time ago. I'm forgetting if part of his story was, I think it was. I think he did work at some point in a poker room, but it's been a very long time. I mean, ever since I've known him, which is like almost 20 years he was a poker pro. He was a poker pro before me. So whatever experience he had was a very long time ago. And I don't think it was any kind of a managerial fashion. So this will be something new for him. And, and hopefully he has somebody who can assist him with this. But as far as like the face of the room and someone who's going to be there that is willing to just interact with a regular guy in that way he is a good choice to run it so he probably was talking with them about what percentage ownership he's going to get and what salary he's going to be paid because it's one thing to own something it's another thing to work there for free you can both be a partial owner and an employee so he was probably discussing, and again, this is all speculation on my part, I, this is with no inside information, but he was probably discussing, hey, even though I'm not bringing a whole lot of cash to the table that's coming from my investors I'm bringing here, what am I going to get paid for being here on a day-to-day basis? And also, what percentage ownership am I going to get for being the face of this? Because he can say, I'm not bringing you a lot of cash, but I'm bringing you my name and my notoriety and my following. And that's something that is valuable. And so there's probably negotiations back and forth of what he's going to get out of this. And this isn't uncommon. A lot of times when there is some sort of a celebrity owner to some sort of business, the, the celebrity owner doesn't put any money in. The celebrity owner puts in their name and likeness Usually the celebrity owner isn't managing it day-to-day, and here it sounds like Mattisau is going to be doing that. But even without the day-to-day management, just the name and likeness can be worth a lot if it's believed that the celebrity being associated with that business is going to attract people. That's why a lot of businesses that are associated with celebrity, the celebrity has very, very little to actually do with running it. Mike 
will have to do with running it, so this is where we have a big difference. But even without that, it's important to know that he doesn't necessarily have to bring much money to the table. And he may also be saying to them, hey, look, I'm bringing you not only myself and my name and my following, but I'm also bringing to you these investors who wouldn't be coming to you if I didn't find them. And also, I'm going to be managing it day to day. So what do I get out of all this? What am I going to get? That's probably what the discussion has been. And they probably finally came to terms. With that said, uh, we do have a $250,000 free roll that runs from February 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th. Those are four flights. And also February 18th, 19th, no, 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th, which are four more day one flights. So if anybody wants to go down to the Texas card house, not the Texas card house, I say that again, I'll kill myself, to the Dallas poker house. <laughs> Oops. See, this is where you need someone grabbing the show afterwards and editing it. I would totally have edited that out if this was my show. But it's up there. That's up there right now on the YouTube. I'll give him credit that he doesn't uh, take these gaffes out of there. He, he accidentally advertised the competition. <laughs> now, if Mattisau's lucky, and maybe this is part of the reason that he was interested in Poker House Dallas, and some of you may not be thinking of this, maybe Texas Card House and Shuffle 214 will cease to exist. Yes. They will have a monopoly. So this may be a good thing that these notices are being served. Some say, Mattisau, you're an idiot. Some say, Mattisau, how could you be buying into a Dallas area room with this going on? And he may say, or he may be thinking, well, I'm going to be buying in with this going on at the competition but not the one I'm buying into. So if those rooms get subtracted from the market, that will really increase the business of the one remaining room, won't it? So I bet that was on his mind as well. Uh, they go down, want to go to the down of the Dallas Poker House um, and take a shot at $250,000 in free money, and it is a free roll. Um Jump on down. I will uh, show you uh, dates. Uh, like I said, when they start, I will show you. I'll be showing you um, structure sheets, and I'll have that out by the end of the week. So there it is. I mean, uh, when you go down to the Dallas um, Poker House, uh, the only thing you'll be required is to pay a ten dollar membership and the tournament will be free for you with $250,000. So that's just the beginning. Uh, they This tournament's been planned for them for months, uh, so my job is to promote it to all of you guys and anybody who is in Texas, in Dallas, 
with nothing to do, come check us out. Dallas Poker House, $250,000 free roll. Okay. I guess it's now advertised on Poker Fraud Alert for free. So you're welcome, Mike Matisau. So I'll stop it here. If you want to hear the rest, you can check out The Mouthpiece, episode 79, which is on Mike Matisau's channel. It was just posted tonight, January 29th, 2022. It's about a two-hour episode. You can find this clip I just played at about the nine-minute mark. And then he goes on some about it, but this is the main thing he wanted to hear. Well, it's definitely a risk. It is definitely a risk. But I can understand what he's doing. He may think that the lightning struck already and it did not hit Poker House Dallas, or as he likes to call it, Dallas Poker House. And he may think that means it's safe. They would have hit them too if that's what the city of Dallas wanted to do. So he may be looking at it like, hey, they are popping the competition there and leaving this last one alone. So this is a good time to buy when otherwise people might be scared. And I have to imagine while they were down there, these were probably the pitches given to them by the existing ownership. Now, I don't know if the existing ownership was looking to sell or if Mattisau and his investors were just going from room to room saying, would you like to sell? And Poker House Dallas said, okay, yes, for this much. And here's why we're asking for this much. We never heard the purchase price, of course, but they may have said things like, well, we put $3 million into the place, so it looks nice. And we are the only one not to get this notice that our certificate of occupancy is being revoked. And if they didn't give it to us now, they're probably not giving to us ever. And the other two rooms did get it and may cease to exist, and we might be literally the only game in town. So for that reason, we're more valuable than you might think we are. Still interested? And Mike's like, um, what do I get out of it? And then they negotiated that. And now it's happening. And Mike has already planned. I'm not sure exactly why this is revolving around the Super Bowl, but after the Super Bowl, which is in early February, as you know, Mike is going to move to Dallas. I don't know what the status is with the home he lives in now. I don't know if he's renting. I don't know if he's on a lease. I don't know if he's going to give up the home or if he's going to leave this place in Vegas or if he's just ditching everything and leaving the home and either selling it or breaking the lease or ending his month to month, whatever thing he has and moving everything on to Dallas. But he is moving to Dallas. Yeah, the Super Bowl is on February 13th, a little bit later than usual. It's usually in early February, but yeah, this year it's a little bit later, February 13th. And sometime after that, he's moving. So we're just talking about weeks now till Mike moves out there and they take ownership of that room. I didn't play this part, but he talked about how they have plans to expand it. And he said something which is interesting called that he said it's Mike Matisau poker rooms. So he might have already tipped off something they're going to do in the future in that it might be renamed from Poker House Dallas to Mike Matisau Poker or something like that. Something with his name in it. Maybe Mike Matisau's Poker House Dallas. But I bet it's going to have his name in there. Just like Johnny Chan put his name in there. Now, hopefully this will end up better 
than it did for Johnny Chan. But that looks like it's part of the plans from something he said when he talked about expanding it and having Mike Mattisau poker rooms all over the place. Doug said that was also what he wanted to do with his investment into the lodge near Austin, that he was looking to expand, not so much within Texas, but to see if he can find other states that would allow a similar situation of these private clubs that spread poker and to see if he could expand to areas that don't really have poker yet, at least not legalized poker or at least semi-legalized poker, and be able to open these rooms and basically have a monopoly in these markets. So he was hoping to get something established at the lodge and then have lodges all over the place that he would promote to his large following. So it's a similar model for both of them, if you think about it. I don't think Doug is going to be actively running the lodge. I know he's going down there a lot, but I think he's doing this at the beginning to drum up interest in the room, and then I think he's going to get bored of it and only come occasionally. That's just my prediction. I don't have any information saying that. But they both bought a room in Texas, and they both are looking to expand to run several rooms around the country maybe a whole empire of rooms. So this isn't just them buying into one room. At at the moment it is, but that's not the grand plan here. Now, what kind of risk is Mattisau taking with this whole thing? Because if you think about it, it is still possible that the hammer is going to fall on all of Dallas poker and that the city is just going to decide that none of these can continue. Because let's say... Texas Cardhouse and Shuffle 214 push back aggressively, which they claim they're going to. I think they are going to push back aggressively. Dallas may have to counter by being even stronger to just shut everything down because that makes the position for the city stronger if they can show that they're not playing favorites and if they can show they simply don't want this gambling in the city that is taking place through a loophole in the whole private club home game situation. Because remember, these are just home games that are running at private clubs. But in reality, it's a poker room. So this is really an unregulated poker room, which is operating legally as a home game. And the city of Dallas could make a very strong case that this is really gambling in the city limits that they don't want. But then a very good response from Texas Cardhouse and Shuffle 214 would be, oh yeah, well if you care about that so much, why are you cool with Poker House Dallas? Huh? Huh? Why, why can that keep operating if you're so anti-gambling taking place in the city? You're just picking on us because other businesses are complaining. Or maybe these other businesses donated to the campaigns of certain city councilmen. So how come if you don't want illegal gambling in the city, why are you allowing it? at this third place. And the city will have a hard time answering that. They can claim, well, your place is causing a nuisance and Poker House Dallas, which is standalone, is not. But they could say back, okay. But then you wouldn't be revoking our certificate of occupancy because of gambling, as you claim. Because remember, the reason that was cited was keeping a gambling place. You're doing it because you're claiming that our business is a nuisance to other businesses, but that's not why you say you're revoking our license. So therefore, since keeping a gambling place is okay in Dallas, you should be able to leave us alone 
for keeping a gambling place. That that should be what you'd be doing because that's the precedent you have established with Poker House Dallas. They could make this argument, and it's kind of convincing. So the city may have to say, you know what? We weren't going to bug Poker House Dallas before, but the only way we're going to win this is if we clamp down on all of them, not two of the three of them. So that could be the end of Poker House Dallas, in which case their investment will be up in smoke. So that's why it's still a big risk. I do believe that at the moment the city is not interested in shutting down Poker House Dallas, but that doesn't mean it can't change, especially in the upcoming legal battle about this matter. So this is a risky purchase here, but they may figure that while they do run the risk, it'll get shut down pretty fast. They also can stand to gain from the shutdown if it does not affect them, because then they'll have the monopoly. So it's definitely a gamble. Mike Mattisau, who has never been afraid to gamble, a guy who has lost his sizable bankroll many times in his life, he's not afraid here. And I guess the investors he's found are not afraid either. I think maybe they're not quite aware of the risk that they may still be facing. They know they're facing some risk. They're not so dumb as to think that it's all past. They didn't get the notice, so it's never going to happen. There's no way they're dumb enough to think that. But they may not be thinking along the terms that I've been stating here, that the city may have to up the ante, so to speak, and shut them all down in order to make their position stronger in a legal battle. We'll have to see what happens. I don't know how much of Mike Mattisau's own money is invested in this. If he doesn't have much, then it is kind of a free roll for him. Because if you think about it, if most of the money, or almost all the money, has been put up by these investors he found, then all he's risking here is his time and his effort, and maybe a little bit of money. But he could stand to gain a whole lot if he's getting some percentage ownership And if this thing can do well, and if it can grow, or if it can be lucky enough to be the monopoly there because the others get shut down, then this could really kick ass, and he could get a lot of money out of this with a minimal financial investment. Whereas if the whole thing goes belly up, either because it fails or because it gets shut down, well, then his investors will be out a lot of money, but he may not be out much at all. So he may be just risking mostly time and effort here in which case it makes loads of sense if you think about it. Think about if you're Mike Mattisau and your bankroll isn't huge, but you found guys with a lot of money to back this project and that all you've got to do is put a lot of time and effort and move to Dallas for it. But the upside can be very big. Would you do it? I bet you would. Maybe you wouldn't enjoy managing a poker room on a day-to-day basis because it can be stressful and it's not that fun or glamorous. It's one of these things like it could be fun for a short time. Like let's say someone invited to me, it invited me to be a poker room manager for a week. I might do it because it might be fun. I might enjoy the experience. But if someone said, hey, would you like to be a poker room manager for the next year? I would say no, because I wouldn't enjoy doing it for a year. It would get very old very fast and it would become a burden and become a job that I don't look forward to going to. So there's a difference between a job that you could kind of have as a novelty for a week and a job that you're going to be going to for some length of time or for a very long time. And Mattisau is, is he's actually taking a job, which you know how poker players are, especially long-time poker players. You know how much they love to get that J-O-B. They don't. A lot of poker players will do anything not to have to get a regular job. They will scam. They will borrow. They will hustle. 
Some will even trade sexual favors in order to get buy-ins, though it's much easier to do if you're a female, but I have to imagine some males have probably done it too. But they don't want to get a job. And you know what? Once you've gone some time, even not a really long time, I mean, forget Mattisau, who hasn't had a job in ages, but even someone who's not had a job for two, three years, to have to go from the freedom of waking up whenever you want and doing whatever you, what do you want and having no boss to having to show up every day at 8 a.m. and do what someone else says and get a paycheck that doesn't really have uh, that much of an upside other than just a steady paycheck. I know in this case for Mattisau, it'll probably have not so much a flat pay rate because he's going to own part of it. So it does have an upside. But still, I'm just talking about getting a job in general. Poker players don't like that. They really don't. And there have been some professional poker players that have transitioned into industry jobs. But when they've done that, you know when they do that? It's usually because they weren't able to make it as a professional poker player. Not always because of lack of skill, sometimes lack of bankroll management, sometimes just a long streak of bad luck that they didn't have a deep enough bankroll to fade, sometimes because they can't handle the stress. There could be many reasons why one will cease being a poker pro. But when people go from a poker pro to having a job in the poker industry unless it's something super lucrative, usually it's because they didn't have much of another choice. They, they couldn't just uh, continue playing poker professionally because it wasn't working out in one way or another. So here, Mike Matisau, who seems to be getting backing from Helmuth and whoever else, and he could continue being a poker pro as he has been for the last decades He's been around forever. He's not desperate to have to do this. I think he's just seeing this as an opportunity, especially if it's a low-risk one for him personally, and he's taking it. So that's understandable. So we shall see how this does. And boy, he's going to be sweating the situation there, especially his investors. They'll really be sweating. But, I mean, imagine you invest in something like this, millions of dollars, and then any day the city of Dallas can just hand down that notice and you could be looking at a fight to stay in business right after you buy the thing. That would be stressful to just know. Any day you can wake up and there's that notice. That would be tough. But maybe it'll work out. Maybe the other places will get shut down. They'll be the only one. Maybe the other places will win their fight and then Dallas Poker can continue. Maybe at some point this will get licensed and regulated, and they'll get one of the licenses, and then they can expand elsewhere. So there is a lot of upside. I will acknowledge that. So good luck to Mike Mattisau with this venture. I have to imagine he won't be there when the World Series of Poker goes. I have to imagine he'll be in Las Vegas playing that. But looks like starting in February, it will be Mike Mattisau running the room at some point, starting mid-February. From the 480, I got a text saying, if I were to take a guess, the Todd in discussion is Todd Anderson from Poker Night America. It's not a bad guess. I don't think it's Todd Brunson. He's already got his business with the Roma Deli in Las Vegas. I don't think Todd Brunson wants to leave Vegas either. Anderson's a good guess. This is a text from the 505. 
The problem with franchising poker rooms in other states is you lose the people you want to play with, meaning the games at the traditional casinos that offer slots and sports betting will always have the better games. These poker rooms could become the live version of Run at Once, filled with GTO monkeys. Poker rooms work in states without other gambling options. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. You don't want a poker room where the only people showing up range between tight rocks who know what they're doing and very good players. Then it's very tough. You want a lot of recreational players. And as he's saying that uh, traditional casinos have a lot of just degenerates who, among other negative EV gambling they do, they also sit in poker. And like I used to go to Bellagio all the time late at night when I lived in Vegas, and I would play the Limit Hold'em games, whatever the highest was they were spreading of just Limit Hold'em, and I would wait for these guys to stumble in drunk from playing blackjack or whatever else they were playing, and they sit down at poker, and obviously they were not very good, and they were very much inferior in skill to myself and the other regulars there. And I liked late at night because, number one, it seemed like you got uh, more drunk fish showing up. And number two, a lot of the regulars who set up a schedule for themselves were leaving by that time. They didn't want to have this weird sleeping schedule where they're sleeping all day and and staying up all night. So a lot of them would play during the day and and leave by sometime in the evening or at least by 1 or 2 a.m. So they're just taken off at that point. And I'm getting there, so I don't have to contend with some of them. So that, that was what I used to do when I played at Bellagio living in Vegas. And what this guy in 505 is saying is that you're not going to have those drunk fish showing up if they don't have these other casino games to attract them. And that's not going to be working out very well, except in places with like no other gambling options at all. From the 713, poker rooms in Texas are getting too big for their own food. They did this before and got shut down. The last part I want to know more about, I'm not familiar with rooms getting shut down in the past. So if you could let me know about that. I haven't read that anywhere. I'm not saying you're wrong. I just haven't heard about it. I haven't paid that much attention to Texas poker until recently. Dive Bar Dave in the chat room saying Harry Reid donked down last month. Did Druff ever cover this? Yes, I did. I did talk about Harry Reid uh, dying last month. So, okay, let's move on to our next topic. I'm going to give you an update on Adele. It was a big story last week, and I told you after our long Adele segment that I'm going to keep my eye on this, and I'm not going to just drop the matter. I'm going to keep covering it because I think there's a lot more we still need to learn. And indeed there was. And fortunately, I don't have to do a lot of work to learn this because this is a major story. This isn't just a poker and gambling story. It does have a Las Vegas connection, of course, being something that was supposed to go off at Caesars Las Vegas. So that's why we cover it on the show. But Adele is a major star. And therefore, there's a lot of interest in this, especially UK outlets are interested in this because that's where she's from. And this is a pretty interesting story. So they're doing all the work, and I just get to report things that I'm reading. But I went through it all, and I will tell you some new things that I have learned since then. If you remember where we left off, was that Adele canceled her entire residency at Caesars 
Las Vegas. It was planned to be a weekend-only residency where she would do two shows a week for 12 weeks between January 21st and April 16th. She claimed that it was because of COVID and that half her staff was out. She was crying as she did this announcement. Now, this was a video she put out, so she could have easily re-recorded it and put one without the crying, and some people were saying the crying was on purpose and the tears were crocodile tears. But I'm going to play this to you once again. It's not that long. It's like a minute long. And uh, then I'll give you again a quick recap of what happened prior to this week, and then I'll tell you what I've learned this week. I'm so sorry, but... um my show ain't ready. We've tried absolutely everything that we can to put it together in time and for it to be good enough for you, but we've been absolutely destroyed by delivery delays and COVID. Half my crew, half my team are down with COVID, they still are. And it's been impossible to finish the show. And I can't give you what I have right now. Um, And I'm gutted, I'm gutted and I'm sorry it's so last minute. We've been awake for over 30 hours now trying to figure it out and we've run out of time and I'm so upset and I'm really embarrassed and I'm so sorry to everyone that's travelled again. I'm really, really sorry. I'm really sorry. Um, We're on it. We're going to reschedule all of the dates. We're on it right now. Um, And I'm going to finish my show. And I'm going to get it to where it's supposed to be now for you. I'm so, I'm so sorry. It's been impossible. We've been up against so much and it just ain't ready. Okay. So that was her statement and she's gutted. She's gutted. (laughs) So we talked about last week, some of the skepticism regarding this because people flew all the way from the UK to see this show and then they get there And less than 24 hours before the first show was supposed to go off, she announces, my show ain't ready. I'm gutted. I'm gutted. And that's the end of it. It's not happening. Tough luck on you. You spent thousands coming to Vegas from London. All these hours back and forth on the plane. Nope. Too bad. You're getting your tickets refunded, but that's it. And then a lot of these people couldn't even get hotel refunds. People staying at Caesars could get two nights of refunds, but that was it. The whole thing was a mess, and people asked her, why? Why didn't you tell us at least a few days before? Why less than 24 hours before? Why couldn't you have given like three days notice? That would have been way better. We wouldn't have gotten on these planes. Why? Why, Adele? So people were very upset about this, and rightfully so. And some felt that she wasn't being honest and was using COVID as an excuse. Some people said, how could you not have known this three days prior? Why is it something you would have discovered the day before that doesn't make any sense? How could you give us such short notice? And there were some rumors that she was having issues with Caesars with what they wanted with the show versus what she wanted. Some people wondered, If half her staff is out with COVID with all the money behind the project, why couldn't they have hired temp staff, even at a increased price to get people out there, to quickly help her get ready for the show? Why did it have to be these people? And most importantly, why did they cancel the entire residency? If it was from COVID, 
COVID doesn't last three months. So how does she know that her staff is going to be out with COVID, especially half them having COVID, then they're going to have immunity from Omicron for three months for sure. So they're going to come back. So why would she cancel three months out not knowing the health of her staff in the upcoming months? Maybe in a month, everybody's going to be healthy. You can do it. So why would you cancel the entire residency? Why not just say the first three weeks are canceled and then we'll see what happens? Why not that? Why, why cancel the entire thing through April? It just didn't smell right to a lot of people. And I agreed. And when I did my analysis last week, you heard me say all these things. And you heard me going over it uh, with uh, a lot of detail with everything I had at the time. But I had a feeling a more would come out. And more has come out. So there were two interesting articles. One was from the Daily Mail, which is in the U.K., and one was at The Sun, which is in the UK. So these are two UK-based publications, which both have kind of a tabloid element to them. These are not actual tabloids, but they, they're kind of tabloid-ish. And, of course, this is right up their alley, because it's a big story, and it fits in with the tabloid scandal format, and she's a huge star there, even bigger than she is in the US, because she's from there. So they've had a good time covering this and a lot of stuff came out in these articles. So here's what I got out of these articles. And then there was a third article that came out a few days later, which we'll talk about. But we're going to stick to these first two right now. Then we'll go to the most recent at the end. Apparently Adele wanted a simple show where she mostly sings and does little else. And Caesars wanted a spectacular show with elaborate sets, elaborate effects, and they were constantly clashing over this. So Adele did not want the spectacular Vegas type of show. She wanted to get on stage, sing, and that was that. She didn't want a lot of the bells and whistles. And some performers love all the bells and whistles, but she was the opposite. She just wanted to sing and Caesars is like, nope, we want something bigger than that. We wanna, we're going to charge a shitload of money, so we want people to get more than just watching you sing. So it's just two different philosophies about the show. I'm not saying one is right or wrong, but there's two different philosophies. And she had one, and Caesars had a very different one, and they were constantly fighting over this. Now, there were two very big fights specifically attached to that. One of them was over the demand that Adele have a 60-person choir backing her up. Adele did not want this. Caesars wanted the choir. She did not want the choir. She wanted to sing on her own. She doesn't want a big choir behind her, but apparently Caesars was demanding the choir, and that was a major source of tension. She also was unhappy about what was going to be a big pool that was going to be built on the stage. She referred to it as a baggy old pond, and she refused to stand in it because this this pool, it was going to be a giant swimming pool on the stage with a hydraulic device inside of it, and it was going to make it appear as if she were rising up over the water and walking on water, almost like Adele Jesus. (laughs) I'm not kidding. That this was Caesar's idea. She she didn't want this, but the uh, Caesars and the people working with Caesars wanted this to happen, where there would be a giant swimming pool, and I'm not sure exactly how it would work and why, how she wouldn't get wet, 
but she would rise up out of this pool and she would be able to walk on the pool and look like she's walking on water. I guess it was going to be a clear platform. It was going to look like uh, nothing's holding her up. And she refused to stand in it. She refused to be part of this. And she called it a baggy old pond. A bag. I'm not staying in this baggy old pond. I'm not doing it. I just want to sing. I just want to sing. I'm gutted. I'm gutted. You want me to stand in a baggy old pond? A, that was apparently a huge source of tension, according to the Sun. But there's more. It wasn't just a baggy old pond in the choir. Adele also has well-documented stage fright. We talked about this some last week, but it's worse than I thought. She's apparently admitted in several past interviews that she hates performing and that it actually makes her physically ill due to anxiety. So unlike certain egotistical performers who love the sound of applause, who will sometimes beg for applause. In fact, uh, the much-panned Chris Angel Believes show has Chris Angel running around demanding the audience applauds for him when they don't. He, he, he does the hand motions to get you to applaud and constantly begging for applause. Adele's the opposite. She hates applause. She said it makes her feel awkward. She doesn't know how to react. It's almost like she feels like she needs to respond in some way, but doesn't know how to respond to applause. So she doesn't like applause. She doesn't like performing live. And she claims that she's actually gotten sick. She's actually vomited due to being so stressed out from performing. And she claims that she has a very hard time getting through these performances, even one. That a single performance is incredibly stressful. It's something she's really, really, really got to psych herself out to get through. And often at the end, she's vomiting and she's having a really, really hard time just getting through one. So can you imagine having to do 24 of these in a three-month period when just one is a challenge? Like Think about if you really, really hate getting root canals. And you go, okay, well, I need the root canal, though. What am I going to do? It's either that or pull the tooth. So, fine. I will sit through the root canal. I will hate it. But I will know this is going to be my only root canal for a while. But imagine if you had to get two root canals a week for 12 weeks. I mean, you go nuts. <laughs> you say, okay, I, I can manage to get through one, but I'm, I'm not doing 24 of these in, in three months. That's the way she feels about performing. I'm not kidding. It's that bad. And you may have a hard time picturing this. Because you may say, hey, look, if I was as famous as Adele and I had a voice like Adele and everybody wanted to hear me and everybody loved me and wanted to pay all this money to see me, I would drink it in to get up on stage and sing and have the crowd cheer for me. And you know what? I would enjoy that. I, I could do it. I wouldn't have stage fright. I wouldn't be feeling awkward getting applause. I would enjoy it. But everybody's different. So Adele is one of the performers who loves recording, loves singing, but hates having a live audience in front of her. And she just can't get through them. And that's why she has a long history of canceling shows. And there's always an excuse. Oh, my throat hurts. Oh, I need throat surgery. Oh, my throat still hurts, so I still can't. I mean, there's so many different reasons that she has cited for canceling shows. Then she claims she's going to make up the shows. Then she never makes up the shows. Now, no one's been out money as far as the tickets are concerned. They always get a refund on their tickets, but any money they spend getting to the shows, tough luck on them. That's always been the case. Now, 
it turns out there were more cancellations than I previously thought. I had thought there was a show canceled in 2011 when she had to have throat surgery and in 2017 when throat problems were recurring and she had to cancel a few dates then. But it turns out she also canceled shows in 2008 and 2016. And these were both in the U.S., by the way. The 11 and 17 cancellations were in the U.K. The 2008 and 2016 cancellations were in the U.S. That's probably why the Daily Mail and The Sun didn't initially report them, because it's not in their country, but they learned about them later and reported them in these articles that were written like around January 24th. Well, 2008, if you think about it, that is a significant year because Adele is not old. Adele is 33. So you go, wait a minute, 33? Then in 08, she was young. Yes, in 08, she was 20. She was 20. Was she famous in 08? Not really. She wasn't a complete nobody, but she was not internationally known. She was kind of an up-and-comer. She wasn't well-established. She was just on the verge of becoming famous, but she wasn't that famous yet. So the 2008 cancellation in the U.S. is the most eyebrow-raising of all the cancellations because there was seemingly no reason for it. There was no throat surgery. She didn't really give a reason. She just canceled and backed out of it. And she was only 20 and not that famous yet. This was a huge opportunity for her as a 20-year-old who was an up-and-comer but hadn't really broken through yet, and yet she backed out of it. Now, there's a big difference with backing out of something like that than backing out of something when you're really established. When you're really established, you may say, well, the fans are already there. They'll, they'll come back another time. In 08, when you're not that famous yet, the last thing you want to do is back out of your golden opportunity to perform and get noticed. But she backed out. So she has backed out of performances in 2008, 2011, 2016, and 2017. And keep in mind, she's not performing every year. It's not like she's done a lot of performances the other years. A lot of the other years, she has not performed at all. And she has admitted that she hates performing. This is not a mystery. This is not a guess. This is not speculation. She has admitted that she hates performing and it makes her physically ill. So if that's true, which of course it is because she said so, why would she have signed to a 24-show residency? Why would she have done that? Why would she put herself through this? What could possibly be the reason that someone who hates performing would agree to do 24 shows in just 12 weeks? $100 billion. Yeah, she was getting a lot of money for these shows. It was assumed from people's calculations that she was going to make about 500,000 British pounds per show which, of course, is more than $500,000. It's more than $800,000. So it's approaching a million bucks per show. Now, 24 shows, that's around $20 million that she'd be making there. And apparently, the plan, if everything went well, was to keep doing this year after year for a while. So can you think of how much money she would have made from this? If she just did this for four years, she'd make uh, almost 100 million bucks. That's a lot of money. Even for someone who is rich and famous like Adele. To just do 24 performances a year for four years, and you could make 
about a hundred million bucks. It's a pretty good deal, right? Even if you're rich and famous, that's that's a good deal. So I think she was enticed by the money and wanted to give it a shot. That this was something she knew she didn't like. She knew she just really didn't want to do, but it was hard to turn down that type of money. She was also having major fights with her set designer, who's actually a famous set designer who's worked with her before, named Britt Esmeralda, who's known as S. S being for Esmeralda, so she's known as S. And Adele kept claiming to be unhappy with S's work, despite millions being spent on the set. So they'd put millions of dollars into these sets that S was designing. And keep in mind, S is not some noob. She's not some person who uh, they just threw in there who couldn't handle the job. S is a famous and renowned set designer who has worked with Adele before. So S is told what to do, basically. Hey, we want a set with these specifications, and you design it. She would design it, and then Adele would hate it. (laughs) So she would have big fights. And S would say, what the hell? Uh, This is what I was told was wanted here, and I made a set that's according to these specifications. What do you mean you hate it? And Adele would say, it's a baggy pond. It's a baggy pond. I won't stand in that baggy pond. So so they'd have big fights about it. I, I understand why S was kind of getting pissed off because, first of all, S is someone who's already established herself, so she doesn't need to take this crap, even for someone as famous as Adele. And, and also, it sounds like she was doing a good job, and then she was getting trashed by Adele, who didn't like these things, and would bash the sets and saying she doesn't like it at all and hates it and she's not doing it. So basically what was happening here was that Adele was being browbeat by Caesars into agreeing to have these semi-elaborate sets. So what would happen is they'd go through these negotiation sessions and Caesars would say, we want this spectacular thing happening in the background or this very elaborate set. And Adele's like, no, 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 I don't want that. I just want to sing. I just want to sing. I don't want to stand in a baggy pond. I just want to sing. And then, uh, so they go back and forth. And then Caesars would keep telling her how important this is. And it's a Vegas show. And people are expecting these things. And, you know, don't worry. It won't interfere. You can just stand and sing. And you won't have to do much. It'll, the stuff will just be surrounding you. Don't just pretend it's not there. Like, I can imagine these negotiation sessions. And Adele's like, well, I, I guess I could pretend it's not there. I, I guess I could just act as if I'm on the stage and nothing else around me. And I could just sing. I, I guess I could do that. Okay. I guess it's. I, I guess this is something I can say is uh, satisfactory to me. So then she agrees. Then they tell S to design the set, spend millions of dollars. Then Adele shows up to see it and is like, Oh, bollocks, I don't want to perform in this. This is a mess. Look at this baggy pond. I won't stand in this baggy pond. No, 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 no. So apparently this caused endless changes to the sets and the show. And it seemed like whatever they did, she didn't like. So they would design something, spend a lot of money, and she would say she would see it, say, nope, this sucks, hate it, change it. Then they'd have a big argument about what it's going to be. She'd reluctantly agree to some change that's satisfactory to her. They'd make the change. She'd come back, and then she'd hate it again. <laughs> I can imagine how frustrating this was because you have someone that seems to keep agreeing to – do something, maybe reluctantly, but they're agreeing, okay, I'll compromise and we'll do this. And then you do it and they're like, no, 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 hate it, don't want it. They must have been going crazy at Caesars over this. The articles also said that it's unlikely that any makeup dates will happen before June of 2022. And it's very possible that it will not take place at all or 
If it does, it won't be till 2023. Adele has a lot else on her calendar. There's just not a lot of room to fit in makeup dates at this point, and it's really believed it's probably not going to happen this year, even though we're just at the beginning of the year here. We're still in January. And that, at best, it'll be in June. But if there is one, it's more likely in 2023, and many believe there will never be a makeup show. One person familiar with the situation in the UK called it madness. It's absolute madness that she attempted to do these 24 dates, given how difficult it was for her to get through a single performance. I agree. It is madness. You like this one. Caesar's employees were threatened with termination if any of them spoke to the media regarding Adele's cancellation. Whoops. This strongly implies that this was not just about COVID. Because if half my staff is out with COVID, I'm good. I'm good. I, I don't want to. I, I want to do the show, but it, it just ain't ready. It ain't ready. I'm good. I'm good. Well, if that were true, then there wouldn't be this media blackout. They wouldn't be threatening to fire people for telling the truth. In fact, Caesars was very careful how they phrased the announcement of the cancellation. Listen to this. I read it last week, but knowing what we know now, listen to this announcement from Caesars on January 20th, the same day it was canceled. We understand the disappointment surrounding the postponement of Weekends with Adele. Adele is an incredible artist, supremely dedicated to her music and her fans. Creating a show of this magnitude is incredibly complex. We fully support Adele and are confident the show she unveils at Caesars Palace will be extraordinary. What does this not say? What does this not mention? COVID. Where is COVID in this segment, in this statement by Caesars? Where is COVID? They say creating a show of this magnitude is incredibly complex. That's it. They don't say creating a show during a highly contagious pandemic that it's at its worst infection levels in the two years of the pandemic is very challenging. They didn't say that. They didn't say creating a show during the pandemic when there are incredible supply chain and delivery delays is very difficult. They didn't say that. That's what she said. But they just say creating a show of this magnitude is incredibly complex. And often what someone does not say tells you more than what they do say. And if this were about COVID, Caesars would have said it. And it would be believable because Omicron's everywhere. Tons of people are infected. I'm sure you know lots of people that have had Omicron. I bet there's a good chance that people in your family have had Omicron or you have had Omicron. And all of this in the past month and a half. So why would COVID not be mentioned in this statement? People can relate to COVID causing problems. How come that's not there? Because it was probably a lie. It's probably an excuse. And Caesars did not want to lie. They just told a partial story, a very, very partial story (laughs) without giving any details. And I guess they figured if the truth came out later, they would not lose credibility for repeating this COVID BS. So they didn't say COVID at all, which is very suspect. And then they threatened people with termination for talking to the media at all. You don't threaten employees with termination for talking to the media unless you have something to hide. Now, this really seems like a bad marriage. This is kind of like Caesars is the man. Adele is the woman. The man really wants to get married. The woman 
isn't really into it and reluctantly agrees after a lot of talking into it. But she doesn't really want to do it. And she is on the verge of running away. And then the man starts to make all these demands of her. He wants to change her. He wants her to do everything differently in her life. He says, now that we're getting married, you need to change this and this and this and this. And the woman's like, I'm not doing this shit. I didn't want to marry this guy so much in the first place. I was kind of going along with it. But now I've got to change everything about myself too? You know what? Goodbye. And she runs off. That's what we got, a runaway bride. I can understand the temptation for Caesars to bring such a coveted act to its stage. But they should have seen this one coming. At the very least, they should have agreed upon a concept and then bound her contractually to this concept with penalties for pulling out or refusing to perform. I can see why Caesars wanted Adele, why this seemed like such a big get for them, but this came with a huge risk. You can't have someone that hates performing taking a residency. You can't have someone with a history of canceling show after show after show taking a residency unless there's going to be a very stiff financial penalty for backing out. But Caesars looks like they didn't do that. And it looks like they didn't have a hard agreement from Adele of what the nature of the show was going to be. Seems like a big mistake on Caesars' part. Looks like they didn't do their research. Because anyone who researched Adele's history should have seen that she hates performing. She did interviews saying so. It's not like we're just learning this now. And she also canceled a lot of dates in the past, both in the U.S. and the U.K., from 08 through 2017. So Caesars, knowing that this is a tremendous risk, should have had in the contract that, number one, you're agreeing to do such and such show to such and such specifications, and you're agreeing to include A, B, and C. Furthermore, you're agreeing to perform on all of these dates, and I guess they can have exceptions, but then the exceptions should come with mandatory makeup dates if there are cancellations. So even if she claims she's sick or her throat hurts, okay, she can cancel, but then she has to make up within X number of days. There's a lot of ways the lawyers could have put this together that would have not let her out of this without some kind of uh, large financial penalty. But it looks like this probably wasn't in the contract. Of course, we don't have the contract. We won't get to see the contract. But I'm guessing the contract doesn't have any of that kind of language. I think Caesars was ignorant and didn't realize that Adele had this type of history and was likely to do this to them. It looks to me like they haphazardly signed her, believing it would be a huge boon. And they didn't bother to research that she hates performing, hates elaborate shows, and probably couldn't perform a 24-show residency if her life depended on it. I'm not even kidding. I'm not exaggerating about that last thing. If she knew that she was going to die unless she completed 24 shows in 12 weeks, I don't know if she actually could. Because it's that hard for her to get through one. Maybe if she literally knew her life depended upon it, she could. But that's probably about it. How could they have expected someone like this to do 24 shows in 12 weeks? How? It's very clear. This is someone who 
has tremendous stage fright, tremendous performance anxiety in front of crowds. And you can take for granted that a famous musician must love performing, but having musical talent and having a lot of fans doesn't always equal that you are a great performer or someone who enjoys it. Adele is someone who should never perform. She is someone who should only be in a recording studio. And that should be it. Because she just can't get through these shows. Now maybe, once in a while, perform a one-off show. But whoever signs her for this one-off show should always know there's a decent chance she will back out. So I don't think this is ever going to happen. But wait, there's more. You might think the story's over. You might think that you've figured it all out. This is just a woman who hates performing, hates elaborate sets, and she had to both perform 24 shows on an elaborate set, and that was too much for her, and she panicked and just backed out at the last minute. I bet you think that's what happened, don't you? And that might be part of what happened, but that's not all of what happened. At least we don't think it is, because a new update has come out. Yes, we've learned even more. I swear, they had to make a movie about this one day. At least a TV movie. At least maybe like a Netflix movie or something. A whole new angle was brought to this by the Daily Mail on January 29th, just yesterday. Now it is being said that the main reason she canceled was not about the baggy old pond or about the performance anxiety or about any of the other things I described. And while those are considered contributing factors, that there was an even bigger factor that was unrelated to all of this as to why she could not perform. She was having boy troubles. Yeah, she was having boy troubles. Adele has a boyfriend named Rich Paul. Rich Paul is LeBron James' agent. And apparently their relationship was having major issues right around the time that her show was to start. And sources close to Adele's camp say that she was crying during rehearsals of the show and that she would stop the rehearsals because phone calls were coming in from Rich Paul. So she said, uh, uh, stop, 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 stop. Everybody, take, a, take, take five. I'm going to speak to this, this important phone call. And then pick up the phone, and she would have these emotional calls with boyfriend Rich Paul. A lot of fighting, yelling. It was not just a distraction. It was ruining the rehearsals. And her head wasn't in the game. The New York Daily News' Richard Johnson reported that Adele called off her residency because of issues with her boyfriend. Johnson said, there's trouble in paradise, that's why she can't perform. Apparently, she's so emotionally gutted because of her problems with Rich Paul that she just can't get herself in the mood to perform and, in fact, had a hard time even getting through these rehearsals. Also... It is believed that the issues she was having with Rich Paul were contributing to her erratic behavior regarding the show itself. So the whole thing about not wanting to perform in a baggy old pond 
and uh, not wanting the choir. These were real feelings she had, and she probably would have had even if she was not with Rich Paul or if she was in a happy relationship with him at the moment. But it was worse because she was already in a very bad mood. She was already not in a good emotional place because of all the problems she was having with her relationship. So she's showing up to these rehearsals depressed, upset, and very emotional that her relationship was falling apart. And then she's being told to do things that she doesn't really want to do. Doesn't want the elaborate sets. Doesn't want to be levitated out of a baggy old pond. Doesn't want any of this stuff. So it's kind of like the one-two punch. She's got to perform under circumstances she doesn't like. And her relationship was falling apart. And she just wasn't feeling into the whole thing. Scott Robin, a.k.a. Vital Vegas reported that stresses related to Adele's relationship caused her to be in a place where she was not confident moving forward. So apparently she also had no confidence. She just was a mess. She was an emotional mess and could not bring herself to do anything. Sounds like she's suffering from major depression, to be honest. So maybe those tears were real, but not for the reason that she was portraying. It wasn't because of COVID. It was because her relationship was falling apart. And she was suffering from major depression. And the last thing she could bring herself to do when she was so depressed was perform a show that is very stressful and that she doesn't really enjoy doing. Apparently, Live Nation, which is a major concert operation in the U.S., and Caesars Palace, both of whom have had agreements with her regarding this show, tried to save the residency that they uh, were hoping maybe to just delay it, but not cancel the whole thing. But it wasn't savable between her having these issues with the set design and with the demands of the way she performs and having the relationship problems. She just didn't want to do it. Not only couldn't she do it in the next few weeks, she felt she couldn't do it in the next few months. So she just said, we're done. Also, apparently, she wasn't ready. Forget the show not being ready. She apparently didn't even show up to Vegas to rehearse until a few days beforehand. So she showed up very late to Vegas. And it is reported that as soon as she announced that, my show ain't ready, my show ain't ready, that she hopped on a private jet to L.A. and is now staying with Rich Paul. That all she could do is run back to L.A. to try to save her relationship with Rich Paul. That's where it's believed she's hiding out at the moment. Not back in the U.K., but in Los Angeles with Rich Paul. Isn't this a mess? (laughs) So on top of everything else, she was having major relationship issues, and that was it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back, or maybe a big straw. I think more of a one-two punch than a straw that broke the camel's back. Does this mean that COVID-19 didn't affect the staff? No, I'm sure there are some people out. I mean, Omicron is spreading so much. It's believable there were some people that were out due to COVID-19 that may have made it tougher. And were there maybe some delivery issues? Yeah, but with something with so much money behind it, whatever they needed delivered, I'm sure they could find. There's, There's always workarounds when you have that much money. I don't mean her personally. I'm talking about the money behind the show. Because canceling this was a huge money loser 
for everybody involved. So the last thing they wanted to do was cancel it. They had to spend some more money to get some temp employees to speed up deliveries, to buy things at a premium that they need, whatever it is. You know, money can solve a lot of this stuff. This is going to sound like it doesn't have to do with it, but let's say somebody really liked my car and said he wanted to buy it. I'd say, no, I'm, I'm not selling my car. Well, no, 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 I really want to buy it. I go, no, look, just go look up online cars like this being sold. You can buy one very similar. No, 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 I want your car. And I'll say, well, I'm sorry, it's not for sale. Well, okay, what if I give you $10,000 more than it's worth? I go, you know what, I, I really don't want to do that. I don't want to go through the hassle of selling it, buying a new one. No, thanks. Okay, what if I buy your car for $200,000? I say, show me the $200,000. It shows it to me. I would say, sold. I don't want to sell my car. It's a pain in the ass, but if I'm going to get that much more than it's worth, <laughs> I would sell it in a second. So money solves a lot of problems, and they could have solved this with money, but not when you have a singer who doesn't want to do the show, who hates performing and is having major relationship issues, and all she can think about is not being on stage, but being in L.A. with her boyfriend who is rapidly pushing away from her. I don't know what the problems are. I don't know on what end. I don't know if she's having problems with him or she's he's having problems with her or if, if it's mutual. Whatever it is, that's where she went. So it's not even like she went back to the U.K. to lick her wounds. She, she went to his place, apparently, from the reports I'm reading, to go be with him and try to save all this. She did not want this relationship with Rich Paul to end. And that was more important than the show. Vital Vegas has posted a lot of pictures of the set being moved out of Caesar's Palace, including one that looks like the hydraulic device that was being used in the baggy old pond. And they were moving it out over a period of days. There was so much to move out. But they were kind of trying to sneak it out through the back of Caesar's Palace. But you know how it is. People catch these things on camera. So every day, Vital Vegas was posting new pictures of stuff being moved out. And why is it significant? Well, it shows that they're actually like taking this away, that they're not planning upon bringing it back anytime soon. Now, you can say maybe Caesars itself just doesn't have the space to store this stuff, and they're just going to put it in storage somewhere, but... It also kind of gives a finality to this whole thing. Is there going to be a replacement show? Well, sort of. Keith Urban. Remember Keith Urban? He is going to have a show in late March and early April on weekends, exactly when Adele was going to be performing. So they found a partial replacement. It looks like for the next uh, two months, there's going to be nothing. But starting in late March, you can see Keith Urban instead. I wonder if uh, Keith Urban is going to have relationship issues. Like, what if in mid-March, Nicole Kidman wants to leave him? <laughs> he's going he's gonna to say that he can't show up either. We'll get a message from him about whatever the variant of the day is that has caused half his staff to be out with COVID. Now, he can't perform. Maybe what they need to do is sign someone who is not in a relationship. In this way, this won't happen. But yeah, that's the story is being reported. A lot of stuff coming out here. And you know, when you're as famous as Adele and when you do something as major as canceling a high-profile Las Vegas residency with less than one day notice, you can't just expect to skate away without the truth being found out. If you're some lounge performer in Vegas 
and you're having relationship issues and some problems with management and you tell everybody you're sick or that your staff is sick or whatever, and no one's ever going to find out because you're not a big name and no one's going to be interested enough to investigate it. But when you're at Dell, it's going to be investigated everywhere. There's going to be people talking and Caesars can threaten people with their jobs all they want. Uh, they can go to people like Vital Vegas who they know aren't going to rat them out. So that's how this is happening. They go to Vital Vegas. They go to other people in the media who they know will keep their identity secret. And they say, okay, well, make sure not to say anything or it's going to be my job. But, and then they uh, tell you the whole story. And then, of course, these reporters are very happy to bring this out to the public. This is the cost of celebrity. You just don't have very much privacy. And when you do weird things like this, especially weird things that negatively affect other people, because this isn't just gossip. I mean, for me, it's gossip because I, I wasn't going to the show. But this isn't just gossip for a lot of people who spent thousands of dollars to come from the UK to see her only to find out when they get there, they land and they find out she's not going to be coming on and they've wasted their money. And that sucks. These these are not all rich people. Some people are probably spent all of their leisure money on this. and they They spent their entire vacation budget for maybe a few years to come out and see Adele and then they get screwed like this. So this did affect a lot of people and she was very irresponsible here and I don't care what relationship problems she's having. She should have said this at least a few days beforehand. But Caesars has some fault in this too. They probably signed her without doing the proper research and I think they've learned a lesson. I have a feeling this is going to inform their future contracts. I have a feeling this is going to make them think twice about signing big acts to come there that have issues with cancellations in the past. I think they will do more research to make sure that they are signing reliable performers, not just famous performers. Yeah, it's great to get Adele singing there. She hasn't been on stage in a few years, but then you have to ask yourself, why hasn't she been on stage in a few years? Oops. Now we know why. And then on top of that, she's got a bad relationship <laughs> that's getting her depressed. Oh, boy. What a mess. Now, I can tell you, having depression myself at a very, very high level in 2018, nothing to do with my relationship. It was a physical issue, a physical chemical issue that I suffered. But boy, did I get a super high level of depression. And remember what disappeared during those months, this show. I did a show briefly to tell you what was going on, but for the most part, this show wasn't here from mid-August through December of 2018. And I'll tell you, I just did not have the ability to come on here and do this show the way I was feeling. Now, I wasn't being paid 500,000 pounds per show, but even if I was, I, yeah, once I could have gone through it. But if I knew I had to do this every week, it would have been tough. It can really be debilitating. And if you haven't experienced it before, it, it's very easy to say to someone experiencing depression, oh, just feel better. Chin up. It's not that bad. Things will get better. This too shall pass. You, you can throw all these trite phrases at people and you can say, ah, oh, yeah, this is so stupid. This is so stupid. How can this person just not be able to function because they have depression. Come on. Just put on a smile and do it. Until you've experienced it 
until you've experienced real depression, I don't mean situational depression where, uh, and I know that's probably what she's getting, but she may actually have chemical depression as well that she battles. But until you have real high-grade depression, it's hard to understand the effect it has on you. I had the high-grade depression and the high-grade anxiety together. That was real tough. But I'm saying having been through this, I can see why she feels like she just can't do this. At the same time, you have to think of other people. You can't call this off the day before. But I think it was all this together. I think the relationship issues, plus all the problems she was having with Caesars and with what they wanted versus what she wanted, and all the fights she had with that set designer, S. Too many things at once. Fell apart. That's why she wasn't just delaying it, she was canceling it. And I have a feeling there will not be a makeup. Because what's going to be different? I mean, yeah, I guess she won't be having relationship issues, maybe, but the rest of it, it's all going to be the same. From the 707, they said, Google thinks it's boyfriend-related. Yeah, I see that, but that's just because that's the newest story. And and it is probably boyfriend-related. I mean, it's probably a lot of it, but that wasn't the whole story. But he said, uh, probably not hurting for money, and he showed that her net worth is listed as $220 million. Now, a lot of these net worth sites are not correct, but I will say she's worth a lot of money. But the money she was going to be making from this was probably still attractive enough to where she was going to try to power through it, and then she couldn't. Now, if she had Elon Musk money or Jeff Bezos money, yeah, then she wouldn't be doing something she hates. There's a difference between having $100 billion and having $200 million. To most people, that sounds like, wow, that's just so much money either way. Does it really matter? But no, no, it matters. When you're doing something that's paying you about $20 million for three months of work, if you have $200 million to your name, that still sounds like a great deal and you want to do it. If you're a multi-billionaire, then you say, oh, what, $20 million? I mean, yeah, that's okay, but not going to do something I don't like for it. That's the difference. And from the 505, Adele should have just said this at the beginning. I fully agree with her telling Caesars to fuck off. Well, I don't agree because she didn't say this at the beginning. She didn't say to Caesars, I'm either going to do a show where I just sing or nothing. Now, if she had some kind of implied agreement with them and then they went back on this and wanted to add all this shit then yeah then she has a point to refuse to do it until they go back to what was previously agreed upon even if not contractually but it doesn't sound like that to me it sounds like that they just never really hammered out what it's going to be and then she just didn't have the same vision they did and then they're just endlessly battling about this and then they would kind of browbeat her down to, to agree to some pared-down version, and then she didn't like that either, and then she's having these issues with Rich Paul, and uh, she's in a horrible mood the whole time. I can just picture it. I, mean, I can totally picture it. All righty. Moving on here. I want to tell you about a story that is not really getting very much play at all in the media, but it's a very Vegas story. It's weird, and it really makes me believe that my impression that there's still corruption left in Vegas is correct. I, I've had that feeling for a long time. I had that feeling living there. I had that feeling 
after I lived there and I was looking at some of the way things went down, such as certain criminal cases, such as certain ways people could get themselves out of trouble that didn't make sense. I saw a lot of odd and non-standard things happening there. And if you remember, we were the main outlet covering the whole Ray Davis story. And Ray Davis eventually pled guilty to some charges related to indecent exposure in front of minors. And we won't rehash that whole thing. And I'm not going to really comment on his guilt or innocence. He he did plead guilty. He, he claims on Facebook that he only pled guilty because that was the only way to get out of this and uh, leave with time served rather than risk years more in prison. But, you know, that's, that's his claim, of course. Uh, there was a lot of pretty damning evidence against him here. But one thing happened in that case that I didn't feel comfortable with, regardless of his guilt or innocence. Even if he was completely guilty, there's one thing I really didn't like. And that was they raised his bail from $25,000 to $500,000 simply because of his behavior in court. Now, he did act inappropriately in court, but he didn't do anything that terrible, which would have warranted that. It's not like he was presenting a danger to people in court. It's not like he was threatening to kill people. Like He was just not acting appropriately in court. But that didn't warrant a change in bail from 25K to 500K because no new facts came out that would have made him a greater danger to the community. It's not like they realized that he did a lot more than they originally suspected and they changed bail from 25K to 500K. There was no information that came out that changed either his danger to the community or his likelihood to be a flight risk. So for that reason, there is no possible explanation for why they should have raised his bail from 25K to 500K. He just pissed off the judge because he was acting up in court and they did this to punish him. And I didn't think that was right. Regardless of everything else involved in that case, I didn't think that was right. And I thought it was weird, and I've never seen it before. And I asked some attorneys about this, and they hadn't seen it before either. They thought it was weird, too. So that's just one of many weird things that happens in Vegas. It seems like justice in Vegas is not like justice everywhere else. And if you remember, Vegas was a mob-run town for a long time. It was only in the 90s when the corporate ownership started to push out the mob that things started to change. So the mob is no longer in charge in Vegas, But a town that was under such heavy mob influence with so much corruption for all those decades of its existence doesn't immediately get clean. And even though now it's been almost 30 years since the mob was getting pushed out, I still see remnants in Vegas of what appears to be some corruption. And that's why I've always said, if you get into any kind of serious or semi-serious criminal trouble in Vegas, it's very important to hire the right attorneys with the right influence there. Much more important than in other jurisdictions. It's always good to have a, a skilled attorney, of course, but I think the difference in Vegas is tremendous. I think some have uh, a lot of influence. The reason I'm giving you this speech is because there's a very weird thing happening currently in Vegas, and it involves a guy who calls himself Robin Hood 702. You may have seen him on Twitter. He's on Twitter as Robin Hood 702. 
if you go take a look at his Twitter currently, it's protected. So unless you were an existing follower of his, you cannot see what he's tweeting. But I have been able to access these tweets, as I will explain shortly. You can do it too. But I see a lot of weird things going on here. And it connects to this other story I recently covered on Poker Fraud Other Radio, which involved a scammer and about the CEO of Resorts World, Scott Sibella, being subpoenaed as part of uh, a situation that was going on in that case. And that was something very curious. So this is tied to that indirectly. Let me try to break this down for you. It's it's a confusing story, but I am concerned with this because <laughs> I'm seeing some things I don't like, to be honest. Robinhood702, his real name is R.J. Cipriani. I'm not sure what the R.J. stands for, but his name is R.J. Cipriani. He claims he is a professional gambler and that he shares his winnings with the less fortunate. But I don't know, I've, I've seen that story before. It's not always true. I, I don't know enough about him to say whether it's true or not true. However, he does have some history, and some people don't like him for part of this history, because at one point he was a snitch to the FBI. He has kind of a weird background here. The snitch thing I was talking about involved a drug kingpin known as Owen Hansen. And this goes back to 2016. So this is not new news I'm talking about right now. Actually, it was in 2011. 2011, this Owen Hansen approached R.J. Cipriani and asked him to launder $2.2 million worth of cash. And he did, <laughs> or sort of. So what happened was R.J. Cipriani took the $2.2 million with the agreement to launder it and lost it. I don't know exactly how, but somehow he chunked off the money. So what will happen to you if... A drug kingpin gives you $2.2 million to launder, and then you gamble it away. So instead of laundering it, it's just gone. What do you become afraid of? Yeah, he was afraid that Hanson was going to kill him. So he went to the FBI, which a lot of people criticize. A lot of people say he's a snitch who's protecting his own ass after he blew the guy's money trying to launder it and didn't want to face the music for it. So instead of... Uh, dealing with the consequences that he ran to the FBI. is like, hey, guys, uh, guess what I was trying to do? I was trying to launder money, and now you can bust this guy. So this came out in 2016. I'm not going to go that much into the whole thing that happened with uh, Owen Hansen back in the 2010s, just that that was some history that R.J. Cipriani had. But now there's something else going on. So apparently he's been after this guy named Robert Alexander, who is a scammer. He's an embezzler. Robert Alexander, who is 51 years old, had a video game promotion company called Take-Two Interactive. And uh, that was actually the parent company of Rockstar Games that made the very successful Grand Theft Auto series. However, Robert Alexander chunked off that $30 million. He was a compulsive gambler, 
and he also wasted a lot of it in strip clubs. I never understood the wasting it in strip clubs. I, I actually understand the gambling more, though I, it's also stupid to gamble really big at negative EV games. I, I can see more how that happens in strip clubs. Like, like to me, how much can you spend in a strip club? But guys can just chunk off massive money at strip clubs. I mean, just massive, massive money. Let me just say you don't get good value there. I, do, I just don't get a. I don't understand it. I don't get why you don't just hire prostitutes, whatever. You can hire a few prostitutes to come to your room for way cheaper than what you're uh, wasting at strip clubs. But apparently he wasted a, a ton of money at strip clubs and also uh, playing craps and the $30 million was gone. Now, that's fine. It was his money. Not fine for him, but it wasn't illegal to spend your money stupidly. The problem was he decided that he needs a reload and he founded a new company called Kizang, K-I-Z-Z-A-N-G. Kizang offered sweepstakes-based online gaming through slot tournaments. And once that started doing well, so he was good at starting these businesses, I'll give him that. But once Kizang started doing well, he started to embezzle money from the business because he wasn't the full owner of Kizang. Remember, he was broke when he started Kazang, so he had investors in it, and he needed money to spend for his lavish lifestyle, and he wasn't getting enough. So he started just taking money out of Kazang, and prosecutors said that he spent $450,000 gambling and chunked that off, and also another 579000 to pay off his credit cards that he was using to spend lavishly. This is not speculation. He's actually pled guilty to one count of wire fraud and one count of securities fraud, but he has not yet been sentenced. That's why he was free. So where does R.J. Cipriani fit into this? Well, R.J. Cipriani, a.k.a. Robin Hood 702, has turned into kind of a self-styled scam buster in Vegas and someone who is not afraid to call out what he perceives to be wrongdoers in Vegas. This has been his shtick for quite some time. So I I forgot what I even reported. Something I reported on the show, I think like a year or two ago, I was quoting him. I forgot what it was now. But this is a guy who's often tweeting allegations about people in Vegas. He's someone who, when he sees something going on that he thinks isn't right, he wants to let the world know. So he was at Resorts World, And he recognized Robert Alexander, and he was familiar with that whole case. So he thought, okay, you know what? I've still got people that I worked with at the FBI five years ago. So I'm going to call them up. I'm going to call up my handlers at the FBI over that uh, previous Owen Hansen case. And I'm going to let them know that Robert Alexander, who has already pled guilty to wire fraud and securities fraud and apparently uh, should have no money of his own at this point because the only money he had was embezzled, that that somehow he's gambling big at Resorts World. So, okay, hey, FBI, guess what's going on here? Now, why why does Cipriani do this? Well, presumably Cipriani wanted to see the FBI arrest Alexander and then he could take credit for it on Twitter. I don't know this for sure, but I think that Robin Hood wanted to show that uh, he's doing good, that he's calling out an embezzler, an embezzler who is still 
wasting money in casinos that is probably other people's money while he's awaiting sentencing for embezzlement. So he has a line to the FBI, he used it, and he assumed that this will get him some plaudits. Well, how did this go bad? Well, Cipriani, a.k.a. Robin Hood, said that Robert Alexander was following him around Resorts World upon learning that Cipriani had reported him. I'm not sure how he learned this, but uh, maybe because he noticed that Cipriani was watching him. Maybe someone knew who Cipriani was and said, oh, crap, it's that Robin Hood guy. He's probably following you to report on you. Whatever it was, Robert Alexander became aware that Cipriani had uh, taken an interest in him. And he is, uh, and he was not happy about it. So he was following him around. However, there's one thing I haven't told you yet. Is Robert Alexander a tough guy that might follow you into the bathroom and beat you up or wait till you walk outside in the dark and stick a knife into you? No. Robert Alexander was following him around on a mobility scooter. (laughs) I kid you not. That was happening. So, Cipriani claims that starting October 1st of 2021, Robert Alexander was, quote, stalking him at Resorts World, and that what Alexander would do was navigate his mobility scooter within inches of Cipriani at his blackjack tables and taking videos of him. And this isn't allowed at casinos. You're not supposed to take videos of players, especially in a hostile fashion. So Cipriani says he kept reporting this to Resorts World and nothing seemed to be happening. On November 19th, he said that Robert Alexander again rode his scooter to within inches of him at a table. So he got tired of this. And uh, with Alexander recording him, he grabbed Alexander's phone. And remember, Alexander's in a mobility scooter. I don't know what's wrong with him. He's only 51, but he is quite heavy, I can see. I don't know if he's just really fat and he can't walk around well. I, I don't know what it is, but whatever. He, he uses one of these scooters. So Cipriani just swiped it out of his hand and then ran to the cage. Now, he said he did this because he wanted to prove that Alexander wasn't just a uh, riding around Resorts World that he was really stalking him and recording him while he was playing. So he said, I grabbed his phone and ran to the casino cage to show the proof that he was taking video of me. But they wouldn't take the phone. I ran to a supervisor. I looked for a security guard. Finally, a security guard took possession of the phone. He assumed that this was going to be okay. However, Cipriani then was detained by law enforcement So why was he detained by law enforcement? Well, he was detained by law enforcement for larceny for stealing the phone. Now, Cipriani said, wait a minute. I didn't steal it, though. I grabbed it from him, but I didn't use it at all. I ran it over to the cage to give it to them as evidence. At worst, you could have just handed it back to Alexander and told me not to do this again. But after a month and a half of being stalked by this guy around Resorts World and him recording me constantly, I finally grabbed his phone to show that I'm telling the truth, that I'm not making it up. 
that he's recording me here. So he was trespassed from Resorts World, meaning he's not allowed to go back in there without being arrested. Then he was arrested for larceny, and he spent the night in jail before being released on bail. Now, David Chesnoff, Super Attorney David Chesnoff, who, along with uh, his partner Schoenfeld, are the two super criminal lawyers in Vegas who charge an arm and a leg, but get you out of trouble real easily in Vegas. I mean, that's who you want to hire if you get in trouble in Vegas and you have the money to pay for them. That's who Mikon hired when he got in trouble for running Seals with Clubs, the illegal uh, poker room. And he got a sweetheart deal, so it worked out for him for sure. I've known other people who have hired Chesnoff and Schoenfeld and have gotten off with a slap on the wrist. So these guys are miracle workers, however they're doing it. How does he figure into this, David Chesnoff? Well, Cipriani says that he happened to run into Chesnoff a short time after this whole incident, that Chesnoff was just there in Resorts World. And he said Chesnoff said not to worry about Robert Alexander. And he said, if you ever get in trouble, I'll represent you pro bono. Now, he thought this was weird because he's thinking, why am I going to get in trouble? All I did is grab the guy's phone and bring it to security. So why is Chesnoff telling me that if I ever get in trouble, he'll represent me? And then within moments after that conversation, law enforcement appeared and arrested him. So at the first hearing, Cipriani claims that David Chesnoff was at his hearing, even though he was not representing him. I have too much respect for the judicial process to comment on two fel- pending felony cases, said Chesnoff when he asked if uh, he knew that uh, Cipriani was going to be arrested. And he wouldn't explain why he was in court for Cipriani's initial appearance. The DA claims that Cipriani grabbed Alexander's phone and ran away with it in an effort to delete information. So they're claiming the reason they arrested him wasn't because he grabbed uh, grabbed it and brought it to security, that really what uh, Cipriani was doing was grabbing it and deleting things off the phone, which could be incriminating about him. Because remember, Alexander was videotaping him. Videotaping is kind of an old term, but he was recording him on the phone doing something there, gambling. Now, I don't know what's wrong with Cipriani gambling there, but Alexander seemed to believe that he was recording some kind of wrongdoing on the part of Cipriani by him being there gambling. So the DA is saying that Cipriani was mad that Alexander had recorded him and was just going to strong-arm the phone from him and delete the information, which he doesn't have a right to do. But then Cipriani asked, why would I want to delete my evidence? Cipriani was claiming he only grabbed the phone because he wanted to prove that he was being recorded, that he would never delete anything. In fact, he wanted everything preserved. So who's telling the truth here? Well, Cipriani, of course, subpoenaed the video from Resorts World because what really happened? Did he actually grab the phone and run off somewhere that Alexander couldn't find him and go through the phone and delete things? Or did he really just run it up to the cage and try to hand it to the casino cage without touching the phone. Well, video and still photos that were obtained through the subpoena from Resorts World back up Cipriani's story. It shows him grabbing the phone 
and running into the cage and then frantically trying to find a security guard before giving it a security guard. It doesn't show that Cipriani was trying to delete anything from the phone. It shows that he was just trying to get it to someone at Resorts World, which really makes it look like he was just trying to show proof that Alexander was going around the casino recording him, and presumably what he wanted was for them to see that this was happening and then have them 86 Alexander. Instead, instead he got 86 and arrested for larceny. Then the district attorney, writing in a motion to place conditions on Cipriani's bail, wrote this. With regard to Scott Sibella, that is referring to the CEO of Resorts World, the defendant has now undertaken a campaign to smear this person for the sole purpose of getting the casino and hotel to lift their trespass order and presumably to influence his criminal case. So an order was issued on December 22nd, 2021 that prohibited Cipriani from posting, emailing, or otherwise contacting potential witnesses, third-party vendors, or otherwise interested parties in this criminal case. And that included social media. So he went on his Twitter, and I have a copy of some of this, even though it is not protected, and went off about all this stuff. And he also mentioned Brandon Sattler, the one we discussed, I think it was last week, last week or two weeks ago, the guy who is accused of defrauding investors to his company, Satcom, and that he embezzled $11 million and blew it in various ways. And that, among other things, he was at Resorts World when some of the money was blown. And then when he was told by the judge to uh, pay some money to the plaintiffs, uh, and he was given sanctions to have to do so, that Sattler was at Resorts World gambling anyway, among other places. And that a subpoena was done by the plaintiff's attorney in that case for Scott Sibella, where they were going to depose him. And what was noted in the article I read, you guys, and the article does raise a good point, that it's weird that Scott Sibella, the CEO of Resorts World, would have been subpoenaed there. Because what's customary in these type of cases where someone is gambling in a place they shouldn't be with money they got from others that the ones you subpoena are the ones with direct knowledge of what happened. So it could be a pit boss, it could be a casino host, it could be a dealer, someone who can say what they saw and what they know. The CEO usually wouldn't know this sort of thing. So the one you wouldn't subpoena would be the CEO because he could say and be telling the truth, I'm sorry, I I have no familiarity with this. I I don't deal with these type of uh, low-level day-to-day operations. And that's often correct. Even with semi-high rollers, the CEO often doesn't know that they're even there. So they can't really answer any questions about it because they just don't have direct knowledge. So that's not who you subpoena. So it was weird that they subpoenaed Scott Sabella there. But it was also noted that it looks like that Sattler is going to make some payments and it looks like this is going to be rendered moot and that the Sabella subpoena won't happen. That it's uh, going to be dropped once... uh, Sattler makes these payments he needs to make and pays the attorney's fees for this whole motion for further sanctions and that once he does that this will all go away because the part with Scott Sabella was only related to that particular violation I don't know if it has but if if it hasn't it hasn't happened yet so there was no 
deposition from Scott Sabella, but that was a little bit weird. And I, and I talked about that when I did the segment on Brandon Sattler. But Robin Hood was using this and other things to bash Scott Sabella on his Twitter. And uh, he just kept posting things over and over. On December 13th, Sabella, or not Sabella, uh, Cipriani posted, how in the fuck did Scott Sabella give Katie Moriarty, Brandon Sattler's girl, a job at Gatsby's Resorts World, knowing she murdered someone while behind the wheel? What friends will do for friends in Las Vegas? This is business as usual at Resorts World Las Vegas. So he then linked an article about a car crash that had happened a year prior where a woman named Katie Moriarty had uh, gotten in an accident that was uh, presumably like a DUI or something like that. And it wasn't an intentional murder, but it was one where uh, something where she was under the influence and someone died as a result of an accident. So he's claiming that... uh, in the meantime, she has a res- uh, she had a job at Resorts World at uh, Gatsby's Cocktail Lounge that Scott Sibella helped her get that job, despite the fact that she is going to be on trial for uh, vehicular homicide pretty soon. And he's saying, how did that happen? And he was saying that Brandon Sattler, who was her at least sometimes boyfriend, that he got her that job through the help of Scott Sabella. Now, I don't know if any of this is true. This is the stuff that uh, Robin Hood was saying on his Twitter. Robin Hood also wrote on December 13th, Hey, Scotty, referring to Scott Sabella, this is your business partner and vendor at Resorts World Las Vegas. You allowed him to gamble knowing you you received a subpoena from the FBI asking for all footage and play at Resorts World. How did did, uh, General Counsel Gerald Gardner sign off on all this? More to come, question mark? And then he was referring to the orders about uh, Brandon Sattler and why they let him play there. Then he tweeted, Coming next, Brandon Sattler, Scott Sabella's dear friend and business partner at Resorts World. Sattler is a convicted bank fraudster and is currently under FBI investigation, yet he's a vendor and gambles at Resorts World. Does Sabella or Donnie Taub care? Nope. KT Lim, Hello? KT Lim was the uh, Genting CEO. Then he just kept tweeting things like this, repeatedly bashing uh, Sabella. Then he wrote on uh, December 5th, I guess this was eight days beforehand, Joseph Angelo Bravo, owner of Eight Cigar Lounge at Resorts World, concierge at Conrad and Hilton, and Bravo tickets at Resorts World. Bravo is a fucking convicted drug smuggler who went to federal prison for 87 months. So he, he keeps showing the history of these people. Uh, He made allegations against David Chesnoff that he, quote, partners with the criminals he represents. Then he posted something about Genting and their New York license that they were likely to get and is trying to influence New York regulators to maybe take another look at this. He went on with this stuff a lot. And I'm not going to read the rest of it, but a lot of stuff here was bashing Scott Sabella, David Chesnoff, and other people working at Resorts World. Now, he is accused of violating 
the conditions that were put upon him for getting bail. And now he's in further trouble. So, so what's happening here is that uh, I guess this order came after these tweets he made. So the order came on December 22nd, but that was the one that uh, put on this social media ban. Now it's they're saying they could actually uh, revoke his bail. And he's now being uh, also charged with felony cheating from his blackjack play there. And Cipriani is insisting that he was not cheating at blackjack, that they're trumping this up because he was coming after Sabella and Resorts World. He said to Casino.org, Resorts World has a lot of issues regarding lapses in the security due to budget constraints. If they can't protect high rollers from being harassed, threatened, and recorded, how are they going to protect the conventioneers? Ginting's chairman, KT Lim, should have an independent investigation performed at Resorts World by an outside law firm to get to the bottom of why their compliance department and President Scott Sabella are letting criminals gamble and be vendors of the property in Las Vegas. He said all of this shady activity at Resorts World will greatly impact the New York gaming license Genting's trying to get approved. Genting's having a lot of financial issues itself, by the way. You may have read about that cruise ship, Crystal Cruises, which actually didn't stop in Miami as its final destination. That it actually stopped in the Bahamas and said, okay, everybody get off here because they owed money for fuel tax and they, they couldn't pay it. It was only like a million bucks. So they let off everybody in the Bahamas and said, sorry, we can't continue to the U.S. or uh, we're going to get the ship seized. So that's getting ship. Anyway, his bail hasn't been revoked yet, but he's afraid that it will because it was alleged that he was engaging in a bail violation. And now he's been told he can't tweet anymore. So that's why the tweets have stopped. Now, Brandon Sattler, he had some comments to a website called NevadaCurrent.com. And he blamed Cipriani for all the attention he's been getting lately. He said, just look at RJ's Twitter feed. He's going on a rant about Scott Sabella. Then he says a bunch of crazy stuff. All I can think of is the lawyers in my bankruptcy case saw RJ's rant about Scott Sabella and me and decided to subpoena Scott. Since the time of the defendant's release, defendant has engaged in harassing, intimidating, threatening, and potentially criminal conduct toward potential witnesses, third-party vendors, and other interested parties in this criminal case, said District Attorney Bernie Zadrowski in the motion to revoke Cipriani's bail, one can only conclude that such conduct is designed to harass and intimidate the victim. Cipriani said that he was the one being harassed for a month and a half, and Resorts World did nothing about it. Then D.A. Zadrowski just didn't respond. (laughs) He didn't have an answer back to that. The D.A. added this blackjack charge on the day before Cipriani was going to appear in court for the larceny charge. He was only charged initially with larceny on November 19th, but then a month later on December 21st was hit with that blackjack cheating charge saying that he changed his bet while playing blackjack. Now, what's interesting is Cipriani does say that he did change his bet, but not in the way that Resorts World is claiming. He said that he mistakenly bet $500 on a 1,000 minimum game and then tried to increase his bet when the dealer says, no, it's got to be a 1,000 minimum. He said that this didn't give him anything. This didn't 
give him any kind of advantage, and he wasn't cheating in any way. He was just trying to bring his bet up to the minimum. And apparently, this is the responsibility of the dealer and floor supervisor to catch before the hand is played out. And in fact, if the bet goes that's under the table minimum and the cards get dealt, that the bet has to stand. And the next time, they can't bet that again because it's below the minimum, but that the bet has to stand and that uh, there really isn't any harm in either dealing the dealer minimum or deal in either dealing a hand that's below the table minimum, that there's no harm in that. And that furthermore, if the player attempts to increase his bet, if it's before the hand is dealt, they can just allow it. And if it's after the hand is dealt, then they just have to push it back and say, sorry, you can't do that. That's not considered cheating in any way. So what Cipriani is trying to say here is, yeah, I was trying to get my bet up to the table minimum, which I didn't realize was 1000 or maybe he put out a 500 instead of 1000 and they wouldn't let me and pushed it back, but I wasn't cheating in any way. And if that's really what happened, he's right. That's not cheating. This happens all the time where people bet some amount that is not according to the table minimum or maximum, and if it's caught, then it just backs out, and if it's not caught, then it stands. Cipriani thinks that Resorts World asked the DA to trump up more charges so they could take him back into custody at his court appearance. And uh, he actually didn't appear at his court uh, appearance. His uh, lawyer appeared for him, so he was not taken back into custody yet. I'm not sure where he is at the moment, but he claims that Resorts World asked the DA to add a much more serious charge on there because it was very possible that with the larceny thing that he was not going to be jailed until trial. Now, the way Brandon Sattler connects to this is that, yeah, first he was trying to report this Alexander guy with kind of a similar story to Sattler, but he was reporting this Alexander guy was gambling at Resorts World when he shouldn't be because he is uh, awaiting sentencing for embezzlement, and it's Cipriani was assuming that Alexander was playing with some kind of stolen money, so he was trying to get the FBI interested in this. And then once uh, Alexander figured out what was going on, that he, he started uh, following around Cipriani everywhere and recording him whenever he's playing blackjack. So he claims that... So what he was trying to do there was get Alexander busted for continuing to play there with what might have been stolen money. And that where Sattler comes in was he was trying to say, look, look what... Uh, Resorts World's been doing. First, they allow the Sattler guy to play, and they get his uh, girlfriend a job there, with, despite her issue with causing someone's death when behind the wheel, and that otherwise she would have never been hired. So look at all the things happening there. She got this job. Sattler somehow got to play there. And uh, now this Alexander guy is playing just like Sattler was, and they just won't ever do anything about it here. So Sattler's complaining that the recent attention on him is because Cipriani keeps harping on his situation because he's unhappy about the whole thing involving uh, Robert Alexander, which that part might be true. But, you know, tough luck on Sattler for this. It, It does appear from everything I've seen that he embezzled the money. So if he's guilty, if he did it, and also if he was violating sanctions from the court, which it looks like he was, then he can't complain if someone notices this 
and brings attention to it on Twitter, and if more people start looking at him. So he's saying, oh, you know, the whole reason they're subpoenaing Scott Sabella was because of what what uh, R.J. Cipriani was saying. Well, that's very possible. But, you know, these are questions that need to be asked. It doesn't matter if you don't like that the guy's bringing it up. If, if he's got a point, if he's asking questions others might be curious to have the answer to, then uh, he has a right to do that. So what is my takeaway from this whole thing? Well, this whole thing looks shady to me. The video and still shots that Cipriani subpoenaed do seem to back his story that he only grabbed the phone to bring it to Resorts World to finally prove that he's being stalked and recorded. His assumption was Alexander wasn't kicked out because it was just hearsay and that they had no proof that Alexander was really recording him. So he's like, you know what? I've tolerated this shit for a month and a half. I'm grabbing this motorized scooter bound fat guy's phone and I'm going to run it to security and I'm going to have them look at the phone. And once they see the smoking gun proof, then they will finally kick this guy out. That's what he thought he was doing. It looks clear to me. That's what he thought he was doing. Now, why Alexander was recording him, I don't know. But a lot of weird stuff has happened since. Why charge him with larceny for this if it was clear all he was trying to do was grab someone's phone that was being used in a way that he felt was against casino rules and that this was going on for a month and a half and they weren't doing anything about it and he was trying to prove to the casino it was happening. You would think at worst here, the casino bans him and says, sorry, you can't do that. Even if you're unhappy with a guy recording you or you think someone's recording you, you can't grab somebody else's phone even if you're just running it to us. We don't like this behavior here. Get out. But to actually arrest and go through with charging him and doing so with the theory he's trying to delete things when the video evidence doesn't show this. And the DA can see all the video evidence. He's seen the video evidence. And apparently anybody watching this video evidence would see that he wasn't trying to delete anything. So why are they going forward with this stupid charge? I mean, the way it works, for those of you that don't know, is that when you are arrested for something, it doesn't automatically mean you're going to be charged. In many cases, they drop it if it's very minor and it doesn't seem like it's going to result in a conviction. So this is really a case where I can't imagine a jury convicting this guy. He has a good story as to why he grabbed the phone. Even if technically you can't do that, could you see a jury convicting him when after being stalked for a month and a half in there by this guy who keeps driving up on his motorized scooter recording him maliciously? That he finally just grabs it and tries to show casino security and then they're charging with larceny? That's not what larceny is supposed to be. I couldn't see him being convicted here. And I would think any DA would look at this and say, oh, this is a junk case. No, we're not charging this. But here they went forward with it, and then there's this whole weird thing with the blackjack charge, too. This all looks like he is being targeted in a way. And he has been coming very hard on Twitter at Scott Sibella and at David Chesnoff. So it kind of looks like he ruffled the wrong feathers... And now is paying the price for it, which does not look good. I'm not saying that everything Cipriani says needs to be believed. I'll tell you from what I've seen of his Twitter, he seems a little bit like a nut. Like I've seen things he's written before, and it kind of has a conspiracy theory look to it. That doesn't mean everything's false. 
I'm just saying I've seen things he's written, which I don't believe. I've seen claims of his, which are pretty sensational and then turn out not to be true or turn out likely not to be true. So we can't just say because Cipriani's reporting it, it's got to be factual. This is someone who likes the attention of bringing scandals that are in Las Vegas to Twitter and ruffling feathers. And I'm thinking that some of it is the truth, some of it is partially the truth, and some of it is conspiracy nonsense. I think it's possible that he has ruffled feathers for a long time. And this is the way for certain people to get back at him. But I don't like these charges he's facing. I don't like the larceny charge. I don't like this blackjack cheating charge. And I agree with him that David Chesnoff's involvement with this is a little bit weird. So I don't know what's going on here. But something is happening that looks like it's not right. You can find articles about this on Casino.org and NevadaCurrent.com. There's also some allegations from Cipriani that what's happening here is the DA is doing the bidding of Resorts World executives who don't like that the hotel is getting this kind of attention. Cipriani is facing a bail revocation hearing later this month. In fact, it may have already happened. I'm not sure. This I'm reading from an article from January 18th. We are later this month. It's actually January uh, 29th. And in fact, it will be January 31st by Monday. So I'm not sure uh, if they've revoked his bail. But I mean, when you hear this story, does this sound right to you? Does this sound like normal process of justice? It's one thing to arrest someone wrongfully because someone got the details wrong. But that's where the DA comes in and says, oh, no, no, we're not charging him for this. This is stupid. This isn't something we would ever get a conviction for. Or, hey, this looks like a non-crime. Or it's very marginally a crime. It's not worth actually charging the person. That, that's usually what you see happen. But here, it just now he's got this blackjack cheating charge and the whole thing with the larceny, plus the claim that by speaking out on Twitter that he was violating bail conditions, which he, he insists he was not told that he couldn't tweet. Uh, he, he, was, he was just told that, he, he was saying he was just told that he can't uh, contact potential witnesses, third-party vendors, or otherwise interested parties in the case, but not that he couldn't tweet. So I understand why this is bothersome here. It's bothersome to me, and I have nothing to do with it. I don't know what's going on at Resorts World aside from it failing. You know, Robin Hood may be kind of like the boy who cried wolf because, as I said, looking at his tweets in the past, I, there's a lot I saw there that I'm like, nope, this isn't true. Nope, this couldn't be true. There's just a lot of stuff I couldn't believe from him. And that's why without that video footage backing his story, I'd go, okay, the, you know, he's probably full of shit. But he looks like he's probably telling the truth here, at least, at least mostly. I really do think he just wanted to get the credit for getting this Alexander guy busted for still continuing to gamble, maybe with stolen money, while he was awaiting sentencing for embezzlement. I think he wanted the credit for it, and he, re- he reported it, and then Alexander got wind and kept recording him. He's like, what the fuck? He finally grabs the guy's phone after Resort World won't do anything, and now he finds himself in trouble. 
and he can't believe it. If someone asked me if somebody grabbed a phone that was being used to record them without their permission while they're playing blackjack and that it was shown that that person had been following them around for a month and a half doing it and that the person finally grabbed the phone and ran it to the casino cage to give it to them, to prove it. If someone asked me, is it possible this person would be charged and the DA office would actually take it to trial? I would say there's no chance. I'd say there's no chance. But here we are. Isn't that weird? It is weird. I don't know how much justice there really is in Las Vegas, especially if it involves people who are influential. So you have to watch out. Vegas is a lot more by the book than it used to be. But I I don't think all the corruption from earlier days in the city, I don't think that's all gone. I've always had the feeling it's not all gone. Moving on to our next topic, a gambler in the UK is suing to get back millions of dollars that he lost because he claims that they took advantage of him being a compulsive gambler. So this gambler is named Han Joe Lim. He's 62 years old, and he claims that a casino called Aspinall's, which is in the UK, breached its responsibilities under the 2005 Gambling Act in the UK, which I'll explain in a second what that is. He is said to be worth 40 million pounds, which is more than $50 million. He got this money from steel and computer chip manufacturing. And in 2014, was allowed to cash checks for 600,000 pounds. Then after chunking that off, he uh, asked for them to increase his credit line to 1.9 million pounds, chunked that off, then asked for another 2 million pounds in credit, which they gave him, and he chunked that off as well. This all happened in one session. So what he wants back is the 3.9 million pounds that he lost from the two credit line increases that occurred during that session. This all happened in a 72-hour session that he claims he had very short breaks and was basically there straight for three full days. He was playing a game called Double Chance Baccarat. Now, what is Double Chance Baccarat? Well, it's actually a better-for-the-player version of Baccarat that was featured in the 007 novel Casino Royale. And uh, what happened... Double Chance Baccarat is the same as regular Baccarat, except you get a little back when there's a tie. So what you can do in Baccarat is you can bet either on the player side the banker's side, or you can bet on a tie. Now, there's a very high house edge to bet on the tie. You get paid more than even money, but it's uh, a big house edge, like 14%, something insane like that. So you don't want to bet on the tie. That's a sucker bet. If you bet on player or banker, the edge is relatively low as far as casino games go. So typical Baccarat, I think it's about um, around 1%, like 1.1%. It's a little bit better on one side than the other, but it's, it's fairly close. And uh, you have no control 
over the way the hands play out in Baccarat. It's not like blackjack. The cards are just dealt out, and you're just picking which side to bet on. So the <clears throat> the player side gets cards, the banker side gets cards, and uh, whoever has the higher total is the winner. And face cards count as zeros, so there's no way to get a total above nine, because if your total goes above nine, then it rolls over. So like a, a six and an eight would give you four, not 14. So you're looking for a nine, an eight is good too, but you have no control as it's happening. Your bets are placed already. You don't make any further decisions. But what if both player and banker tie? What happens there is that the tie bet will win at that point. But as I said, there's a very big house edge on that, so you don't want to make that bet. But if you have not placed a bet on tie, then you just tie. Then you just get your money back. Well, double chance Baccarat will give you a little money for tying, even if you don't bet on the tie. So let's say you bet on player, and then there's a tie. Instead of just getting your money back, you get your money back plus anywhere between 2 and 10%. And that's decided beforehand by the house of what percentage you'd get back. So that's good for the player, obviously. Instead of just getting your money back, you get a small profit. And that decreases the house edge. It doesn't make the game positive expectation. But if you get 10% back on a tie, that brings down the house edge to like 0.2%. So I'm not sure what percentage was coming back there. But that's what he was playing, the double chance Baccarat. And that was in the Casino Royale novel. That's where most people are familiar with hearing that name of the game. So this guy Lim, who's suing them, he played for 72 hours, as I said. And there's more to this case than just the guy who lost money and claims that he's a compulsive gambler and the house took advantage of him. We've seen that type of case before. But he was already ruled that he was in contempt of court and fined 100,000 pounds for for earlier developments in this case because what happened, remember, he was given a credit line. And so when they came to collect on him, when they said, okay, well, pay the money you owe, he refused and claimed they took advantage of him. So they took him to court. And when they took him to court... As I said, he was held in contempt for giving, quote, deliberately dishonest oral evidence during the hearing, which means he lied. I'm not sure what he lied about, but the judge determined that he lied and hit him with contempt of court and fined him 100,000 pounds. So now he is trying to sue them. He lost that case, so he did have to uh, pay but now he's trying to sue them to get the money back. Now, you may wonder, how can he do that? Because he already lost when they sued him. So how can he sue them? Well, he's suing them in the high court, which is like the Supreme Court in the U.S. So he's suing them at the high court in London for the 3.9 million pounds in losses. He says that the losses should be null and void because Aspinall's breached its duty under the Gambling Act of 2005. 
that states vulnerable people should be protected from being harmed or exploited by gambling. And he's saying that instead of telling him that he needs to stop gambling until he goes to sleep because he'd been up all those hours, they kept increasing his credit line. So he's saying that the 1.9 million pound credit line and the subsequent 2 million pound credit line, both of which were given during that session, that marathon session, should never have been given. That once he chunked off that 600,000, which he's not asking for, he's not asking for uh, that back. He's saying that uh, the 1.9 million and the 2 million pound credit lines should not have been given, that after he lost his initial 600,000, that this should have been it. And they should have said, okay, you've been playing forever, go to sleep. Instead, they kept giving him more and more credit. He claimed that during the losing streak, he was visibly desperate and panicky. It says in the lawsuit, Aspinall's took advantage of the claimant's distressed attempts to claw back the losses by allowing further funds and more time to gamble. Aspinall's said they're going to be defending this matter, and they are asking the High Court in London to throw out this lawsuit. The casino was uh, opened in 1982. It was once called the White Elephant Club. But it was started in, uh, or sorry, 1962. It was started in 1962. It was once called the White Elephant Club. And it still has a white elephant at the entrance in reference to what it once was called. But this was started in its current form by John Aspinall, who it's named after. So what do I think of this? Who do I think should win this one? Because I'll tell you, there's some similarities to the situation with Terrence Watanabe, which is actually much bigger than this. Terrence Watanabe, as I've said many times on this show, is the biggest gambling whale of all time. He had inherited the fortune from the Oriental Trading Company, which his dad built up from nowhere, and his dad was dead from this point, so he inherited that fortune. And not only was he a compulsive gambler, but he was a compulsive gambler with no skill. And when I say no skill, I mean no skill. Like they, they said he made some of the dumbest decisions at the tables they've ever seen. So he was betting at super high stakes and he was making incredibly dumb decisions that were just guaranteeing him not just to lose in the long run and the medium run, but the short run too. He was just making horrible decisions and he was constantly drinking and taking pain pills and he was also just not in a coherent state a lot of the time, which ended up figuring into what happened. He actually got banned from the win for compulsive gambling. Steve Wynn himself called Watanabe in and said, I think you're a compulsive gambler. I'd like to talk to you about that. They had a discussion, and Steve Wynn said to him, and I give Wynn credit for this, regardless of his other issues with sexually harassing women and all that, I will give him credit for this, in that instead of taking all this money from this whale, he said to Watanabe, you know what? I think you're a compulsive gambler. You have not convinced me otherwise. And even though we could win a lot of money from you by letting you continue to gamble here, I don't feel right about that, and I'm going to have to ban you from the property. And he banned him. So Watanabe went out to Caesars and was like, hey, would you like my action? And they're like, yes. So, so they took his action, and he alleged that they were giving him more and more alcohol, even though it was clear he was super drunk and they shouldn't anymore, and that they were giving him pain pills that they were acquiring illegally for him that he was addicted to as well, and that between the pills and the alcohol, he didn't know what the hell was going on when he was chunking off all this money. So he was saying that 
he should get back the entire $60 million that he lost with them. And Caesars was saying, no, not only don't, are we going to give this back to you, but you owe us a ton of money you took on credit. He took tens of millions on credit, which he hadn't paid back. They thought he was good for it, but he wasn't. And they said, you owe us this. Now, first of all, I don't know how he's going to pay it because he was broke, but they were demanding that he pays what he owes and claiming that he took credit for money he didn't really have and lied to them. And he said, no, not only shouldn't I have to pay that, you should give me back everything I lost because you were violating the law by continuing to serve me alcohol and get me these pain pills, which you shouldn't have gotten in the first place, in order to keep me in a state where I was out of it and didn't know what I was doing. So that was uh, the big case there. And they ended up settling on both sides where they just both walked away. So Caesars eventually agreed, we're not going to go after you for your marker where you lost a bunch of money. And he agreed he's not going to try to get back the money he already lost. So that was the end of that. They actually created a rank above seven stars for Watanabe called chairman. And he was the only one ever to have chairman. It was a special rank for him because he didn't feel seven stars was exclusive enough. So they made chairman just for him. And then they retired chairman as soon as he was no longer gambling there. So that sounds very similar to this, right? Now, a different country, of course, that was in Vegas. And this is in the UK. But I've seen these types of claims before. And I don't like it because it is a free roll for players to claim that they didn't know what they were doing because they were drunk or they were in a bad emotional state or they were desperate or they have a compulsive gambling problem, whatever it is. People have to take responsibility for their own actions. Now, let's say the casino finds a mentally retarded person who also inherited a lot of money and convinced them to come into the casino and start playing. And the person is mentally retarded and doesn't even understand what's going on. And they just guide him to bet his fortune and lose it all there. In a case like that, I would say, yeah, the guy should get the money back because he was clearly manipulated into coming in there. And this is someone who does not have the mental capacity to know what he's doing. But a normal adult who happens to have a gambling problem, who goes in there to gamble at high stakes and chunks it off, even if he chunks it off during moments of desperation, even if they give him credit lines when he appears to have a compulsive gambling issue, the way to handle this is to find the property, but not to give the gambler back the money he lost, but just to find the property, maybe find them something substantial. And that accomplishes two things. That stops the casino from violating responsible gaming laws, where they will stand to lose more money in the fines than they win from the players. And and the fine should be along the lines of how much was won via the violation. So they shouldn't hit them with a slap on the wrist fine. It shouldn't be a million-dollar fine for a player that you just won $20 from. It should be corresponding to the amount won. But there should be stiff fines for violating responsible gaming laws, but the fine should go to the government. It should not go to the player, because otherwise this encourages players to make, make false claims in order to get their money back that they lost gambling. Because adults who walk into a casino and knowingly bet on something and lose, that's their own problem. That's their own fault. If they know what they're doing, that's their own fault. So the casino should not have to pay them back. But if the casino violates the law, they should also have their own consequences. So I do not believe, I don't know about UK law, but morally I don't think this guy deserves a penny back. You also can't feel too bad for him 
This is not another Terrence Watanabe who shot off his entire fortune. This guy shot off 4 million pounds, and he is said to be worth 40 million pounds. So while that's not chump change, it shows that this guy is still very rich. In fact, I think it's safe to say that even after this big loss, this guy is richer than everybody who listens to this radio show. And also richer than the host of this radio show. <laughs> so I have to say that it's hard to feel bad for this guy. Not only was it his own fault that this happened, but he's also still incredibly rich. And that also makes it more offensive. You, you could almost understand this if the guy lost his entire fortune. And it's like, oh my God, what did I do? They took advantage of me. No, I mean, he lost a lot of money, but it's not like he's been devastated by this. His life's going to pretty much go on the exact same way. And he should just say, okay, I got to get my gambling under control. I shouldn't set foot in another casino. I'm done. Fortunately, I still have you know, 36 million pounds to my name, which is more than just about everybody. So lesson learned, I won't do it again. Fortunately, I'm 62. I probably won't even have time to spend 36 million pounds. So I'm fine. That's what he should say. All right. What time do you think it is now? Oh, uh, you know what time it is. You know what time it is. Hello, can I Nigel Fabersham here? You know, last week when I introduced this segment, I had no idea it was going to be a tedious battle with American Express over a rental car. I mean, are we really to that point in the show where we're spending substantial time discussing issues with credit cards and rental cars. I mean, who gives a bloody rot about this whole thing? I think we're getting quite thin with scraping this barrel, and Druff needs to end this segment before he embarrasses himself further. Anyway, on with it. Thank you, Colonel Fabersham. I'm sorry you don't like my selection of topics, but I don't choose the topics. I can only pick from a selection of real-life things that happened. I could make these up. I could just fabricate these things, and you guys wouldn't know the difference. You weren't there. You wouldn't know if these things really happened to me or not. But it's the truth. I always will tell you true stories in Druffy Time Theater, and today is no exception. I'm going to tell you about how I got scammed on a shore excursion from Holland America Cruise Line during the infamous... 2006 Party Poker Cruise. First, a bit about that cruise. I've talked about that before. But just a reminder. The 2006 Party Poker Cruise was an epic cruise that had been going on for a few years by then, but it was an epic cruise that pretty much was indicative of the state of online poker and the poker community in 2006. It was crazy. Tons of known players were on this cruise. So many people who were prominent in poker, especially online poker, in 2006 were on this cruise. This was a cruise party poker held every year. They had a $10,000 tournament on that cruise. And to show you how antiquated this cruise was from the poker standpoint, the $10,000 tournament was not No Limit Hold'em. No, 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 no. It was a $10,000 Limit Hold'em tournament. <laughs> Because Limit Hold'em was once the dominant game. 
But 03 changed everything because everyone saw Chris Moneymaker win at No Limit Hold'em on TV in 03, and the World Poker Tour was No Limit Hold'em. So Limit Hold'em, while still going strong, was dwarfed in popularity by No Limit Hold'em, especially in tournaments. So this was the last year before they changed it, but it was still a Limit Hold'em tournament. And I actually paid my way to go on that cruise most people on that cruise won it in some way because they constantly had satellites on Party Poker to win your way on there. And this, was, of course, was when Party Poker and all the other sites were in the U.S. market. But I paid my way. I heard it was a good tournament because it was Limit Hold'em, and there were a lot of people on there who weren't that good at Limit Hold'em. There were a lot of funny and interesting stories from that cruise. I always like to tell the John Robert Ballon story. He was known, but not as well-known as he is today. This was before he was on Survivor. This was before he was in all these private high-stakes games. He was on TV sometimes and seen as kind of like an action-crazy player with a gregarious personality. But he didn't yet have the massive notoriety. He was just kind of a guy in poker who was known and was on TV sometimes. So... A lot of people took the same flight from L.A. to Fort Lauderdale. That's where the cruise was going from. And it was a red-eye flight. In fact, I was surprised how many poker players took a red-eye flight, but I guess they didn't want to get a hotel. They just wanted to fly at a time that would land closest to when you can board. And I did that, too. So it landed around 7.30 a.m. Eastern time, but you could board until 11 a.m., so you had to kill some time in between. So a bunch of players were hanging out in this lounge area of the airport, kind of figuring out what they're going to do for the next three and a half hours. John Robert Belland was among those people. And John Robert, it turned out, he did not have a ticket to get on that cruise, nor did he have any money with him. Yeah. So what was he going to do? Why would he fly all the way to Fort Lauderdale, flat broke, and with no ticket to get on the cruise, with three and a half hours before everyone was going to board and leave him behind? Well, he was such a hustler, and he was so confident in his skills that he knew he'd find a way to get on. So the first thing he did was go around that lounge area and ask everybody if they have a roommate. He was looking for somebody who was a single not necessarily romantically single, but somebody who is single as far as on the cruise where they're staying by themselves. And the way cruise ship rooms work is that they accommodate two people. So once you already have a room, you can usually get the second person on board for free or for very cheap. So that's what he was doing, is looking for somebody who had an open spot in his room. So he was asking, asking, asking. Finally found Fabrice Solier. And he said to Fabrice, hey, uh, can I be your roommate? And Fabrice said, no, I don't want a roommate. I'm going alone on purpose. I don't want someone in the room with me. And Jean Robert said, oh, no, 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 I know that. I'm not going to stay with you. And then Fabrice says, well, what are you going to do, sleep in the hallway? And he says, no, I have people I can sleep with, but they're just going to let me crash on the floor in their room, so I can't officially be on that room. I have to officially be on someone's room to get on board. It's not going to cost you anything. I just need to be your paper roommate. And then I promise I won't spend any time in your room. You can have your privacy. And I'm going to spend it with my friends in their room. They have a suite. I'm just going to sleep on the floor in the living room or sleep on the couch, whatever. 
So Fabrice was like, no, you know, I, I don't really feel comfortable with this. <laughs> he, was, he didn't want to do it. Well, uh, John Robert kept hassling him until he finally reluctantly said yes. So John Robert had his way onto the ship. He then went to Dustin Neverwin Wolf and De- Devin Miller, who did have this suite, and that's what he was targeting, but he hadn't told them yet what he's planning. And he's like, hey, guys, uh, I have a way to get on the ship. I didn't have one before. I do have a way to get on the ship, but I can't stay in that room. The guy's not going to let me. Can I crash in the living room of your suite? And they're like, uh, yeah, okay, whatever. So they let him crash the floor of their suite, which he was planning to do if he got on, but he didn't tell them that in advance. He didn't want them to like think about it. He wanted to put them on the spot. So they agreed to that. So now he had his way on the ship, and he had a place to sleep. Then he went around the room and found someone who was willing to put him into the 10K tournament. And then once already on board, he found someone to stake him in the cash games. So a guy who showed up in Fort Lauderdale with three and a half hours before everybody was going to board and leave him behind. Had no money, had no room, no ticket. He got on the ship. He got a place to sleep. He got a stake for the 10K tournament. And he got a stake for the high-stakes cash games that were running on board. Is that impressive or what? John Robert Belland. Ask him. Ask him if this happened. He will tell you what happened. Also on board, he met the only single girl in the entire cruise because every girl on that cruise was with a dude. Not a single girl, to my knowledge, went on that cruise without a boyfriend or husband. Not one. I shouldn't say not one. There was one who went with her father wasn't anyone known in poker, but there's an 18-year-old girl, a former bodybuilder. John Robert was like 36 at the time, I think. Former bodybuilder, former female bodybuilder who got in a car accident the previous year and had to give up her bodybuilding career. So she was no longer muscular. She just looked like a normal girl. She was pretty and she was only 18 and she was on the ship there with her dad, kind of bored. No friends there, no one to hang out with, no boyfriend, and Jean-Robert found her, and I remember walking by and seeing him in the jacuzzi with her, and I'm saying, who is this girl he's in the jacuzzi with? He didn't come here with a girl. Nope, he, he scooped up the one girl who was on the cruise alone, and he got with her. <laughs> and then I asked him afterward if it's going to call her after the cruise was over, and he said no. She was too depressing because she complained too much about how she's depressed that she can't bodybuild anymore. <laughs> so she was his cruise girlfriend. A lot of other stuff happened on that cruise. I won't go into all the rest of the stories, but that, that's one. I know I've told it before. But that was the party poker cruise. I was on it. I was with my girlfriend, Miri. This cruise was not something that just went around the ocean. It had its normal port stops. Now, back in 06, I was still stupid in the way I did cruising. One of the stupid things I did was I would do these ship excursions. Excursions meaning when it stops at its ports, you would do an activity planned through the ship. You pay through the ship and you do it exactly the way they make you do it at the time they make you do it. So there's no freedom. You have to be completely on their schedule and do exactly what they want you to do. 
But it's easy. You don't have to do any planning. In fact, you can do it on the ship. In fact, I got on the ship. I didn't pre-plan anything. I just get on the ship and go through the activity list. And for each port, I, I picked what we wanted to do. And that's what I had done on previous cruises I'd been on. My dad had done this a different way for quite some time. Whenever I had taken cruises with my parents prior to that, my dad had always either arranged private tours beforehand where we would meet the tour guide off the ship and then he would take us around and bring us back and we wouldn't be doing it through the ship. Or he'd rent a car and, and we'd go around on our own and he'd be driving. Usually we did some kind of private tour because these are usually countries which are difficult to drive or get around in, but whatever, it, it was a combination of the two. And uh, he said he did that because he didn't like the way the ship did its tours and that it's, it's a big group of people and the whole thing's so slow and you don't see that much. And by the time you have a bunch of people in your family, it gets very expensive because it's charged per person and you're just on this crappy bus. I mean, he, he had good points, but somehow it didn't resonate with me. And I'm like, no, 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 I'll just do it with the ship. So it was only after this cruise that I learned that my dad was right and that I should have done it that way all along. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes I do things a different way and then I learn my parents were right in the first place that I should have done it the way they did. So this is one of those cases. But this was the one that really resonated with me that pushed me to never again take any kind of ship excursion unless there's no other way. So I forgot what we did in all the ports, but there's one that's very memorable, and that is the dolphin swim excursion. The dolphin swim excursion was in Jamaica. We stopped in Jamaica, I think in Ocho Rios, and there was an excursion that sounded pretty cool where they take you to, quote, swim with the dolphins. And the exact description of the excursion was swim with the friendly dolphins, uh, blah, 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 blah. But it, the, the important part of this whole thing is it said swim with the friendly dolphins. There were other excursions at the same place that were a little bit cheaper that involved seeing the dolphins or interacting with them that was not dolphin swim. In fact, I think there were two lower levels of this excursion. One of them was like uh, a dolphin experience where you just kind of stand on the side and don't even get in the water and they do tricks for you or something like that, or maybe you touch it. And another one is called dolphin touch where you get in the water and touch the dolphin. But I, of course, wanted the swim. And I had heard about these before and it seemed cool. The dolphin swim, from what I knew of it, and I'm not talking about this particular place. I'm talking about dolphin swims that they have all over the place, any of these cruise ports in the Caribbean, there's not all of them, but a lot of them have these dolphin swims. I'd never done one before, but I'd heard about them. And you actually do swim and the dolphins actually do push you or pull you. So it's not just a matter of touching the dolphin. The dolphin's actually interacting with you and you are actually moving under the dolphin's power. So that's what I was expecting. I didn't exactly know how it would go. But I pictured in some way that I would be pushed or pulled by the dolphin, and it seemed cool. So I signed up for it. It was uh, semi-expensive. I don't remember how much it was, but uh, it was semi-expensive, but not super expensive. Maybe like $80 a person or something. So we get there, and uh, the whole thing looks like 
a tourist trap, to say the least. Now, I expected that. I mean, who's doing this? It's not local Jamaicans. It's, it's obviously for tourists. But this was like an extreme tourist trap. For example, on the grounds, they also built this like nature walk, but you're not really in nature. It's like a fake nature walk where you're walking around and seeing things that they've staged to look like nature. I'm not even kidding. Then they also had a, uh, they had a bunch of singers there that are sitting there playing the guitar, singing Jamaican songs. They're kind, of, they're kind of meant to look like just kind of street guys that are sitting there singing like you'd see in Jamaica, like singing for tips, except these are guys who are employees of the place that are scattered around there specifically to do that to create the mood. But I'm thinking, okay, you know, whatever. They, they've got to make this kind of uh, gimmicky for the tourists. I, I, I don't care for those type of things, but I thought I'm really here just to do the dolphin swim. I don't really give a crap about this other stuff that's nearby. And I don't care if it's overly touristy. Well, then they put us all in life fests and we're assigned a group, you know, the A group, the B group, the C group. And we all sit down on the side until they call our group. Okay, A group, come. Okay, B group, come. So as I'm waiting for our group to be called, and Miri's with me too, as I'm waiting for our group to be called, I'm looking in the water and... I'm not seeing anyone being pushed or pulled by the dolphin. I'm seeing people kind of go out to the center of the enclosed pool. When I say enclosed, see, it wasn't the open ocean. It was ocean water, but then they blocked it off with a wall to where you're not connected to the open ocean. And also so the dolphins can't escape, more importantly. And uh, so you kind of swim out to the middle of this, and then you kind of just float there with your life vest. And then the dolphins go by, and you touch them as they go by, and then they they jump and do tricks. That's what I'm watching going on. So I'm going, okay, well, that must be the dolphin touch. I know about this one. Then I look over. I'm a little confused because I look over, and there's another group of people standing right where you get in the water, where they're not going anywhere. You just get in the water, and, and right there at that wall, at the closest wall, you're just standing there, and the dolphin's going by, and you're touching it. I go, well, what's this one? Like, I remember there's, there was some sort of thing that was outside the water. Then there was one that was the dolphin touch in the water, and there was a dolphin swim. I'm going, what, what the hell are these two? Because they both kind of look like a form of dolphin touch. So wh- where's the dolphin swim? I go, okay, well, I wasn't worrying that much because I didn't know what those were, but I knew the ours is dolphin swim, so I have nothing to worry about, right? I mean, the ship Holland America wouldn't contract for a dolphin swim that isn't actually a dolphin swim, would they? Well, I think I, you know where this is going. So they finally call our group. We get in the water, and they tell us to go out to the same spot where I saw that first group at. So we swim out, not with any help of the dolphin. We, before the dolphin even shows up, we swim out to this spot kind of in the middle of the pool. And I still remember the dolphin's name. The dolphin's name was Shuggy. <laughs> so they say, this is Shuggy. And I go, okay, well, that's your dolphin. I go, okay. Shuggy then goes by each of us and swims by slowly, and we all touch the dolphin as it goes by. Uh, then they take a picture. They The dolphin stops in front of each person and puts its head out of the water, and you put your head next to it, and they take pictures of it, and they constantly tell you to 
Okay, smile for the camera that direction. Smile for the camera this direction. It's like it's like a picture shoot. And I'm going, what what is all this? So I'm I'm waiting for the swimming part, but I'm assuming they're just doing this crap so they can sell you expensive pictures later. I'm thinking, okay, that's fine. I'm not going to buy this crap, but you know, let it, let them do this. Let's get to the good stuff. Then they have Shogi doing these tricks. So it has nothing to do with any of us. Shogi then goes away from us further back in the pool, and. They say, clap for your dolphin. I go, what? So then we clap like trained seals. As you're all clapping for Shuggy, and then Shuggy jumps out of the water, does a twist in the air, and goes back under, like, kind of like we're at SeaWorld watching a show. I go, okay. I mean, that's mildly interesting, but it's somewhere why I'm here. I want, I want to do the damn dolphin swim. So then we're watching trick after trick after trick, and then they bring Shuggy back over. I'm thinking, okay, finally, the dolphin swim. Nope, it's another touch session with Shuggy. We get to touch Shuggy again. And then, okay, everybody, I hope you've enjoyed it. Time to get out of the pool. (laughs) Remember there was a guy in the group who reminded me a lot of Jeff Goldblum, and he was very unhappy. (laughs) So he started saying, you know what? Uh, Like when they were doing the tricks in there, he's like, "Uh, I think I'd actually like a little more time with Shuggy and not just watching from back here. And then he was complaining as we were getting out. I forgot what he said then, but uh, picture Jeff Goldblum saying this stuff, and that's pretty much what was happening there. So he was unhappy, but he he didn't outwardly complain to anybody. He was just kind of remarking to the rest of us. But the good thing about Jeff Goldblum there is he, he made me realize that I wasn't crazy here, that it wasn't that I misread something. It wasn't that I had expectations which weren't realistic because Jeff Goldblum here was very disappointed and felt he got ripped off. Now, you know who was really pissed was Miri. And it usually didn't go that way. Usually if we had some sort of disappointing experience, whether dining out or traveling, that I was always the one who was more irritated of the two. Even if she was irritated also and agreed with me, I was the one who was visibly more bothered by it. But in this case, no. In this case, she was furious. She was really mad. She was convinced we got scammed. She was letting the employees know there that this is a scam. And uh, they said, do you want a picture? She's like, I'm not giving any more to your company after you already scammed us. <laughs> so I understand why she was mad. I just never, never seen her that mad. And it was me who paid for the whole thing, too. But she was she was furious about it. She felt that we just got totally ripped off, which we did. She was right. I still wasn't sure what I could do, though. Like, it's not like there was a dolphin swim going there that I could say, hey, that's what we paid for. It just wasn't happening. Every group was was doing one of these dolphin touches. and Nobody was doing the swim. It looked like they just didn't do a dolphin swim there. So I even asked them before we left. I said, this thing to the dolphin swim, I expected we'd actually be swimming with the dolphin, not that we'd swim to the middle of the pool ourselves and touch the dolphin and watch it do tricks. And they said, some days we do. They said, some days we have this, but today we don't. Certain days of the week we have it, certain days of the week we don't have it. I go, well, that's what I paid for. They said, no, we know what you paid for and you got what you paid for. What you're talking about is the dolphin, I forgot what it was called, dolphin experience, something stupid like that. And that's even more money. But what you paid for is what you got. What's called, what we call the dolphin swim is what you got, but what you're describing we have too, but only on you know, Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and today's Tuesday. So it's not even like I could demand that they give me what I was expecting. They just didn't do it on that particular day. So, okay, I wasn't going to get satisfaction from them. Furthermore, I hadn't paid them directly. I paid the ship. 
So there was no refund they could give me. So I got on the bus back to the ship. And there were people on the bus, of course, who had the same experience we did and were also disappointed. The way the bus worked is it came around every 15 minutes or so, because remember that stupid contrived hike they had there. You could do that. You, know, you could spend whatever amount of time there you wanted. So we were done and we're going back right away, but the bus just keeps going back and forth, back and forth, because everybody has a different time for their, uh, their dolphin swim. But we caught the next bus out. I don't think Jeff Goldblum was on it. I don't know where he went, but I remember there's a couple sitting next to us and Miri was complaining how we just got scammed. And then this woman who looked like around 50, she was there with her husband and she's like, well, I wouldn't say it was a scam. I'll say it was disappointing. I'll say it wasn't what we were expecting. I wouldn't quite say scam, but yeah, we're disappointed. We wouldn't do this again. Nobody, nobody said Yep, this was right. Yeah, this this was totally what we were expecting. Yeah, we swam with the dolphins. Like Everybody felt ripped off. But some were just kind of rationalizing. Okay, kind of disappointing, but whatever. We won't do this again, but fine. Not everything is what you hope it's going to be. That was kind of the attitude of that older couple. I say older couple. I'm that age now, but whatever. <laughs> that was the attitude of that couple. They're older than us. And... Everybody had their different levels of anger slash disappointment. I was actually more mellow about this than I usually am. It was almost like Miri took on my role in that one and I took on hers. I don't know why, but I just was feeling more mellow that day. And I wasn't at first going to make a big deal about it. I was going to just eat this one. And then... As I was walking back to the ship, I got off the bus. As I'm walking back to the ship, I recognized somebody. I recognized this Australian guy who was the one in charge of all the excursions. I forgot if he was the, quote, cruise director. I forgot what his exact title was. But he was the one, he was the officer on the ship who was in charge of these excursions. He's the one who you complain to. You can't go higher than him. And there he was. And I knew who he was because... He introduced himself on the ship and I, I, whatever it was, I was very aware of who this guy was and what his rank was there. So I thought, okay, perfect. I will say something. The guy's right here. In fact, as I walked by, he even asked something like, uh, how was your day? So I thought, okay, he wants to know how my day was. I'm going to let him know. So I told him. I said, I don't know what happened here, but we were promised a dolphin swim and we didn't get a dolphin swim. We got like a dolphin float, a, dol- a dolphin touch. We, we didn't ride on the dolphin. The dolphin didn't pull us. The dolphin didn't push us. There was no swimming at all with the dolphin. We swam out before the dolphin showed up. The dolphin did some tricks in the other side of the pool. The dolphin came up and we touched it. We took some stupid pictures and that was it. There was no swimming. So he said, well, from what I've heard, everybody has always been satisfied with the dolphin swim. I said, well, I don't know what you're hearing because every single person we talked to was unhappy and felt disappointed, anywhere from disappointed to ripped off. He says, well, I'm I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm sorry, let me let me do the right voice here. I'm sorry you feel that way. Uh, people, they seem to enjoy the dolphin swim. I'm sorry it doesn't meet your expectations, but uh, we have not had any complaints about this. So I said to him, well, look, you either 
provided the service that you said you're going to provide or you didn't. Now, I realize that maybe you guys don't realize it because you're not the actual ones providing the service. You're contracting uh, with this company in Jamaica to do it. But bottom line is you're the one who sold it to me. You're the one who collected the money between you and them if you want to work something out to get a refund, but I want a refund. If you want to get back from them, you can, but I want a refund. I did not get what was offered. Oh, no, no, no. We, we can't give you a refund. We're not going to give you a refund. You signed up for a di- dolphin swim? We gave you a dolphin swim. You swam with the dolphins. Were, were you in the water? Were you in the water? Did, did you get in the water? Did you swim at all? And was there a dolphin there? Was there? As well, there was. Did you swim? Yes. That then it was a dolphin swim. It's not up to you to determine what denotes a dolphin swim. And to me, it sounds like you swam and were with a dolphin. It was a dolphin swim. Like, seriously, that was his logic, that if I swam at all, and if a dolphin was present, I did a dolphin swim. (laughs) I said, that's not what the brochure said, though. It was very misleading. It was not misleading. I never get a complaint. It's misleading. Everybody's happy with it. You're the first one. I said, all right. Do you have the brochure? Oh, yeah, I have the brochure right here. So he, he whips out the brochure. He had it with him. And I said, ah, look right there. Swim with the friendly dolphins. See it? I didn't swim with the friendly dolphins. I didn't swim with any dolphin. Nobody swam with a dolphin. I swam out before a dolphin was there. I floated. I did not swim anywhere at that point. I floated in the same spot. The dolphin did a bunch of tricks. I didn't move from that spot. All I did was touch the dolphin. It was not a dolphin swim. Well, I don't know. It may say that, but uh, you know, you, you technically swam, and the, the dolphin was in the pool with you swimming. So, it, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's a dolphin swim. We cannot give you a refund. <laughs> Keep in mind that there's a incredible profit margin on all of these excursions. The Jamaican company that puts this on sells these at a very low rate to the cruise ship, who then keeps the difference. So they're making a fortune on this. They're making a fortune on all the excursions. And they don't do anything. They contract a cheap-ass bus to go back and forth between the ship and where the dolphin swim was, which wasn't very far. It was probably like a five-minute drive or less. And the bus just goes back and forth. I'm sure it's very cheap for them to hire. And then they get these tickets into the dolphin swim at a very cut rate, and charge more than full price for it to the passengers. So I'm not complaining about that. I think it's stupid to do that. You should just go on your own and pay for it yourself. That's what I would have done today if I were to go to a dolphin swim. But back then, I did it through the ship for convenience, and it was way marked up, and they were making a fortune on it. And they need to stand behind their product. And if the product that's being given is not matching the description, they need to make it right. And then talk to the dolphin swim and say, hey guys, you got to give what's in the description here. Or we got to change the description. Whatever it is. They can even say, Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, we have this. Other days we have this. But whatever it is, if they sell you a dolphin swim, it needs to be a dolphin swim. And I tried to reason with this guy. I kept telling him over and over, this was not a dolphin swim. It says, swim with the friendly dolphins. I did not swim with any dolphins. No swimming took place once the dolphin showed up. Everybody was unhappy. Everybody said it was a scam. Everybody's disappointed. It wasn't just me. Now, I could be making that up. He doesn't know if I'm telling the truth. But I have a feeling I'm not the first one who complained. He wouldn't do it. 
He said, no, absolutely no, not, absolutely not. I'm not giving you a refund. I'm not authorizing that. I don't see it's justified. He just wouldn't budge. Officers usually overcorrect problems on cruise ships. You shouldn't go bother officers with bullshit. Like you should really try to deal with problems at the appropriate level. First, the lowest level, then go up from there. The officer should only get involved in whatever department it is if you're just not getting satisfaction anywhere. I have rarely taken any complaints to officers. The only reason I brought it to this guy is he happened to be there and ask me how my day was. So I answered. I'm not going to say it was great. (laughs) I, I felt I got ripped off there. I wanted to tell him. But when you do talk to officers, they tend to be nice and accommodating. And as long as you're not asking for something outrageous, they'll usually do it just to keep you happy because they have the power. They're officers in the ship. They're the highest ranked people on the ship. And they have a lot of leeway to make decisions. So if this guy was doing his job right, provided he knew I wasn't lying, which I'm sure he did know, or he could have, of course, always called the place and just checked that what I was saying was true. He could have said, well, let me check into it. and I'll get back to you. He didn't say that. He acknowledged that what I was describing was probably the way it really was, but he counts that as a dolphin swim. What he should have done is said, yeah, you're correct. Uh, I'm going to have them change the description on that. I don't know why this is like that. I'll give you a refund. I think what he was worried about is I'm going to go tell other people. I didn't tell him I'm going to tell other people, but I think he was worried that if he gives me a refund, then it's going to justify everybody who took the dolphin swim to get a refund. And soon enough, he's going to have hundreds of people asking for refunds. I have a feeling that's what was going on. It's also possible that this was on purpose. It's possible he was aware of this, but they didn't want to acknowledge to the passengers that on certain days of the week, they don't do a real dolphin swim. And so they just sell it as dolphin swim every single day. And some days it's good and some days it's terrible. Because I'm going to tell you in a second why I think that might have been true. Anyway, he wouldn't budge. So I was pretty shocked by this. And Miri wasn't with me as I was arguing. She walked on there. I told her I'll meet her back at the room. She didn't need to stand there as I was arguing. But I got back to the room and I broke her the bad news that we're not getting anything. She's like, what? You, you talked to the director of this whole thing and he's not giving you anything? Did you, did you tell him it wasn't a swim? Did you tell him we didn't swim? I said, yeah, I told him everything. She, she almost had a hard time believing that I, I could have told him an accurate story of what happened there and that he would have not refunded it. I said, he's absolutely refusing. He, I even asked him, can you investigate? Can you call there and ask? He wouldn't do it. Because, as I said, it wasn't that he didn't believe me. It's that he didn't believe that my description made it to where... I didn't get what I paid for. He felt the way I described it, I did get what I paid for, which is crazy. So then I started feeling like, you know, maybe that's just the terminology. Maybe everywhere calls it a dolphin swim, even though you're not really swimming. Maybe you have to go the one above it. Maybe you have to get this dolphin experience. Maybe it was just my ignorance of the terminology, though I still didn't blame myself because you know, you're not expected to know about the dolphin swim terminology before signing up for this. This stuff is all aimed at people who know nothing. All these cruise ship excursions, they're very, very clear. They're supposed to be very clear about everything, about what you're getting, what you're not getting. And so you don't have to be knowledgeable about any of this stuff. That's the whole point of doing it through the cruise lines. It's easy. You sign up for it and they take care of everything and they inform you of everything. So here they definitely failed. Well, I got no resolution. And there was no one I could go to about this because I went to the highest person on board and he refused. So I did ask the guy 
who I can contact since he's refusing. I said, well, who's above you? And of course, he said, nobody. I said, okay, well, I mean, who's above you in the company? I know nobody's above you on the ship, but who's above you in the company that I complain to? Uh, I suppose I can give you the, the email address of uh, corporate. So he gave me the corporate email address to complain. Before I wrote my email, I told some people on the ship what had happened. Well, one of the people immediately told me, that's funny, because I didn't do it this cruise, because I did it on a previous cruise with Holland America, and it was called Dolphin Swim, and it was great. The dolphin pushed me, the dolphin pulled me, it was exactly what I expected. I really enjoyed it. And I said, are you sure? He said, oh yeah, I wouldn't forget that. What you're describing is nothing what happened to me. And I said, you got this in Holland, America? And he said, yes. Now, it wasn't the same port, but I have a feeling, especially because they told me over there at the place that on certain days of the week they do a real dolphin swim, I have a feeling that they just, uh, certain days, I don't know why, maybe they didn't have the right staff or whatever, but certain days they weren't doing a real dolphin swim and they just called it the dolphin swim and they didn't want to give up the revenue they would have otherwise gotten. Because if they described it accurately, if they said, well, if, if your port day is on uh, Monday, Tuesday, Saturday, you know, whatever, that you're only going to swim into the middle of the pool and, and watch the dolphin jump and do tricks, I would have never signed up for it. I only signed up for it, as did most people, as did Jeff Goldblum there, because we thought we are going to do a dolphin swim. So I think it was an intentional way to get people to sign up these high markup dolphin swims that aren't real dolphin swims on days when they're not doing it. That, that's what I think, but I'll never know. So I didn't have a lot of confidence that I would be able to email corporate and get a different answer if the officer on the ship is telling me I'm crazy. But I took a shot with it. Got back, emailed them, and I got back a response in a few days. And the response said, Dear Mr. Ritellis, we are sorry that you were disappointed with our dolphin swim, swim excursion. While we do not see any issue with the service provided because we want to keep all customers satisfied and because your satisfaction is important to us, we are refunding both tickets in full for the Dolphin Swim. And that was that. Would I have sued them like that sound effect would imply? No, but I would have charged it back on my credit card. That was my plan to do next if they refused. I actually thought there was only a low chance they would refund me. This guy was so confident that not only did I get what I paid for, but that there was no point to write to corporate because they were going to say the same thing he did. He even told me that. So I just took the shot just in case. It's not even like he said, well, this is above my ability to refund, but write to corporate. He, he, he just said the final word is no, and that's going to be the word. And it was only when I demanded to speak to someone above him they said, well, the only way is to email corporate. So I did. So I don't know if they still continued with that. Also, I spoke to somebody else who had been to that same place in Ocho Rios. This is like a year later, who told me they did a normal dolphin swim, not off Holland America. But I think it was just the day of the week. I think that's what happened. So I still felt cheated that I didn't get my dolphin swim. Yeah, I had the money back. But I wasted my day in Ocho Rios. I could have done something more interesting there. We actually went back out. We did do something a little more interesting. We were so disappointed with that day, we went back out and we actually took a tour. This was kind of foreshadowing the future. This is the only tour we took that wasn't a ship tour. 
because we already had our ship tour and it was a fail. So we went back out and just some random Jamaican guy <laughs> took us around. And uh, I remember we said, can we see the real Ocho Rios, not the touristy part? He's like, okay. So the guy took us around to all these just residential areas of Ocho Rios. <laughs> we went to like a little locals restaurant. We, we hung out in the locals neighborhood. Uh, I played some weird gambling machine for like quarters that I didn't quite understand, but I played it just for the novelty. And uh, it wasn't actual quarters because it was Jamaican money, but this is like the equivalent of about a quarter per hand. I didn't win. It was kind of hard to understand what I was doing. But I mean, the guy gave us what he said. He, he did give us a real Jamaican tour. Though I remember what was annoying at the end was that I gave the guy a pretty decent tip above what he had charged, which I always think is stupid when it's just like an independent guy who's working for himself, which this guy was. is just a dude who's hanging around the port. And yeah, you could say maybe we're taking a risk that uh, something bad was going to happen. I, I, I didn't get that vibe from him. He was dangerous and I was right. But when we got back and I gave him the tip, he was very unhappy. He actually said, that's it? That's what you're giving? I said, no, I gave you more than what you said. But that's it? You know, I, I gave you exactly what you wanted. I said, I know. And we agreed to a price. And I'm giving you more. I'm giving you a tip. And he's like, ah. And he just you know slams the door and speeds away. So the guy became a dick at the end. I mean, the, he did give us what we wanted, but that was the point of negotiating a price. He didn't give us more than we wanted. He just gave us... Uh, Kind of a tour of the real Ocho Rios, Jamaica. Still, I felt cheated that I didn't have my dolphin swim. It's not like I just go back home and do a dolphin swim. So I rectified this six years later. In 2013, I'm no longer with Miri anymore. And of course, I have uh, Benjamin. And Benjamin was quite young at that point. But we were on a cruise from New Orleans... And it stopped in Cozumel, Mexico, which, among other activities there, was a dolphin swim. So I thought, hmm, this is the chance. But I am not going to book it through the ship, and I am not going to fall for any bullshit. So I called the place beforehand, (laughs) and I asked them, is this a real dolphin swim? And at first they didn't understand what I'm asking. And... I explained it to them, and they they spoke good English there. But it was funny. They they didn't understand why I was so concerned. They kept saying, yeah, yeah, you you swim with a dolphin, and yeah, it it pushes you, and it pulls you, and uh, uh, they're they're describing to me all the things the dolphin does. And yes, there's a a touching portion, too, and yeah, we take pictures, but yeah. I said, so the dolphin really does, like, pull me across the pool area, right? Yes. The dolphin really pushes me. They said, yes. And I said, you're sure about that? Yes. And so there's no chance I'm going to get there, and we're just going to touch the dolphin, right? And they said, no, why do you keep asking that? (laughs) And I said, well, I had a bad experience uh, six years ago. I got ripped off. I guess it was seven years ago. It was 06 to 13. And I said, no, no, no. And I said, said, nothing would cause that to change, right? I said, no, if if, if the weather's bad, we may cancel the whole thing, but we're never going to just downgrade this to a dolphin touch. I said, okay. It was a different country. It was Mexico. So I was still a little bit nervous. Still a little bit nervous. It's going to be disappointing. And we went there. Now, for Benjamin, it was only going to be a dolphin touch because he was uh, still a toddler. He was basically just going to float in the water and touch the dolphins. And 
since only one person could do it at a time, it was fine because one of us would be with him. Whoever's not with the dolphin at the time would be holding Benjamin. So uh, we get in the water, and at first the dolphin goes by, and we touch him, and they're taking pictures. I'm like, no, 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 not this again, not the pictures, not the touching the dolphin. Well, then they say to grab the dolphin's tail, and the dolphin pulls you around the pool there. It's like, okay, this is a dolphin swim. And then then we did something where they give us like a little surfboard where the dolphin pushes you on the surfboard. And then the thing that was the coolest but a little bit scary was you swim out to the middle of the pool, which is a pretty big pool. It was bigger than the one in Jamaica. So you swim out to the middle and you tread water there and then the dolph- then two dolphins come up from behind you and one pushes each foot and you rise out of the water almost like you're Superman <laughs> and uh, they push you all the way to the end and let you go right before the wall. Well, what's a little scary is the dolphins seem to be letting you go a little too late to where it looks like you're going to slam into the wall. And the guy who went before me, it looked fun, but like the guy who went before me said he was nervous that he was going to slam into the wall. So... I had planned that if I get too close, I'm just going to jump off. But I had a second problem, and that was I couldn't get it to work. So, And some other people had this problem too. So I was told what I should do is swim out to the middle of the pool and then kind of stick each foot out as, as far apart from each other as I could and then keep my body straight and the dolphins lift me up. Every time the dolphins kept trying and failing and then they go back and then they be commanded to come back and try again. You know, they trained the dolphins to try again if fail occurred. Well, there was fail like three times. And they told me on the fourth time is the last time they can try. And if, if, if I just can't do it, I'm going to have to give up. I really wanted to do this thing. Well, the guy who went before me, who was this young guy, he's probably like 23 years old or so, he shouts out to me, just lie down on the water, he said. Just lie down on your stomach, he said. And that was totally not what the instructions were from the instructor who was telling you how to do it. He was telling me to tread water and and stick my legs apart and just keep my body straight. Here I'm being told to just lie down flat. So I thought, okay, this is not what I was expecting, but the first three haven't worked, so I lie down flat. Sure enough, I feel the dolphins come under me and they lifted me up. And it was working. I was I, I rose out of the water, and the dolphins very quickly like they're they're very fast. These dolphins, so you're just blazing across the water with most of your body out of it. And it was fun until I get very close to the wall, and I'm like, "Crap, I got to jump off!" And right before I jumped off, the dolphins just gently dropped me, and I ended up nowhere near the wall because it felt like I had so much momentum. I was going to slam into it, but the dolphins. What they do is they just move, so you kind of just fall straight down instead of directly at the wall. And I think the pressure of the water keeps you from moving forward. So it turned out I wasn't that close to the wall. I was really like like half a second from jumping off until they they dropped me. So then at the end of the dolphin swim, they gave me a, quote, surprise, which I had heard from reading reviews actually will happen. They brought us into the manatee pool. And we got to see the manatee and they watch them get fed and uh, touch them. 
the feeding the manatee, you had to pay for a manatee experience, but this is like a little bonus they gave. So anyway, it was a good experience. I thought, all right, sweet. I had a real dolphin swim. So I'm satisfied now. I didn't have to complain about that one. And it wasn't expensive either. It was pretty cheap. because I booked it directly with, with the dolphin swim in Cozumel. I booked online. In fact, they had some special. They had some like family special. So I got that. And I think I wasted a little bit of money because I had to pay for a dolphin swim for Ben, even though he couldn't have it just because he getting in the pool with us. But I, I still got a very good deal. It, it really wasn't that expensive. And the ship offered one, too. I don't know if the ship was a real dolphin swim, but uh, the ship offered one, too, but way more expensive, like tremendously more. I got the identical thing. The only thing I didn't get was transportation, which was cheap. You just get a cheap taxi to go back and forth. So I saved a lot of money. And I did a real dolphin swim. So in 2013, I did it right. I got to go back to the ship knowing that not only did I get to get pulled by a dolphin, not only did I get to be pushed on a little paddleboard by the dolphin, not only did I get to rise out of the water like Superman being pushed by two dolphins, but I saved a ton of money over what the ship charged. That works in all ways, when you save money and get something good. So I was one happy Jew after that day. So anyway, I recommend the real dolphin swim. If you haven't done that, I would try it. Just watch out on that thing where they are going to push you one each foot. That The feet should not be in the water. You actually need to lie flat in your stomach. I, it's such such a different piece of advice than what the the guy gave me. You'd think the guy who's directing the whole thing would give you the right advice, but no, it was the dude who's like 23 years old who's a tourist like me who had just done it and figured out that's how to do it. That was my only complaint. Oh, and I did read bad reviews of the place that they really pressure you to buy pictures, and that turned out not to be true. Nobody pressured me to buy any pictures. They lead you to the picture place at the end, and they are super expensive. But then they lead you there and then just walk off. So you can just turn around and walk right back out and nobody pressures you. So that was good. That was a pleasant surprise. It was my other worries that they're going to just constantly hassle me by buying the like super ripoff pictures. And when I say super ripoff, I mean like the place itself was a good deal, but the pictures were just crazy. I think that's where they make their money. So I hope you enjoyed Druffy Time Theater and getting scammed by Holland America. And I really did get scammed by Holland America. I don't know what was premeditated and what wasn't, but I definitely didn't have a dolphin swim. And I validated it seven years later by having a real dolphin swim. In fact, so much that the Cozumel place thought I was crazy having this concern. <laughs> I think I was, I was traumatized by the Ocho Rios fake dolphin swim. By the way, Ocho Rios, if you go to Jamaica on a cruise, you're going to want Ocho Rios as the place where it stops. That's where the most stuff to see is. And I'll give you a tip about Ocho Rios. If you're going to go to one of these waterfalls in Ocho Rios, don't go to Dunn's River Falls because that's where everybody goes and it's a tourist trap and you have to go up in a huge group and everybody's holding hands and it's it's really crappy. If you see pictures of it, you'll see it looks not very appealing. And uh, there's another falls there. I wish I remember what it was called. It keeps changing names. It goes through different ownership. I'm even surprised it's still in business because when I was there, there was hardly anyone there. But it's very similar to Dunn's River Falls. If you're interested, text me. I'll figure it out. 
but it's very similar to Dungeon River Falls, except it hardly has anyone there, and it's much nicer. And I happened to find that on one of my Jamaica trips in the 2000s. So in uh, 2017, when we went to Jamaica on a cruise, and we didn't do a dolphin swim because we'd already done that in 2013, I went to that place with Benjamin and Benjamin's mom and, and we really liked it. Like I had remembered back in the 2000s. There's also a pretty cool cave there that slaves used to escape back in the day when there were slaves in Jamaica. So it's got some history to it too. But even without the historical aspect, it's just a kind of a cool group of caves and that doesn't have many people in your tour group. You'll barely have anyone with you. And there's a really neat pool at the bottom. This uh, like underground pool, which is very unusual. So that was interesting too. That's between Ocho Rios and Falmouth. And most people don't know about it. I think it's like the green something caves. So I recommend that too. And there's, there's also something in Ocho Rios, a restaurant. I think it's called Scotchies. And they make jerk chicken. And I expected it to be a major tourist trap and it wasn't that was the biggest shock is that scotchies wasn't a tourist trap because i kept hearing about scotchies and their jerk chicken and i totally expected that scotchies was just going to be full of tourists and very gimmicky and i wasn't looking forward to it that much i only went there reluctantly because i heard the chicken was really good and i was shocked when i went there it was like half tourists and half Jamaicans eating there, like half locals, half tourists. And the prices were all in Jamaican dollars. <laughs> that shows you what a non-tourist trap it actually was. It actually had the prices in Jamaican dollars. And the food was very good and cheap. So I recommend Scotchies too. It's uh, a very informal place, to say the least. But it was good and it was cheap. And not a tourist trap. It's the biggest shock of that trip. I don't like tourist traps. Some things you can't help it. You know, some things are going to be aimed at tourists and either you're going to do them or you're not going to do them. But I like to go to things that aren't tourist traps. That's why I was so happy when Scotchies wasn't. And things that aren't tourist traps are also cheaper. So not only is it nicer to be in something that is not aimed at the tourists and you're seeing more of a real thing when you're traveling, but it's also cheaper. Some people love tourist traps. Some people love organized things that are aimed at the Western tourist. It's not me. Now, it's not even just about money. I mean, yes, I feel good when I get a good deal somewhere when I'm traveling. But it's also, I like traveling to see things that are different than at home and seeing different cultures as they are, not as uh, they're trying to present the tourists. Okay, let's get to the next topic here. Phil Helmuth and Tom Dwan had their heads-up match. Remember I talked about that, that they'd be having this heads-up match, I think, on January 25th or 26th, something like that. Well, they had the match. If you recall, Phil Helmuth was undefeated in his heads-up matches. Prior to all these matches, people thought he was going to get crushed. Phil Helmuth had this reputation of a good tournament player but that if you put him in a cash game, he's a fish. And not only has this proved people wrong, but he's been winning at heads up no limit, which is a very difficult form of cash. And he's beaten a lot of good players. 
a lot of really good players. So Helmuth had this streak going where he's just beating everybody. And finally, in August of 2021, he ran into the buzzsaw known as Tom Dwan. But I should say that he only lost due to a two-outer all-in, where he had aces and Dwan had tens, and Dwan got a set of tens. So Helmuth could have even won that one, but he didn't. So this was a match where each side put up uh, $200,000 each, and the winner walks away with $400,000. I keep reading that he won $400,000. That's not true. He won $200,000 because the first $200,000 was his, and Dwan lost $200,000. This was on Poker Go, and coming into this match, Helmuth was 7-1 in all the heads-up matches that he had been playing. The only loss was to Tom Dwan back in August. So they played, and did Tom beat him again? The winner of the match was one Phil Helmuth. Mm. He avenged his loss to Tom Dwan. Of course, in humble fashion, you know how Phil Helmuth is always humble about his skill, about his abilities. He's a very understated guy. Never toots his own horn. This is what he said. It feels good. Tom is just one of the greatest players in the world. I like to use the term natural-born Hold'em player. I think there's about 10 natural-born Hold'em players in the world. Okay, that's very nice. He gave Tom Dwan a lot of praise that he's one of the top 10 natural players in Hold'em in the world. Okay, very nice. He said great things about the guy he just beat. And then the next thing he said is, I'm one of those 10 for sure. He had to put that in there. He couldn't just say it about Tom Dwan and leave it. It was such a nice statement. Why do you have to praise yourself after? I'm one of the 10 for sure, he says. What do I have? 13 world championships in Hold'em or something? Plus 50 final tables in Hold'em? So yeah, I'm one of them. Come on, Phil, you don't need to say that. Yes, you're a great Hold'em tournament player. And yes, you've had surprising success in these tough heads-up matches. Congratulations. You've done very well. You've silenced a lot of the critics. You show that at age 57, you've still got it. Okay. Okay. So if you're going to praise your opponent as being one of the top natural-born Hold'em players, and what he's referring to is people who are just naturally good, not the guys who sit there forever in the lab with the GTO solvers, but the guys who just sit down and play and don't study. Which, by the way, Phil Helmuth does study. That's something he doesn't want you to know. But he does study. Phil Helmuth does work with people who help him with these simulations. Tom Dwan does not. Tom Dwan never studies. Tom Dwan just plays. So he really is a natural Hold'em player. So Phil's right about that, that Tom is really one of the top natural Hold'em players. That without all the computer assistance with learning, he just plays and, and wins. But then he says that about himself. I mean, yes, does Phil Helmuth have a lot of natural talent in Hold'em? Of course. If he didn't, he wouldn't have all these bracelets. If he didn't, he wouldn't have success at the World Series year after year after year. He has an excellent feel for the game. And he has an excellent feel in a way that can't be taught. You have to be born with that talent. And he was. 
he works on his game, but that's fine. So I will say he has a lot of natural Hold'em talent. He could be one of the 10 natural-born Hold'em players, because remember, before all that was going on with all the solvers, he was still doing very, very well. So yeah, I'll say he probably is one of the 10 natural-born Hold'em players in the world, but you don't say that about yourself. When you're praising your opponent for how good he is and trying to be polite after you've beaten him, you just leave it at that. You don't say, oh yeah, I am too, though. I am too. He's a natural-born Hold'em expert, but uh, yep, I am. Look at all my, bra- my bracelets, guys. 13 bracelets and Hold'em. Look, 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 look. No. You just, you let the bracelets speak for themselves. Everybody knows about your success, Phil. You're not an unknown to us. The match took about three hours, and uh, this hand was talked about as a, quote, impressive laydown, but I don't think it was that impressive. It's so funny. Some of these, quote, impressive laydowns, I'm not that impressed with. Uh, here's the way the hand went down. Phil limped from the button f- with uh, queen five of diamonds. And Tom Dwan checked from the big blind with king six of diamonds. By the way, this is a very new style of play for both of them. So they have adjusted their game because the old Tom Dwan would have mashed that king six in the past. And the old Phil Helmuth would have raised that queen five on the button in the past. You never limped on the button in the past. This is a a new form of poker where you don't bloat the pot. This is something that has evolved over the years. Anyway, uh, a lot of times this will happen more because people adjust. So like, Dwan is very aware that the limping on the button can mean a number of things. And if you've got a hand like King Six of Diamonds on the big blind, you don't want to bloat the pot from out of position. So Tom Dwan even though he can have a wild play style, uh, he knows what Phil is doing there and he doesn't want to bloat the pot in a spot where he has to act first. So they both checked. It was kind of like one newer style forces Zwan into also playing the newer style by adjustment. Anyway, the flop comes king, king, 10, all black. So neither have a flush draw of any kind. And... Dwan is crushing him here, obviously. He's got trips, and Helmuth has queen high. The only way Helmuth could win would be a backdoor one-card straight, in which you don't get that much value, and you could even be drawing dead, because the board is paired. So king-king-10 is the board. Dwan checked, Helmuth bet 1,500, and Dwan called. So, okay, that makes sense. Makes sense that Dwan didn't want to fire out and scare Helmuth off without putting some money in. And it also makes sense that Phil would take a shot at this because if Dwan is completely missed, he's probably going to give up the pot because it's an unraised pot. Usually players are more apt to give those up because there's not that much money in, so they're not going to fight that hard to bluff in a pot where someone's firing out, where you have no piece of it. So Helmuth sees this king-king-10 and says, all right, there's a good chance he completely airballed this one, so I just prefer to take this. And I am not drawing for anything, so if he puts any pressure back, I'm folding. So it's an easy bluff to make because you you can easily fold to any kind of action and not feel bad. And then when Dwan sees he's betting, he's like, okay, well, I'm not going to raise him because either I'm behind or uh, or I'm going to run him off. I mean, at best, he's got a 10, but there's only so much he's going to put in. So I'm either way ahead or way behind. I'm just, I'm just uh, check calling this. The turn was a queen. 
may be good for Helmuth, but of course it's not. So Dwan checked. Helmuth, who says, well, crap, now my hand has showdown value. I've got this pair of queens now. If I'm up against a king, I'm drawing dead, but now I got to check behind for pot control. I don't want to bet this because one, I don't want Dwan to put a move on me and have to lay this down. And two, I could just be spewing money when I'm behind and drawing dead. So he checked behind. Well, the river was interesting. The river's another queen. So that's king, king, 10, queen, queen. So now both players have a full house, but it's a one card full house for both. So if you have a queen, you're not very confident with your hand. You can't say, oh, it's a full house. It's not like the same as having a full house based upon a set. You've got a full house based upon trips. You've got the lower trips. King, king, 10, queen, queen. So you don't go, wow, it's a full house. I can't lose this. No, it's both players know that your opponent can have a king in that spot quite often. So Tom Dwan checked again. Helmuth knew this could be a trap, but he has to bet something. Why? Because Dwan could have anything that uh, he may not believe and want to call. For example, what if Dwan has ace high? He may want to call this with king, king, queen, queen. So he figures I have to bet something here and see what happens. Because I might get a call from an ace. I could even get a call from a jack. So I'll bet something small. And if I get raised, then I know I'm probably beat. I'm going to let it go. So he bets 1,200. Remember, 1,200 is small because there was uh, 2,400 pre-flop and then another 3,000 on the flop between them. So there's 5,400 in the pot. And he's only betting 1,200 in a 5,400 pot. Now, of course, Dwan makes his move. Because the only thing Dwan could possibly be losing to, pocket queens, which of course aren't likely here. So Dwan very confidently check raises here to 6,500. So he raises another 5,300. So Helmuth thinks about it and says, all right, fine, and lets it go. I mean, he made the correct decision, but was this an amazing laydown? There are people talking about, oh, this amazing laydown and laid down a full house. No! It's kind of the equivalent of laying down second pair when you get check raised on the river. That's, that's basically what that was. I'd lay that down in a second, especially for the size of that raise. Now, yeah, Dwan could be putting a move on you, but the only way that move's really going to work is if he thinks that you picked up running queens and wants to get you off the better hand. Helmuth ended up winning the whole thing with ace-king versus eights. At this point, Dwan was short-stacked, and Helmuth actually limped with the ace-king, which kind of surprises me. But Dwan he raised 3.5 big blinds, because there wasn't a raise yet, and then Helmuth moved all in. Dwan called, and the board rang out king-5-2-6-6, six, six. so of course Helmuth's ace-king wins, and that was that. There is going to be a rematch, but according to the rules, they have to double the stakes. So the next match between the two will be them each putting up 400000 But Helmuth said that's going to be it. He said the next match is for 800000 meaning that they're each putting up four hundred. He said, if I lose, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to pony up 800000 to play again, but I bet he will. I bet he's right. Okay, so I want to talk about PayPal. There's some updates with that. Remember, Eric Benzamokin 
is heading a lawsuit, a class action or hopefully class action against PayPal. We've talked about that a lot on this show, and that's over their seizures of money, which is probably unlawful, and it has affected a lot of poker players. As we've said many times in the show, the way it happens is that one day you just find your PayPal is frozen, and they tell you you violated the terms in some way, but they won't tell you which term you violated or how you violated it. And if you attempt to call them, you either can't reach anybody or those you reach are not helpful and just can't or won't tell you anything. But all you know is that you have to wait 180 days and then your funds will be released only to find 180 days later that they fine you one hundred that they fine you uh, $2,500 per, quote, violation. So that means every time someone paid you that they consider in violation, that's a $2,500 that's a $2,500 fine. And of course, what that does is it adds up very fast and that enables them to confiscate your entire balance. So let's say they say you violated it 40 times with 40 different transactions they feel they have the right to fine you for $100,000. So they're just taking people's entire balances this way and transferring it to their own account. This happened to Chris Moneymaker. And Chris Moneymaker is very public about this. First, when they froze his money, which was for fantasy sports, something totally legal, but they froze his money, told him he'll get it back in 180 days, and then they just took it. So then he made a really big deal about it. And at that point, I contacted Chris And I said to Chris, hey, I know a good lawyer, and he'd like to represent you here. I asked Eric first, would you be interested in this? And I gave him the details. He said yes. So I said, okay, I'll get a hold of Chris and ask him if he's interested. So I went to Chris, and I asked him if he'd be interested. And he said, okay, well, give me your lawyer's info. And I've had other lawyers contact me, but I'll I'll decide what I want to do. But thank you. So I gave the info, and I heard a short time later that Chris was officially signing on with the Benzamokin law firm. Chris Moneymaker then got his money back. Once they were public about what they were going to do, that they were going to file a class action, PayPal apparently did not want the fairly famous Chris Moneymaker as the face of this lawsuit. So they quickly refunded him the 12000 without any explanation. It just came back, and it was obviously a strategic decision So therefore, he could no longer sue them because he no longer had damages. They had returned all the money. So he no longer could be the lead plaintiff in this. But he continued to stay on as an advisor and a promoter of this lawsuit. Promoter meaning that he was getting the word out through his very large reach on his well-followed Twitter that anyone else in this situation could get a hold of Eric and join this lawsuit. We had Eric on this show both last year and more recently this year because the class action lawsuit has actually been filed in federal court in Northern California. The lead plaintiffs are three people. One of them is in poker. The two others are not. The two others are business people. Turns out PayPal has victimized a lot of business people in this fashion in matters that have absolutely nothing to do with gambling. The one poker player who is victimized, that is the lead plaintiff, is Lena Evans. And we talked about that on a recent episode. But there's some news about this, 
And please spread the word about this matter because uh, this is something that can be uh, helpful to anyone who has been victimized here. There is a class action lawsuit website now for this particular class action called paypalclassaction.net. paypalclassaction.net. And on that website, you can get information about this particular lawsuit. You can get information about class actions in general and understand them better. In fact, even if you think you understand them, there's some things explained there that I didn't even know myself that I learned from reading the website. And you can also fill out what they call intake forms to possibly become a member of the class. So this is where you go now instead of emailing Eric. You can email Eric also, but he's getting slammed with tons of emails every day. In fact, he said when he was on our show, they actually hired someone to go through the emails because it's just so much work for the emails alone. So while Eric is usually very responsive, in this, he's getting slammed with, he said, like a thousand emails a day because this is just so huge with how many people have been ripped off by PayPal in this fashion. So the way to do this now is to fill out this intake form, which is on paypalclassaction.net. PayPalClassAction.net. And if you still want to email Eric, then you can email him at info at EB, like Eric Benzamokin, info at EBLawFirm.us. So there's no dot coms involved. There's PayPalClassAction.net. And then there's his email address of info at EBLawFirm.us. But keep in mind that email address is being slammed with tons of emails right now. So you'll have to be patient. So that's the place you should go. You can also just check it out if you're curious about it. You don't have to be someone who would be in the class to uh, look at the website, of course. Now, for you to join the class, you would have to have been victimized by PayPal in this fashion, meaning that they froze your account and then kept your money. There's other gripes people have with PayPal but that's not going to be covered in this lawsuit. So you, you don't want to email Eric and say, oh man, PayPal did me dirty and then go through all these things they did that have nothing to do with this particular situation. You need to be someone who had a similar issue to what has happened to Lena Evans, Chris Moneymaker, and these business people who are in the lawsuit. And that is they froze your balance and then just took it. Froze your balance, said wait six months. At the end of six months, they just confiscated it. If that happened to you, you can join this class action. As Eric said, when he came on the show, it will not cost you anything. No matter what happens, win or lose, there is no way you can, there's no way you will owe any kind of money as a result of losing this lawsuit. You won't owe the other side's attorney's fees. You won't owe Eric or any other lawyer their attorney's fees. That's not how class actions work. So you're joining this and you're getting free representation and the way Eric and the other attorneys involved will make money is that they're going to get a piece of the settlement. So you might as well. This is something that you should join if you were a victim. 
And Eric also said when he appeared on the show recently that certain people who had large amounts taken that need the funds immediately, that they may be able to do something for them outside the class and get them a settlement that way. So definitely use that intake form on, on uh, paypalclassaction.net or email Eric if you had your money confiscated this way. And the statute of limitations on this, I'm forgetting how long it is, but you, this, this couldn't have happened like a really long time ago. So if this happened in 2013, you're screwed. But if this happened uh, sometime in the last few years, you'll have to look on the website what the statute of limitations are. But it's something like three years, then I would fill it out. Or even if it's close to that, you can fill it out and see if for some reason you still qualify. But as I said, like in the early 2010s, if this happened and that was the last time it happened to you, then unfortunately there's not much you can do. So that is the update on that front. As this proceeds, I will give you other updates. Keep in mind that it has not been certified class action yet. They are seeking to have it certified class action, but that hasn't happened yet. They also have to get over the hurdle of arbitration because PayPal is probably going to want to push this to arbitration and Eric and his partner attorneys need to convince the court that this should not be in arbitration. So this is not easy, but I think they have a good case. I think what PayPal is doing is pretty egregious and is both morally and legally reprehensible in my non-expert opinion. Well, morally, I can say without being an expert and I can say that It's really scummy what they're doing. It's just outright theft. But I have a second piece of PayPal news, which isn't too related to this, but it could have some relation. They have partnered with a company called Gamban. Gamban. G-A-M-B-A-N. Gam. Like gambling. Could this really be a company that bans gambling? Well, yes. PayPal has this partnership with Gamban, which is a company that helps block access to anything having to do with gambling. I'm not just talking about online gambling sites. I mean any website that deals with gambling, including PokerFraudAlert.com. So Gamban can be installed in various ways, and... One of the ways it can be installed is it can be installed on a network, like a workplace network, that would prevent people from accessing websites that are anything about gambling, whether we can actually gamble there or just read about or talk about gambling. It bans all of these. Or you can actually get Gamban as an app. And uh, the app is available for iOS and Android. No, I'm not advertising it here. I'm just telling you. And that's if you don't have control of yourself then this app will not let you access these sites. I suppose you could always delete it, but this is something that you can put on a device to stop gambling websites from being accessed. Well, Gamban has made a partnership with PayPal 
that allows it to be installed into any PayPal account free of charge. So that you just have to contact PayPal and they will block you from doing any transactions with any site that they believe has to do with gambling. They said, Gamban prevents access to any site that offers games of chance or skill, casino games, sports betting, horse and greyhound wagering, lottery tickets, person-to-person betting, and gambling-related adventures such as handicapping services. This doesn't stop you from accessing those sites, but you can't use your PayPal account with any of these sites. That Once Gamban is connected to your PayPal account, which you have to contact PayPal to have them do, then sites are automatically blocked from receiving payment from you. Even things like handicapping sites, which are not actually providing gambling services, but are providing advice on how to gamble. How does this possibly work into what's going on with a class action lawsuit? Well, PayPal might be trying to demonstrate that they are taking responsible gambling seriously and that a lot of their bans of users there where they took their money were people who were using their site illegally for gambling. Now, a lot of the confiscations had nothing to do with gambling, so I don't know how they're going to explain those. But this would be something they can use to posture how seriously that they take what they perceive to be gambling, whether illegal or legal, and that they don't want their platform used that way. However, PayPal can be used, I guess unless Gamban is installed, to deposit onto some real money legalized gambling sites in the U.S. Jeff Dime pointed out that this was a way to deposit into BetMGM. So that's very hypocritical that they're stealing people's money that they perceive are being used to get for gambling, but yet they do process payments for gambling. And PayPal even admits that they allow transactions with gambling that where they've made partnerships. And in fact, they've said that if you have a gambling problem that you should self-exclude from these sites where you have a problem. That was their answer before. If, if you were to write to PayPal and say, hey, why are you processing these payments for me? I have a gambling problem. You get back an email saying, you need to self-exclude from these sites. Here's how to do it. They have something similar in the UK called GamStop, where if you sign up for GamStop, then you are automatically banned from all internet gaming platforms and apps that are licensed in the UK. But this does not ban you, to my knowledge, from handicapping sites and sites about gambling. Do I believe PayPal cares about people with problem gambling issues? Of course not. They don't give a crap. But I think that this is being done so they can posture like they do. They can also say, hey, look, we're not trying to steal anyone's money. In fact, we've partnered with a company that is going to make it tougher for people to use our site to gamble, which means it's going to be harder for us to seize anyone's money because anyone who has Gamban installed will not be able to use these sites in the first place, and therefore they won't be breaking our terms, and therefore we can't seize their money. So this is actually making us seize less money, not more. But I think this is just posturing. And I could easily believe that the lawsuit that they know is coming, that has already been filed, that they know may end up in federal court for a lot of money, this can be something they say. They can say, look, we're not trying to do anything wrong here. 
we're trying to stop illegal gambling on our platform. And we're going so far, we've now partnered with an app that helps us do that. That we don't confiscate any money. It just denies the transactions. So that's what we wish we could do is just deny the transactions. And we just over our head. How can we deny every gambling transaction if we can't identify them? So now we've partnered with a site that helps us identify them. Aren't we nice? Aren't we responsible? So now we don't have to see that money anymore. Next time, maybe Lena Evans will just have her transactions blocked instead of having to have us seize her money for violating our terms. We're trying to make this happen less often, folks. We're not trying to steal more. I could easily see them arguing something like that, though this is occurring after the fact. They're just doing this now. This hasn't been in place before. But I'm sure this is some sort of optics thing, so they can act as if they are engaging in responsible gaming when they're really not. This also could be so they don't have any issues with regulators regarding taking payments from the legalized gaming sites that they can prove that they are responsible. In general, a lot of these responsible gambling efforts by casinos and online sites are just for show. They will actually block people. I'm not saying that it's fake. I'm just saying they don't care. I'm saying if it were up to them, they would welcome every problem gambler in with open arms, with only a few exceptions, like Steve Wynn, what I described before. But in most cases, casinos, especially online casinos, love problem gamblers. They don't give a crap if you ruin your life. They don't care if you blow the family fortune. All they want is your money. And that's all PayPal wants. That's why they've been taking it. So that is our PayPal dual update. I want to talk about what's going on with the Raiders because it's pretty uh, repetitive and problematic now. And it really is validating what a lot of the critics said about what will happen if professional sports teams come to Vegas. Because remember, before the Golden Knights showed up a few years ago, there was not a single major professional sports team in Vegas. And some of this was an antiquated concern about match fixing, which I don't think is a concern anymore because of the high salaries that these players are getting. It just wouldn't be worth it for them to fix any kind of games, especially the stars who would have the most impact on it. But also, there was some concern that it wouldn't be good for the city and that it would bring a bad element to town and that the players themselves might act irresponsible and the, the city may not want it. In fact, some of this was seen when the NBA had an all-star game, I think in the late 2000s, it was in Vegas, and it was a disaster. The, there was uh, a lot of uh, criminal element that came into town that uh, there were fights and shootings at the nightclubs, and the whole thing was a mess, and they decided, hey, if this is what sports is going to bring to this town, we don't want it. But then the Vegas Golden Knights arrived, and everything seemed fine. The Knights were good right away, which nobody expected. The players were well-behaved. Nobody was getting in trouble. It didn't bring any bad element to town. Like Nothing that was feared happened, but then again, it was hockey. And hockey is different than other sports. So what would happen if a football team were to come to Vegas? That's a different story. Now, there's not nearly as many games as in other sports. There's only eight home games. But 
could this be a problem? Well, so far the answer is yes, but it has to do with the players. So there have been a lot of incidents with Raiders players that have ranged from reckless driving to uh, super reckless driving that actually resulted in death and other incidents such as assault with a deadly weapon. There's a lot of different bad things have been happening. And it's just one Raiders player after another that seems to be getting in trouble. One of them was Raiders cornerback Damon Arnett, who already got in trouble in the past. And he was already released by the Raiders. Uh, He had a number of different things happen. In 2020, he had a car accident in Henderson, fled the scene, which, of course, is illegal. And uh, he pled guilty and paid a fine for it. But at least that wasn't a super major thing. The woman had some injuries, but she wasn't really, really badly hurt. In June of 2021 or in May of 2021, Arnett attacked a man named Sonny Flores at the Aria. And what happened was that uh, Arnett tried to get a car without a ticket, I think a valet car, uh, that his car on valet, and he was drunk. And then he attacked uh, one of the workers of the valet, whose name was Sonny Flores, And then he also spit at Flores and poked him in the chest during the attack. However, in December, Flores dropped the lawsuit that he had filed against uh, Arnett. Maybe he got paid. But the big incident was something that occurred, was in November. He was threatening somebody in a TikTok video while holding a gun. He was threatening to kill somebody. Now, it wasn't seen that he actually hurt anybody, but uh, he was threatening to kill somebody while holding three guns. So in November of 2021, he was fired by the Raiders, and we reported this before. Anyway, he was cut by the Las Vegas Raiders, but now he's in trouble again, and this trouble actually was uh, in Las Vegas. He was arrested on multiple counts after he threw after he drew a gun at the park MGM on the valet. He has a big problem with valets. This guy should be self-parking. But he drew a gun at the park MGM, the former Monte Carlo, that, again, he was trying to claim a car without having a ticket. <laughs> why does this guy use valet? If he, if he wants to get his own car, why doesn't he use self-parking? I don't get that. Like, I hate valet too, but I'm not going to draw a gun on the valet after I valet parked. This guy just needs to learn use the self-parking. So he was arrested on multiple counts, assault with a deadly weapon, carrying or concealing a gun without a permit, possession of marijuana, and possession of a class one or class two level controlled substance. He did post bail and was released. And a guy he was with named Mark L. Sorrell was also arrested for carrying or concealing a weapon without a permit. They both have dates in court on March 29th. He'd actually been 
signed to a reserve contract by the Kansas City Chiefs, who took a chance with him after his issues in Vegas, but he's not going to be playing for him. The Chiefs released him after this arrest. So I have to assume his career is probably over. What's this guy in valets? But that's not the only thing. Nate Hobbs, who is a current Las Vegas Raiders player, at least with uh, this Arnett guy, he's a former player, was released back in November. Nate Hobbs, who's a cornerback on the Raiders, pled guilty to a reduced traffic charge involving a DUI, which previously occurred. Nate Hobbs is a rookie, and his attorney, Richard Schoenfeld, yes, that same Schoenfeld of Chestnuts and Schoenfeld, they're everywhere. This was about an arrest that was on January 3rd when he was found asleep inside of a vehicle that was stopped at an off-ramp or at an exit ramp of a casino parking garage. So, uh, you know, in the parking garages, there's this ramp down to the street. He was somewhere on that ramp in a stopped car sleeping. And then they tested his blood alcohol level and found it was just under the limit for DUI. It was 0.07 instead of 0.08, so technically he was not too drunk to drive at that point. However, he still was arrested on suspicion of DUI because it was assumed that with it being 0.07, with him being asleep in the car, that he drove at some point and then either intentionally stopped and went to sleep there or just fell asleep at the wheel with the car stopped. So it was assumed if it was 0.07 at that point, it must have been over 0.08 when he got behind the wheel. But there, there is some weakness to this case. And that is the guy did do what they tell you to do if you're behind the wheel of a car and you're not fit to be driving. And that is pull over and take a rest. Pull over and wait. Now, you're not supposed to pull over on an exit ramp from a parking lot. But that's kind of more of a parking violation. But as far as being behind the wheel, even if he initially got behind the wheel, some people said, hey, he did the responsible thing. Instead of trying to get home, he's like, oh, no, I'm too drunk to continue driving. And before even leaving the parking lot, he just pulled over to the side and went to sleep. And by the time they found him there, he actually was legally able to drive. So this was kind of a weak case. And... For that reason, they were willing to downgrade it to careless driving, which is a misdemeanor, but not as bad as a DUI. He got a $685 fine and 20 hours of community service. You may say, okay, well, no big deal. So fine, the guy pulled over when he was drunk and chose not to drive out of the parking lot. Doesn't sound bad to me, right? Well, he was ordered to stay out of trouble going forward. You say, okay, well, that's what they always say, right? When someone gets a, does a plea bargain, they have to stay out of trouble going forward. Yeah, but the going forward matters here because he already has other pending reckless driving charges. On January 16th, which was after this incident I talked about on January 3rd, but before the court date, he was pulled over again, but this time he was actually driving. He was going 110 miles per hour in a 65 mile per hour zone 
on a Las Vegas area freeway. The trooper who pulled him over noticed that not only was he blazing fast, but he also was going back and forth between lanes, not signaling and just weaving between vehicles. So the trooper quickly got behind him and pulled him over and wrote him a ticket. I'm surprised they didn't take him in right there because uh, usually they'll just take you right in for reckless driving if you're going over 100. But I guess here they didn't. But however, uh, he is going to be facing a reckless driving charge. So it's not just a traffic infraction. And that'll be on April 18th. The reason the going forward matters is because they could have said, look, you already got in trouble on January 3rd. And before you went to court for the January 3rd matter, 13 days later, you're back on the road going 110 miles per hour. Now, it looks like he wasn't drunk for that one, but still, he was going 110 miles per hour. The DA, Steve Wolfson, who I know that Robin Hood loves, <laughs> said that Hobbs was not legally under the influence when they found him on January 3rd, but that he will submit to an alcohol treatment program provided by the NFL. So this is not a good look, especially because Henry Ruggs III, who was released by the Raiders, killed a 23-year-old Las Vegas woman when he was driving drunk and going 156 miles per hour, which is crazy. So he was going 156 miles per hour on a residential street and slammed into a car and killed the woman in the car, 23-year-old woman. It's a real tragedy. Not only is he going to be facing trial for that, but the Raiders released him. Nate Hobbs has not been released. He is still on the Raiders. The Raiders uh, are not going to be playing again until much later this year. They got eliminated in the playoffs against the Cincinnati Bengals, so their season's over. So the Raiders do have some time to decide exactly what to do with Hobbs. They'll probably let him stay, but it's not good that within 13 days he was both caught sleeping his drunkenness off on an exit ramp of a parking lot and going 110 miles per hour on the highway. That's all within 13 days. There was also a DUI against running back Josh Jacobs where he got in a crash in a traffic tunnel at the Las Vegas airport. But because his blood alcohol level again wasn't 0.08, they let him off with a $500 fine on failure to exercise due care. Again, he was represented by Chestnut and Schoenfeld. I think they're also representing Ruggs, who's the worst of all of them, because he's the one who went 156 miles per hour and killed someone. I mean, this is all in one year. This is all in one season this has been happening. Look at all these we have. We have these crazy drivers going 110 miles per hour, 156 miles per hour, driving drunk, hitting people in airport tunnels. Then this Damon Arnett guy who has some hang-up about valet parking where he parks his car but then tries to take it himself. He doesn't want to wait his turn and then uh, ends up fighting with and attacking the valets and in this case pulled a gun on a valet. What, what's this guy's problem? And no other team has these kind of problems. You may say, oh, it's just NFL players. They, they're, a bad, they're a badly behaved. No, because some of them get in trouble, but way more getting in trouble in Vegas than anywhere else. 
Now, you may notice all these guys are young. They all range between 22 and 26. So there's, of course, an immaturity factor involved. But I think what's happening here is you're combining immaturity and Las Vegas itself, which has too many temptations for these guys, and they live a wild lifestyle and they get themselves in trouble. They also see themselves as untouchable and above everybody else. So they feel that the rules never apply to them and whatever they want, they get. That's probably why this Arnett guy just was not accepting no for an answer regarding getting his car. He doesn't want to wait for the valet to get his car. He's like, okay, you know, I'm going to go get it myself. They said, no, you're not. <laughs> we have to do it for you. And then he gets in fights with them. This guy should be barred from using valet parking. If they want to rehabilitate him, that's what they should do. Say, no more valet parking for you. Only self-parking. Then he can get his car whenever he wants. I think this is going to keep happening. I don't know if the Raiders can get control of this. Unless they are more careful with who they draft and only draft players who are known never to have behavioral issues. That won't catch all of them, but, you know, there's certain players that you worry a little bit about their behavior, and others you say, okay, this guy's never going to get in trouble, and usually you can tell the ones that are at risk for getting themselves into trouble and the ones who are going to probably stay good citizens. Occasionally, some surprise you both ways. Sometimes ones you worry about their behavior end up being fine, and sometimes the ones that seem like they're going to be good end up causing problems, but... In most cases, you can kind of see this coming. Not every player you suspect is going to be a problem is going to be, but the ones that are, you can usually look back and go, yeah, we can kind of see that. This isn't that surprising. So I don't know that much about the personal history of all these different players. I just see one player after another getting into trouble from the Raiders in a short period of time. So I think Vegas is not a good place for these players. And I'm not blaming the town for this. This is their fault. But this is an issue. Vital Vegas was tweeting out a while back that these players were also mistreating hotel staff in ways that weren't criminal, but were rude, and also not tipping. That they just saw themselves as the kings and felt like they didn't have to tip and felt like they could berate hotel staff and be rude and nasty to them, and they could because they're Raiders players. So from that standpoint... The Raiders have been a problem. I know a lot of people love the Raiders in Vegas and they're happy to have an NFL team there, but too many players misbehaving. So I think the most they can do about it is try to look at who they're drafting and try to draft the better behaved ones, even if they're not getting the very best players. But I don't know if the team's willing to do that yet. Okay, so final topic. I talk about covid And we're going to talk about the fourth shot, because it's coming. A fourth shot is coming. They're already doing it in Israel. In the U.S., they're also doing it, but you have to be immunocompromised. So most people in the U.S. are not getting a fourth shot. But it is coming soon, and you need to decide for yourself whether you're going to get it. The CDC contacted pharmacies this past week to let them know that anyone who has moderate to severe immune suppression should get a fourth shot. And that anyone who comes in and says that, that even if they've had three shots, go ahead and give them a fourth. The reason for this is that people with immune suppression 
don't generate the same level of immune response to these vaccines as the rest of us do. And therefore, they need shots more often. The CDC made this call because a lot of the pharmacies were confused and they were sending people away saying, no, 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 we're not giving fourth shots to anybody. So the CDC said, oh, no, no, you should be. But that's for now. Soon enough, this is going to be open to everybody. I don't know if they're going to open it to certain age groups. I'm guessing it's just going to be based upon the amount of time that has passed since your last shot. But the question is, should you? The CDC shortened the time for booster shots from six months to five months. That's interesting because who has been on this show saying that five months is the time that your vaccine starts not to work very well? Who's been saying that for a while now? Oh, yeah, that'd be me. Remember the CDC saying eight months? And I said, no, it's not eight months. Remember then they said six months? I said, no, it's five. I knew it was five because I was watching the cases. I was watching what they were claiming the efficacy was. It didn't make sense to be six months or eight months. It really looked like at five months. And of course, it doesn't magically change when it goes from four months and 29 days to five months. But at approximately five months, it seemed like your protection was much less, especially with the Pfizer shot, than it was shortly after you had the shot. And while it's a slow decrease over time, it seemed like it really got significantly less protective for you at around the five-month mark. The reason they didn't say this before was because they were worried there was going to be a run on the pharmacies to get these shots, which there wasn't. And I knew there wasn't because I knew there was going to be much less enthusiasm for the booster, especially with a lot of people getting sick from the second shot and not liking the experience. Also because the severe illness was really only happening to people who either were uh, very old or, or had existing major problems or were unvaccinated. That the people who were relatively healthy that had two shots while they were getting breakthrough cases fairly easily, they weren't ending up in the hospital. So these people are like, you know what, F it. I'll just chance it. If I get sick, I get sick. I already have the protection from dying. So that's all I'm going to do. So I knew the boosters were not going to be that popular. And I thought it was stupid how they were refusing to give them to people who wanted them. They should have given a booster to anyone after five months who wanted it for any reason. Anyone for any reason after five months. But they were doing six and I thought that was stupid. Anyway, they've since shortened it to five. What a shock. So knowing that these boosters aren't that popular, they shortened the time to five months, which is what it should have been in the first place. And immunocompromised people who got their shots earlier anyway because they were on a priority status, some of them it has been five months. In fact, for me, it's been three and a half months. So anybody who is due for this shot after five months can get it. This fourth shot they can only get if it's uh, if you're immunocompromised. Anybody who hasn't been boosted yet at all, no matter who they are, can get it if it's been five months or more. There is no proof required to show you're immunocompromised. And they had to remind the pharmacies of this. The pharmacies are going, well, we can give it if you can prove it. And they're like, well, I don't have proof. Well, I'm sorry. Goodbye. So they complained and 
the CDC had to remind these pharmacies that you can't ask for this, which is surprising because they've been told this for a long time because it's considered a violation of privacy. So they're still working on updating their websites, apparently, these different pharmacies to be very clear that they're offering a fourth dose, but only to the immunocompromised. However, what will happen when they open this up to everybody, which should be pretty soon? Should you get one, is the question. And it's becoming less and less obvious about these boosters, about whether you should get it, especially with Omicron. Omicron is breaking through all vaccines, not at the same rate. You're less likely to get Omicron if you're vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And you are less likely to get Omicron if you're boosted rather than just vaccinated. But it's been happening in all of these cases. Just less of it for boosted people, but it is happening. So the question is, should you? And this is going to be a different answer for everybody. There's a number of factors you have to weigh. Now, it seems pretty certain at this time that if you're boosted, if you've had three shots, that you're probably not going to end up in the hospital from Omicron, which is already milder anyway. So the chance of ending up in the hospital from Omicron, even unvaccinated, is much less than before. But your chance of ending up in the hospital or dying from Omicron if you've had three shots is very low. So you may say, Omicron is not that severe, and I already had three shots, which is going to protect me from the most severe outcomes that it might bring, so why would I bother with a fourth shot? Why am I doing it? And then someone could say, well, that's going to give you less of a chance of getting symptoms at all, and it will probably make your symptoms not as severe. And then you'll say back, yeah, but what am I preventing here? So it's going to be preventing what feels like a bad cold. So it'll go from a bad cold to either no feeling of a cold or a mild cold. Is that worth taking a fourth shot? And the answer to you might be no. And this is something that you have to decide for yourself. Now, I'll tell you a reason you shouldn't get the fourth shot, and that is to protect others. The CDC is now admitting that there's a decent chance that the vaccine is not preventing transmission, that it's preventing symptoms, it's not preventing transmission. So don't get the shot because you're living with someone old or you're seeing someone old or you're working in a job where you're exposing to a lot of people that you, you don't want to get them sick. That's not a good reason to take the vaccine. You really need to be selfish on this one. You need to think how much do I want to protect myself? And what am I willing to go through to do that? Now, when I say go through, that brings me to my second point. There are some people who don't get sick at all from the shot. They get a little bit of arm pain, and that's it. They're good to go. All three shots so far felt almost nothing. A little bit of arm pain goes away. No problem. That's it. If you are like that, it is much easier to get that fourth shot than if you are like me and get sick from the shot. I got sick from the second shot. I got even sicker from the third shot, and it seems to be lasting more than twice as long for me compared to others. So others tend to have the symptoms come up if they're going to get sick. They tend to have the symptoms come up about six hours after the shot, and then it lasts about 24 hours. For me, I get the symptoms about 12 hours after the shot, and they last for about 60 hours, of which the first 48 are very bad. So mine's even worse than double. 
So the whole thing is like slow motion for me and not in a good way. So I have two really miserable days after the shot. And then I have a third day, which is not as bad, but I'm still not better. So the whole thing is kind of like a 60-hour ordeal as far as me feeling sick. The only thing that's okay is the first 12 hours or so I feel normal. In fact, last time I even felt good. It actually made me feel better for a short time, and then I rapidly got worse. So for me, I know I'm probably signing up to get myself sick again for a few days. Last time I had a fever that almost got to 103. So do I want to sign up for that? It's a lot harder to say yes than if I had just about no symptoms from the shot. So this needs to be considered because of the frequency of this. If this is like a one-time thing or once every 10-year thing, you okay, I'll put up with a few crappy days, but then I'm good for 10 years. But look, I just did this in mid-October and I'm already thinking about having to do this again soon. So I don't want to keep giving up three days where I'm miserable every five months. It's crappy. And and if it were to be preventing me from death, yeah, that, that's uh, that's worth it. But if it's going to just be preventing symptomatic infection, it's probably not because I'm giving myself symptomatic, not infection, but I'm giving myself a, a symptomatic reaction for a few days. So it's not like I'm not experiencing being sick. I am. I'm just getting it from the shot and it's fairly predictable when it's going to go away, but it's still crappy. So is it possible that my reaction to the vaccine might be worse than what Omicron would do to me? And the answer is that's possible. Yes. Now, another reason to get the shot is long COVID. Some people have asked me about how Ben is doing. And unfortunately, Ben may have long COVID, or at least what I call medium COVID. Ben got COVID symptoms on the first, uh, for the first time on January 9th, which is now about three weeks ago. He is still feeling fatigue. The fatigue briefly went away, and then it came back. And since Monday... He has had fatigue that comes on and off, but it happens every day, and he's not the same. He keeps going to his bed to lie down with his phone because he's too tired to do anything else, and he never did that before. Before, he wouldn't go to bed until it was time to go to sleep. He didn't take naps before. Now he's going there to take naps, to just kind of lie down and rest and relax because he's fatigued. And I've had people on the forum dismiss this. Oh, big deal. So he's not quite as energetic. No, it's not that. You know how it is. Let's say you wake up after three hours of sleep. Could you get up with three hours of sleep? Yes. Have you probably gotten up with three hours of sleep? Yes. Can you function throughout the day with three hours of sleep? Yes. But how do you feel the whole day when you've gotten three hours of sleep? Crappy, right? You kind of feel tired. You keep thinking about when can I go to sleep? You kind of feel sluggish. You kind of feel shitty. You just don't feel like yourself. You think, I don't want to be like this every day. I'm tolerating it today, but once I go to sleep, I'll get a nice night of sleep the following night and I'll be okay. That's what you think, right? What if you had that feeling every day? That's kind of how he feels. And as his dad, it's sad to see this. Now, it still hasn't been that long. It's been only three weeks since the beginning of symptoms. So it's possible that this is going to disappear. Possible by the time we do the next radio, that will be gone. I hope it is. But there are people who are stuck with this for months before it goes away, including kids. And I hope he's not one of them. I feel very, very bad for him. 
And he's a kid who had a mild case. The worst point of his case was not nearly as bad as the way I felt from the vaccine. I was much sicker on the vaccine than he was from actual Omicron. But the vaccine effects went away for me after about three days. And for him, it's been uh, dragging on now for three weeks from actual Omicron and maybe longer. So you are opening yourself up to things like long COVID and other unknown effects of COVID. And that's one of the fallacies here of the whole anti-vax movement is that you don't know what's in the vaccine. You don't know what it's going to do to you. Well, that's correct. And anyone who says that, no, we know everything about the vaccine is totally fine, is full of crap. And I've had arguments with people on that side who, who insist that the vaccine is super safe. We know everything. There's been such extensive study. There's nothing we're going to find out in the future that is uh, sinister about it. No, that's not true. There will probably be a lot found out in the future that it caused some harm in some cases that we don't know about right now. But I'll tell you where we'll find out about more future harm than we know about now, than the vaccine, and that would be COVID itself. There's a lot of mystery to COVID about what it does to you long-term. There's a lot of mystery about COVID about what it might be damaging in your body. And we won't find out a lot of this until more time passes and they can study these long-term cases. And I'm not even talking about long COVID. I'm talking about people who seem to get over it and may have problems down the line that they they don't know something is damaged because they're not feeling any kind of uh, pain or discomfort at the moment. I'm not trying to scare anyone who's had COVID and gotten over it. I'm just saying there is a lot of unknown factor with what a COVID infection will do to you long-term. So there's more concern about that than there is about what the vaccine's going to do to you short-term, long-term, and short-term too. Short-term COVID is more dangerous than the vaccine. So both have an element of danger, but the danger for COVID is much higher both in the short-term and the long-term. So the smart decision is to take the vaccine to lessen the chance that you're going to have any of this damage, either short-term or long-term. But let's go back to the fourth shot. The fourth shot, you've already had three shots. So you are protected from a lot of the damage COVID can do to you. Is it possible to get long COVID or some kind of long-term bad effect from COVID, even if you've been vaccinated? Yes. It's possible to die, though it's unlikely, but it's possible to die after you've been vaccinated if you get COVID. But I will say that getting another vaccine does lower the chance, not just that you're going to feel symptomatic infection, but that you'll get something like long COVID. And they have been studying that and that long COVID does seem to be much more common among those who are not vaccinated. So getting another shot will probably lessen your chance substantially of something like long COVID or doing permanent damage to you. So that's a reason for the shot. But there are some compelling reasons against the fourth shot, such as I don't want to get sick for a few days. It sucks. Or Omicron just isn't that severe and I'm not in a very vulnerable group. Or I'm just sick of doing this every five months. I just don't want to. It's not worth it. Especially given that the disease is not that severe. A reason to get the fourth shot is that COVID may not be here forever. I think it's going to be, but it may not be. It may die out. Or it may convert itself into an actual cold. 
since it's already going in that direction. So maybe we won't have to keep taking them every five months because maybe eventually COVID is going to be not a big enough deal to warrant taking a vaccine for it unless you're in a really vulnerable group. That may that may be eventually where we are with COVID, that it's killing people who are very old and vulnerable, but everybody else is like a cold and it's not worth taking the vaccine for. So it could be something like that that we eventually land on. So if that's the case, maybe you'll say, okay, well, before it finally mutates to the least bothersome version, I'll take one more of these. So I'll take a fourth, but not a fifth. But then there's also the argument of where does it stop? Where where do you draw the line? There's this meme going around the internet where there's a vaccine card where they stamp, and after eight COVID vaccines, you can get eight stamps, you win a free sandwich. (laughs) And of course, that's a joke based on Subway. And how they give you a sandwich on the card after you get uh, X number of subs. But, you know, I understand it. I understand the point they're making here. That this can't become a new lifestyle of getting vaccines every five months. It's kind of absurd, especially when you're not preventing death anymore. And it's a very reasonable decision to say, I'm just done. It's very reasonable to say, I'm not going to get sick every five months from this thing. It's very reasonable to say, I just don't want to do it. I've done what I need to do to lower my chance of death or severe illness substantially. And that's all I'm going to do. If I get sick for a week or two from a breakthrough, then I do. I'm not taking any more vaccines. That's very reasonable to say. There definitely should not be any mandates for a fourth shot. There really shouldn't be any mandates for a third shot. Now that we know that Omicron's breaking through, now that we know that It looks like transmission may not be affected by getting a vaccine. There is no reason anymore to mandate anything with a vaccine, especially not a booster. I will say that the booster I got probably protected me twice. I was at the World Series of Poker with Delta right in the room for long days there at the World Series. I know for sure people were in that room with me for 10 plus hours each day who had Delta and were transmitting it. And I didn't get it. These people weren't at my table, but they were in the room with me, in that closed room, for 10 plus hours each day. So, I'm not saying I for sure would have gotten it if I didn't get the booster, but I can say that I didn't get it. Many poker players at that main event did. So it may have protected me there. And more significantly, I had someone in this house with Omicron, and I didn't catch it. Nor did Benjamin's mom, who also had the booster. So it's very possible the booster did its work, and it prevented me from getting Delta in October, or November, that is, and prevented me from getting Omicron in January. So if I just stuck with the booster I got in mid-April, then I don't think I would have dodged Omicron so far like I have. And I may not have dodged Delta either. I could have gotten them both. Probably not because I'd probably have enough natural immunity if I got Delta in November to where I would get Omicron in January. But I bet I would have gotten one of the two. So given that the 
the booster seemed to work for me, it starts to become tempting. Maybe I should get it again. But how many times do I want to go through this? It's not time for me to make the decision yet. I've got another month and a half. I assume by then they will be allowing the shot for anybody it has been five months or more. And then I'll have to decide in mid-March, do I do it? And it's not going to be an easy decision. I'm going to be watching what happens with Omicron because Omicron may be largely dead by that point. It could be replaced by something else. We could just have a very low infection rate. But then we saw from Omicron how quickly these variants can rise up and become dominant before you have the chance to even do anything. So that's another thing. Some people who tried to run out and get the booster got infected anyway because there wasn't enough time for the booster to affect their protection because you're told that you have to wait about two weeks for that to really be effective. So you can't just say, I'll wait to the next problem variant. Now, there's one more good argument not to get that fourth shot, and that is there has been some talk that they're going to adjust the vaccine to work better against Omicron. In which case, maybe you don't want to get the existing booster, which is just another dose of the same shot you've been getting the whole way. And knowing that Omicron's busting right through and maybe the next variant will bust through even more. Maybe you want to wait for one that is designed to stop Omicron and may also stop the next variant, which will probably spring from Omicron. So that is one argument on the side of waiting, not necessarily saying you won't do it, but there is an argument to say, you know what, let's wait until we get a booster that's adjusted. But that may never come. There is discussion that they're making one, but there was the discussion about that regarding Delta and it never came to be, especially when they realized that the existing vaccine was fine against Delta as long as it hasn't been five months. So I say right now, you might as well wait. I see that it probably will be some time until there's an Omicron booster. Moderna is just testing their booster aimed at Omicron. I don't see anything about Pfizer. And there was another study on January 7th that says that symptomatic infection happens just as much to unvaccinated people as it does to two-dose vaccinated people. And that it's the booster that makes the difference between getting any kind of protection from Omicron. The study said that traditional dosing of COVID-19 vaccines, meaning two shots, do not produce antibodies capable of recognizing and neutralizing the Omicron variant, and that a booster is required if you want to protect against it. I will tell you a little interesting anecdotal piece of evidence One of Benjamin's friends got Omicron at the same time he did. In fact, it seemed like Ben may have even caught it from this kid because the kid got it about two days ahead of Benjamin. Everybody in that kid's house got Omicron from him. None of the people in that house were boosted. They were all vaccinated except the kids. They were not boosted. In this house, everybody's boosted and nobody got it. So you have two kids the same age, one probably transmitted it to the other. One of them got nobody sick in his house, and the other one got everybody sick. And the difference was, in one house, everybody was boosted. In the other house, everybody was not boosted. 
And you can't even say it's based upon the DNA of the individuals involved, because obviously Benjamin's mom and I have no blood relation whatsoever. Otherwise, we'd have a problem here <laughs> if we did. But uh, obviously, we have no similarity in that way. Sometimes reaction to viruses will be the same or similar with people who are directly related, but we don't have that here. We have that between me and Benjamin, but we don't have that between me and Benjamin's mom. So we have two people who have completely different DNA, both of whom didn't get sick from Benjamin. And what this also shows is that Benjamin's friend apparently was transmitting. So you can't even say, well, kids must not be transmitting. It looks like with Omicron, they are. And that's why it spread in Benjamin's class. So you have Ben's friend who transmitted to his family and you have this family where we didn't get it. And I have to think is probably the booster. And that goes along with this study, which was actually par- published on January 7th in Harvard. They said, we detected very little neutralization of the Omicron variant when we use samples taken from people who are recently vaccinated with two doses. And they said individuals who received three doses had very significant neutralization against the Omicron variant. Now, that's an interesting point because they said people who were recently vaccinated with two doses. So it may not even be a matter of your doses wearing down which was the case where people were getting Delta breakthroughs was just because their protection would wear down over time. It was that you needed three doses to have the proper antibodies to fight it at all. It wasn't a matter of time. It was a matter of the antibodies produced. And it was seen way before Omicron that you have way more antibodies from the third shot than from the second. So it's not just that you're restoring the antibodies. It's that you actually have way more even at the peak of what you had from the second shot. So that's why they're saying in this study from January 7th that from what they can see, there's a pretty good protection against Omicron if you have all these antibodies that come from the third shot, but the second one just doesn't make enough and it's not going to do it. And that it's probably not going to protect you. And I'll tell you, just about everybody who's told me that they've gotten Omicron, I ask where you boosted and they say no. Or, I oh, I just got boosted four days ago, which isn't going to do you that much good. It was also theorized, so they're not sure why this booster is helping so much against Omicron, because it's the same medicine they're putting in you. It's not the medicine, the same vaccine they're putting in you without any modification. It's just a third shot of it. But they theorized that maybe the additional dose, the third dose, creates antibodies that bind more tightly to the spike protein. And also that it may create antibodies that target portions of the spike protein that are common to all forms of COVID-19. So that maybe this third dose is just making better antibodies is what they're saying here. It's not just more, it's that they're better. So this is kind of a helpless feeling for those who are unvaccinated and think they may want to get vaccinated because it seems like you'd have to get vaccinated two shots, wait all the time in between, you know, that you have to wait for the two shots and then get the third shot after even a longer wait. So it would take quite some time to get the proper Omicron immunity. But this January 7th study would indicate that maybe a fourth shot 
would be good to stop Omicron because even if it brings you back to the level of protection you had after the third shot, that should be good enough for most people. Now, it has been breaking through to some people who have been boosted. So it's not like being boosted is uh, complete protection against it, but it seems like there's significantly better protection when you're boosted. It just really seems like that if you only had two shots, it's only useful for protecting you against severe illness at this point. And you should know that. I said that last week. If you only had two shots, especially a long time ago, then it's pretty much like you're unvaccinated as far as catching Omicron. The only difference is how severe it will be. So I'm not sorry I got boosted. I'm just wondering if I should bother with the fourth shot. Now, since Israel is ahead of us with the fourth shot, and they are vaccinating a lot more than just people who are immunocompromised, in fact, it may be open to the whole population now there, we will start seeing some results ahead of our results. And that might better inform me what to do. So if I see in a month and a half the people who got the fourth shot are doing way better against Omicron, the people who had three, then I'll be more likely to go through and do this than if I'm seeing little difference. But preliminary findings from Israel show it's not making that much of a difference. And if I, if I see that's still the case, then the fourth shot is going to be a big no for me. So the bottom line is I need to see something tangible that is going to substantially help the situation if I get a fourth shot. If it's not, if it's just going to be maybe a little bit of help, then no. Because what I can tell you is just about a guarantee is I'm going to get sick from the shot. So it seems a little bit strange why I would get a shot which may or may not help me and guarantee myself getting sick from the shot itself. And not just a little bit sick, but a lot sick. Like from the third shot, I couldn't do anything for those two days. I felt terrible. I had chills. I had hot flashes. I had high fever. I had extreme fatigue. Worse than the second shot where I would get up I'd walk around, and I'd be up for about five minutes. I'd go, uh, yeah, I'm tired. i got to go back to sleep. <laughs> I could be up for about five minutes. And I, I, w- I couldn't fall asleep either because I was in pain. I had a lot of muscle and joint pain. I had the fever. I had the headache. You know, like, So I feel crappy, but I, I feel too crappy to fall asleep, but I feel too low energy to do anything but be in bed. And after being in bed a long time, I, I can get enough energy to get up and, and do things for five minutes before feeling I had to go back to bed. And this, is, this is for two full days plus some lesser but still present effects the third day. So why do I want to do this every five months? You know? That's why it's got to be something substantial. Now, if you don't get much effect from these shots, if you've gone through the second and third shot and it didn't do much to you, you have a very high chance of the fourth shot not doing much to you, then you probably should because what the hell, it's not a lot of burden on you. I think at this point, we know if you've had three shots, we know what it's going to do the next time. I think there's a very high chance that I'm going to have a similar reaction from the fourth shot as it did to the third. And I think that'll be the case with you too. I'd be shocked if I have a good experience with the fourth shot. So maybe I'm not going to get it. I guess I will decide as we get to mid-March. Okay, that's it for tonight. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Our fifth show of January. Our next show will be in February. Not much left of January. Next show, we'll keep it on Saturday. We'll be on Saturday 
the 5th of February. And I'm not sure if February 12th is going to be the date of the next show. I may have something to do on February 12th. We may have to do it on the 11th or 13th. I'll let you know. But looking like the 5th is probably going to happen. Actually, you know, I'm thinking about something. I think I may have to change that too. I think I may have something to do on both Saturdays. So I may have to do it on the 4th or the 6th. Check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert to get that information. Thank you to Trader Ruski for joining us at the beginning. How do I feel about the horseshoe? Am I going to be excited to play at the horseshoe? Not really. I'm just going to see it as Bally's. <laughs> and as the MGM. I mean, I stayed there when it was the MGM. I was a kid, but I stayed there when it was the MGM. I stayed there before and shortly after the big fire. Then in 87, it became Bally's. Now it's going to the Horseshoe. I've never played the World Series at the Horseshoe. My first year at the World Series was in 05, the first year at the Rio. I guess it'll be my first Horseshoe World Series. It just feels phony to me. It's not... I'll never see Bally's as the Horseshoe. It's been Bally's in my head for 35 years. How am I supposed to change that now? I mean, maybe it can. Like, I see the Cromwell as the Cromwell, not the Barbary Coast. And I guess if they renovate it enough, it can look different. So I guess, like, I don't call the Cromwell the Barbary Coast. So I guess I can call Bally's the Horseshoe. But the difference is the Cromwell was a new name. The Horseshoe's not. The Horseshoe's carried over from Minions from 04. That ah, whole thing's weird. And then the Tropicana? How am I going to call that Bally's? That's going to be even harder. That's going to be the Tropicana for sure to me. Yeah, it's going to be weird. I'm going to have a real hard time seeing the Tropicana as Bally's. Maybe over time I'll get used to it, but I'm going to have a real hard time with that. Maybe Oakland just needs to come here, bring the A's, wreck the Tropicana and have nothing there. Or have it be Bally Stadium. I don't know. Alright. Well, that's it. If you're a member of the Raiders listening to this, don't valet park and stop drinking. That's all I can say. That is all. Shalom.